It was 2015, and I was working as a ranch hand. The ranch I worked for had a couple of hundred heads of cattle. They were held at a separate area that wasn't exactly part of their home ranch. It was about ten miles away from the area I would usually be working at. It was about six in the evening during the spring when I was contacted on the ranch radio. Yes, we still use those out here, just in case the cell phone service starts ghosting us. Through the radio, I was told that no one had been up to check the cattle for a couple of days, and that it would be up to me to do that. So I finished up what I was doing, hopped into my 4x4 Ford Ranger, then headed out to check the herd. It took me a while to get there, as the last four miles of road was really more of a doubled-up cow trail. It was April and the sun was going down around 7.30 those days. It was getting close to 7 by then, so it was getting darker fast by the time I made it to the herd. I found them all rather close together, like they had been grouped or gathered up. Most of the time the cattle do stay in groups with a few separating themselves here and there, but they're never this bunched up in a tight group, unless someone was hurting them. On the rare case that they were being attacked, they still didn't bunch up like that. I decided to park my truck for a moment. I reached behind the passenger seat. I grabbed my mag light and my 357 revolver, quickly throwing on the shoulder holster I carried it in. I grabbed the smaller headlamp I had in the glove box and placed it in the passenger seat as well, continuing to drive for a bit towards a stand of brush and trees that the herd seemed to be most interested in watching. I wanted to know why they were keeping an eye on it. I shut off the truck, putting the keys in the ashtray, then grabbing my headlamp and the leather jacket. I turned on the maglite and began to walk over to the stand of trees. It wasn't long before I got that feeling of something being wrong. Like I just stepped foot into some place I was not invited, somewhere I wasn't welcome. Still, I had a job to do, and cattle to protect. I drew my revolver from its holster, then I drew back the hammer, so I was ready if an angry bear came charging out of the woods at me. Walking further into the brush, I found a footprint. It was like a large, slightly deformed dog paw. Moving my light over the expanse of dimly lit forest before me, I looked at the ground with my headlamp for any more signs of disturbance or footprints. I mumbled a few self-deprecating words to myself, the last sentence being, I'm so dumb. Then I heard the exact same words repeat. For a split second, it didn't register to me that my words had been echoed. Then I froze. I didn't even finish the step I was in the middle of. I didn't move, or rather I couldn't move. I fought with my body and mind, reminding myself that it wasn't time to be a freaking iceberg, that I had to move, but my body would not cooperate. It really did seem like forever came and went before finally, in a split second, I spun around, maglite in hand, headlamp now illuminating where I thought the reply had come from, and I pointed my revolver. But the hammer went click. It didn't fire. I almost had a stroke right there, a heart attack or something, when I heard the click, but saw nothing happen. Then, in the same moment, I saw movement. 
As soon as my eyes registered that something was there with me, it was gone. But my hearing told me more. It ran through the bushes off to my left, and just as soon as the cracking of twigs and rocks underfoot started, they stopped. I snapped back to myself again, quickly pressing the release on the revolver cylinder and inspecting the rounds. One of them had a dent in the primer, but it didn't fire. I pushed that round out of the cylinder and, without realizing it, dropped my maglite to grab one of the twelve bullets in the outside loops of my shoulder holster. Replacing that round and slapping the revolver cylinder back into place. Then I looked up, cocking back the hammer again. I looked all around me, slowly, bending down to pick up my maglite after realizing I'd dropped it. I didn't know what to do. Would running provoke this thing into chasing me? Had it taken any of the cattle? Did it really repeat my words to me earlier, mimicking me almost perfectly? Or was that in my head? These questions and paranoia clouded my mind, muddling together with the ever-loudening beat of my heart and the white noise that came with the adrenaline pumping through my body. I stood there, looking around in a circle for several minutes. Finally, a thought broke through the rest, and the flight side of my fight-or-flight took over, even in my cowboy boots, which I must stress are in no way good for running. I ran from that forest. My hearing had cleared, allowing me to hear that something else was also running with me through the brush behind me. I blindly fired around back in that direction. I never got any indication that whatever it was had slowed down, but it did let out what I can only describe as a supernatural version of a snarled oof, like a beast getting hit in the chest and having some air knocked out of it. I finally could see my truck. I could still hear whatever it was behind me, though. It seemed closer than before. Then something made me duck and roll, and as I did... I felt the air being cut just above my head. When I came back up, the furry mass was before me. I quickly fired at it again, not aiming for anything in particular, but definitely hitting it. This time, I heard a twisted snarl, along with the painful yelp and the growl of a big but hurt dog. I backed up, realizing that I was touching my truck now. I flung open the door and threw myself inside grabbing the keys from the ashtray and starting it, then flooring the gas pedal. Initially, the truck spun out, and before I took off, something big rammed into the side of my truck, jolting it out of its tire spin and finally getting me moving, pointing in the wrong direction, though. I turned around as fast as I could, gas all the way to the floor. When I hit some rocky ground, the tires took hold, I got up to about 20 miles per hour pretty fast, and if you've ever traveled down a glorified cow trail, that is way too fast, but I didn't have the luxury of slowing down. I was almost to where the trail turned into a road, when that animal jumped out in front of the truck. I only sped up, planning to hit the thing, but before I did, it leapt up and ran down the back of my truck completely unscathed. I didn't slow down, though. I sped back to the homestead faster than I ever had, and by that time I realized I could have called for help on the radio. 
I told the rancher that some sort of massive wolf or coyote or something had spooked the cattle and possibly attacked it, and had attacked me. He said he would get in touch with the Forest Service. He had a friend that worked there, and would ask him to investigate. It was on Forest Service land, after all, and we technically couldn't hunt the beast down ourselves. I kept telling myself the rest of the night that it was really just a big wolf, but I knew better. The following day, that forest ranger stopped by and came to talk to me. He asked me the usual, what color the creature was, relative size, those sorts of things. Then he asked me something I found to confirm my belief that it wasn't just a wolf. He suddenly looked at me and asked, are you sure it's a wolf? Yeah, I held on to my story. He thought for a moment, then pulled out his phone. Here, take a look at these pictures. I found this kill site this morning, while I was out there looking around those woods. I'm not sure what to make of it, but I've seen some bad kills. But I've never seen anything that bloody. I took a look. The only way I can describe what I saw on that phone would be to reference the signs the White Walkers made in Game of Thrones, but only if you turn up the nastiness and blood by tin. There was meat and viscera everywhere. It was like that part of the forest had been painted red. I wanted to vomit. The ranger had taken a small panorama of the site to file with the investigation, and it was insane. He said what that spot used to be was a cow, but now it's nothing more than a crater of mess. After this incident, I was supremely spooked. I ended up moving on to safer employment at a retail store. I'm never going to the woods at night again. I think this event may have given me PTSD. Dogman in Hogan's Lake, from Marissa. I'm a religious deer hunter. I enjoy the feeling of sustaining my family, feeding them off the land. But one encounter I had changed me forever. I live near Hogan's Lake, and not far from it is an old military base, or land that a lot of us locals use. But back in the day, they used to launch artillery rounds here and use the land for tank practice. You can still see the craters left behind, but now it's quite covered in overgrowth. The local deer love to bed down in them, too. It's an odd sight. Anyway, it was a perfect day for hunting. The winds were blowing southwest. It was 34 degrees, just an all-around beautiful fall morning. I'm the type of hunter that gets out there way too early, just so I can enjoy the sunrise. It was about an hour and a half before the sun would rise. I'm all set up, ready for the morning hunt. I was sitting on my tree stand, laid back and enjoying the fresh air, when my eyes went wide, because in a split second, the woods went from being alive with wildlife to absolute silence. At first, I thought there was something wrong with my ears, but when I shuffled my position to hear better, I could hear myself. 
but that was it. The sounds around me had stopped. The sun was just beginning to peak above the treetops. I begin to look into the field nearby, and to my surprise, I see a small number of does in the field, but they're all hunkered down trying to hide below the grass. I was dumbfounded. What was going on? I could feel the southwest winds chiseling at my exposed cheeks as I wondered why those does weren't moving. Till out of nowhere, I see something lunge out of the tree line, tearing into the rear end of one of these doe. It was huge. I mean massive. Its arms were almost as long as its entire body, and its head was twice as big as a dog's, even if it looked similar to a husky. Its tail was bushy, and its fur was a whitish-gray color. It had bolted out of the woods on four legs and attacked the deer the way a tiger would. But when the deer was done for and the struggling had stopped, this creature stood up like a man, on two legs, towering over the grass, getting a great look at the area around them. In shock, I must have knocked something out of the tree stand. When whatever it was hit the ground, the creature turned and looked right at me. It seemed both startled and angry. It got back down on all fours, and instead of running away, it ran right up to my stand. At this point, I'm fumbling with my rifle trying to find the safety, but I was so terrified that I was shaking. When this wolf or dog thing starts to jump at me, it easily made it to the branches five feet below me. I aimed and fired, hitting the limb next to it, but I think the sound was enough to spook it because it stopped and looked up at me on two legs. It seemed to be observing me, wondering if I was worth the trouble. I'll never forget those quarter-sized yellow eyes. Finally, it muttered a low growl, then dropped down, casually walking away back to its prey, picked it up in its mouth, before running off with ease into the trees. I stayed in that tree stand for about an hour, making sure that thing was gone. Only when the woods came back to life around me did I feel safe enough to leave the tree stand. Ever since then, I have not been able to muster the strength to return to those woods alone. And now no matter where I go, hunting has never been the same. The Beast of Mogo Gold Rush Colony From the Angry Dremora I live in New South Wales, Australia. This encounter took place in October of 2014. I was 12 years old at the time, and in my last year of primary school. For the school camp that year, we would spend two days down at Mogo Gold Rush Colony, an old preserved gold rush colony, from the times of the gold rush in Australia, since at the time we were learning about British colonization and our early history. It's located a few miles south of Batemans Bay and is surrounded by the bush. The bus ride was fun but taxing, as we lived in Wollongong, which is nearly three hours north of Batemans Bay. We finally arrived late in the afternoon. They sorted us into our cabins. My friends and I were put in the cabins closest to the tree line, 
which was also closest to the bridge leaving from the living quarters. My friends and I had packed our PSPs, board games, and David even brought his small pinball machine that I had bought him for his birthday. We were also completely stocked up on sweets and snacks. We were planning to stay up long into the night, having fun. After dinner that night, we were made to sit with our formal partner and listen to the local aboriginal elder named Sam. I sat on a log with my then-girlfriend, Gemma. Sam talked about a lot of things. He went into great depth on the British impact of the aboriginals. He talked about the troubles they brought along with them, and eventually asked if we liked scary stories, and everyone excitedly said yes. Sam then told us that the aborigines had many creatures from their stories they believed in, like the Bunyip and the Yawa Mawa Yahoo. That's what it sounded like. His face eventually grew dark and grim, before saying that the British also brought their own monsters with them. He mentioned one beast in particular that all of us kids recognized. The European werewolf. One boy laughed and said, Werewolves aren't real. They're just cool myths made up by movie makers. The old man looked over to the boy and said, Well, I pray you never meet one yourself. As cliché and silly as he sounded, he looked dead serious, even concerned, which only made me feel more unsettled. We were then told to go back to our cabins to unwind. It took many of the rowdier cabins a few hours to do that but soon it was just us. One of the teachers, a Miss R, had to come down because Liam had broke a light bulb by accident, so she had to take him back to stay with teachers, because the assistant principal had also gone with us. So she had to follow the school's protocol, leaving only Cohen, Brody, Lacklin, David, and myself. Lacklin had been hit by an extreme homesickness, though, which had him crying, and so Brody, being the legend he was, kept him company, comforting him and telling him, It's all going to be all right, Lacklin. We're going to have a great time. We all had a set of double bunk beds lining the cabin, up to the bathroom at the back. It was like a flat, almost. Quite a cozy double cabin. Another group had one next door to us. The cabin only had two windows, one in between my bunk and Lacklin and Brody's bunk bed and the other above the toilet. A silly place to have a window that's not tinted in some way. But it did have a shutter that we kept open for light from the outside. At around 1 a.m., it began pelting down rain. Lacklin was still crying. David was playing his PSP with his headphones in, and Cohen and I were talking. I had the urge to go to the bathroom, and as I stood there doing my business, I suddenly heard Lacklin screaming. The window. There was something standing there. I glance out the window to the side of the cabin, and I see it. A huge black figure covered in fur. It appeared to be squatting on two legs, which were bent back like a Hollywood werewolf. Its arms were down to its knees with long, bony fingers that ended in claws the length of steel nails, it had a semi-muscular build, and the head of a dog. But there was something wrong with it. Its maw was more like a wolf's, and its ears were more small. 
It had a shaggy mane and wet black nose that dripped from the downpour outside. It had placed one of its hands on the window, looking inside at the kids. With its other hand, it scraped down the glass with a claw, as if measuring how thick it was. Its face was mischievous, intelligent. It enjoyed the fear that it was giving Lachlan. I began to slowly close the shutter of the bathroom window, not taking my eyes off the thing. However, the blinds made a loud squeak, and as soon as I started, the beast turned instantly to face me. I wished I hadn't done that. The beast stared at me. That was when I got a good look at its face. I tremble every time I think of that face. Words fail to describe exactly what I saw but I'll do my best. Its eyes were like a bright amber that seemed to glow in the embers of a fire. It slowly began to bare sharp teeth at me with a sinister-looking snarl, a mixture of saliva and rain dripping from its exposed mouth. It let out a low growl so deep I could feel it vibrating my chest. I was completely frozen in fear and I could feel myself lost in the thing's eyes. Its gaze was one of hatred and rage, but I felt a sense of curiosity too. I wanted to see what it was going to do next, even if that meant trying to attack me. It began to run its long razor-like claws down the side of the wooden wall of the cabin. All the while, it didn't break eye contact with me. I could see the black claws glistening in the rain from the light of the gazebo. Then I saw a flashlight bobbing behind it. The teachers, they must have heard Lachlan screaming because all of them came down from the trail. The beast then glared angrily in their direction before giving me one last look. It got down on all fours and began to take off at an alarming speed, kicking up bark chips everywhere. I raced to the window it was at before and watched the beast bound towards the colony and over the bridge. All the while, it kicked up that dirt and grass. David had been playing his PSP with headphones in and did not hear or see any of this. Brody had stayed on the bottom bunk, which he chose to stay put in, as Cohen stayed in his. Lachlan was now sobbing hysterically at this point. The teachers unlocked the door and burst inside. Lachlan kept saying there was a monster at the window, but Miss Chapman didn't believe him. She turned to me and asked, uh, Did you see a monster? I pointed at the scratches on the window without saying a word and moved past her to climb into my bunk. Miss Chapman observed them and then simply said she would find the little troublemaker who did this, to which I replied, Good luck. She clearly didn't see the size and width of the scratches, or she refused to buy that something did that, as in Australia we don't have big cats or bears, so I guess to her it was nothing. Most of my friends managed to fall asleep, even Lachlan, but I lay there, wondering if it was going to come back, wondering what it wanted to do. I then closed the shutter to the window above my head, and soon I drifted off to sleep. I woke up last. I had slept through a lot, 
Liam had come back and was being rowdy and messing about with David. David was chasing him up and down the cabin in nothing but an Iron Man mask and underwear, screaming like a maniac. David was quite out of shape, so you can imagine how absurd he looked. Lachlan, Brody, and Cohen were quiet. We didn't speak a word until we got changed for the day. That day we were taken on a tour of one of the mines that had been restored, and David and I decided to split off from the group and explore the colony ourselves. As we wandered through the town, he couldn't help but wonder why there were claw marks on some of the walls of the old buildings. This sent chills down my spine. I knew what did it. I know what I saw the previous night. We decided to check out the back of a barber shop, which was immediately backed by thick forest. There we were hit by a foul odor. David said we should follow it to find what it is. This sounded like a terrible idea, but I gave in to peer pressure, and I was curious if we would run into our hairy friend again. But what we saw made me throw up. In a clearing not too far from the barber's back lot was a mangled mess that used to be a kangaroo. There were parts of it scattered all over the ground and forest at the base of a large gum tree. It looked like something much bigger than it had slammed it against the tree repeatedly. David breathed. What the heck could have done this? I urged him that we should leave, and we did, rejoining the group who were down the road at the blacksmith. I then took the chance to tell him what we saw the previous night that he had missed. I told him how Liam used to own a book called Werewolves, Vampires, and Zombies, which contained a section on cryptids. In particular, I told him about the Beast of Bray Road, and how it looked similar to the drawing in that book. He wasn't skeptical at all, given the slaughtered kangaroo we found. Soon the guide led us to the barber with the class, and not long after that everyone began complaining about the smell. So the guide discovered the handiwork of the beast for himself, and then told us to go back to the old schoolhouse, before gold panning. Soon I saw a few other workers meet up with them to help. They discussed what to do with the situation. They then disappeared to clean up the monster's masterpiece. During lunch, David and I went to explore the caravan park, stumbling upon the largest gaggle of geese we'd ever seen. These geese were vicious, though, and roamed the whole property. After that night of formal dance practice, we returned to the cabin and unwinded for bed. Before it got dark, I closed the outside still shutters in the windows, and we locked everything down. We even shut the blinds for good measure. I locked the doors, and with help from Lachlan, we barricaded the door with the wardrobe. Liam didn't understand why we were doing all this, and asked what on earth was going on. I simply told him the lock was busted. We all fell asleep that night fairly fast, to the sounds of cicadas, cicadas, and crickets. But I was slowly awakened at around four by a subtle bump. The sounds of the night had ceased. Not even the early birds you'd hear were sounding up. The thumping continued, and soon it sounded like the screeching of steel as something began to claw at the metal around the building, which there wasn't a lot of, so it had to have been going out of its way to do this. 
I knew immediately that the beast was back. I was beginning to shake and feel nauseous, thinking that that thing could easily smash its way inside. I closed my eyes, beginning to pray, reciting the Lord's words, and asked for aid. Soon I could hear it growling at something, then the scratching and thumping ceased. I then hear the distinctive sound of geese, followed by a deafening roar that shook the building. Suddenly there was the sound of fluttering and whacking sounds. The cries of the geese grew louder, hundreds of them. Then there was another roar that seemed annoyed. It growled and snarled, and then walked away into the bush. The sounds of the geese heckling it continued and seemed to follow it, and soon everything went quiet again, and the sounds of the night returned. By then everyone was now awake from the commotion. Liam was begging to know what happened. I told him I wasn't sure. After unlocking everything at 5.30am and unbarricading the door, Lachlan and I decided to examine the outside of the cabin. And it was a mess. Claw marks down the shutter, indentations in the wood from it pounding and pounding, bark chips everywhere, feathers scattered about the ground, a few dead geese. We moved the dead birds away. We knew we'd be questioned about the damage, and the dead geese wouldn't help. So we dumped them into the creek separating the cabins from the colony. We then began to pack our things. Later that morning, we stopped at the Mogo Zoo, and shortly after that, we were on our way home. We didn't talk much on the bus ride. The past two nights had been very traumatic for us, and Liam and Brody remained skeptical, even though the evidence of the creature was right there. A few months passed, and I'm starting high school during that time. I became obsessed with Skyrim, and when I did that questline where you could become a werewolf... I felt nauseous at the sight of it. It was uncanny how similar the werewolf in that game and the beast we saw a few months back were. The only person I ever told was my dad. With a frightened expression, he quickly believed me and told me his own story, which happened in Moriua. That's thirty minutes south of the Gold Rush Colony. He was sleeping in a granny flat under the house which could only be accessed from the outside. He and his brother woke up to what sounded like the tapping of steel on the glass. He looked and saw the beast with the head and face of a dog or wolf peeking in at him, grinning with that same grin I saw that rainy night. To this day, I wonder what would have happened to us if we hadn't been separated by a wall from that terrifying monster who turned animals into pulp. Make sure you're either extremely fast, or you have several inches of steel wall between you and the werewolf you stumbled upon. Otherwise, you're about to become a big, red, smushy mess. And if that happens, you won't be able to share your story with us. So survive for the sake of scary stories and to warn others about how monstrous werewolves and dogmen really are. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own you want to share with us, go to darknessprevails.org submit, 
or go to darkstories.org. If you want to support the show, check the links in the description. There's a link to my Patreon where you can donate, and a link to our store where you can buy some cool merch. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous video. Titled, It Took My Child, Seven Real Monster Sightings. Lita Wolf Webb says, I work the night shift in a hospital, and I'm always going through the morgue and hearing fun party noises. However, I believe they're starting to get annoyed because I declined their invitation at night. Are the ghosts partying over there? At least they're happy ghosts, at least, right? Let's make sure you keep them happy. Vanessa Torado says, Seven likes in one view. YouTube is on crack. Well, considering modern YouTube, I'd rather it be on crack than sober. KW says, What's with these terrible titles? Five ghost stories, for example, was way better, or five Wendigo stories for people who are not subbed and searching for scary stories. Maybe that's because people like me to repeat topics, and calling something volume such and such is irritating and boring. I mean, just sit back and think about it. Reuse the same title over and over with new stories that may not be seen because the title's the same, or tease it with one of the titles of the stories. Sounds like a no-brainer to me, and it allows me to be a bit more general with the stories I pick, covering topics and stories that I haven't been able to for years. Jessica Strickland says, This channel is a strange one. Thank you, Jessica. I do enjoy being strange and making you all strange with me. Levamorn says, If we find cryptids on another world, are they really cryptids or just animals? Okay, let me clear up something for you. Something is a cryptid because we haven't officially discovered it yet. Once it's cataloged, we're good. It's no longer a cryptid. All cryptids are animals. So if we land on a planet and it's covered with animals that are easy to locate and catalog and study, they're not cryptids. They're only cryptids up to the point that that happens. Cryptid just means mysterious animal. Just keep it at that. Well, this brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry. More scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're very... Very attractive people. Remember, stay safe out there and stay creepy, because this world is a strange one. Some people are afraid of heights. Some people are afraid of people or things entering their homes at night. But do you know what I'm afraid of? Allergies. Because when you work with your voice and your nose is all stuffy, it makes me want to hurt myself. Well now, don't worry about my spooky nostril problems. Instead, enjoy these allegedly true scary stories about creepy camping creatures, Australian monsters, and spooky little girls. By the way, you should start investing in your future a penny at a time with Acorn. Acorn is my favorite investing app, because if you wanted to, the app will automatically round up every purchase you make and invest the remaining dollar in your account. If you buy a burger for a buck fifty, it rounds it up to two bucks and invests fifty cents. 
Before you know it, you've got quite the savings, and eventually a nice nest egg you can use for anything. Use the link below to get started, and we'll both get five bucks. You can invest it like a smart person, or spend it on a booster pack of magic cards. I know, it was a bad idea. This isn't a sponsorship, by the way. I just really like acorns, and I want five bucks. Now, let's begin. What is it? From Dr. White Rabbit. I was driving home from my friend's place in clerk stop. It was winter, and after a recent motorcycle accident, my joints were always in some sort of pain. The trip was about 200 kilometers. About 70 kilometers from my home in Johannesburg, I pull over to stretch my legs and walk around. Now I am very aware of my surroundings, as there have been a lot of farm attacks in South Africa, and I'm in the middle of farm country. I was admiring the sky as the Milky Way was out in its full glory. It was pretty darn breathtaking. As I'm sitting there on the side of the road, I become aware that I'm being watched. That unsettling feeling, almost as if I was being hunted. Normally I'd be armed, but for some reason that day I left my sidearm at home, which again was 70 kilometers away from me. You're probably thinking, it's Africa, man, it's dangerous. And you're right, this was a mistake. I slowly get back into the general safety of my car, switching it on, but it doesn't start. I remember thinking, really? <sighs> what luck. I've just driven all this way, and now this. That's exactly what I needed. I switched off all the lights so I could see outside better. I took a quick look of my surroundings, but nothing really stood out. So I got out and popped the hood. With my phone's light, I was looking all over, at the plugs, at the battery, at everything, and it all seemed fine. Then my phone died. You've got to be kidding me, I thought. That's when the feeling returned. That feeling that something was close, and it was focusing on you and you alone. I quickly look around again in a slight panic, but once more I can't see a thing. But now... I can hear something. There's something walking out in the fields. It's no more than five meters away from me to the left. It's pacing up and down. I listen closely, and it sounds like a dog, but much bigger. Of course, normally farmers keep dogs in the fields to protect the cattle and the sheep. But the only fields nearby were of corn and sunflower. No sort of sheep or cattle at all. This was not a dog. It was far too big, far too angry sounding. Whatever it was, it seemed mad that I was in its territory. I jump back into my car and try turning it on again. It finally turns over. I thank God and jump out again to close the hood. The sound is still coming to the left of me. Closer now. This time it seems to be right next to the fence, and I can feel it drilling into me. With the light of the moon and stars, I look over, and I can see it. A silhouette, 
that is nearly seven feet tall, with two bright yellow eyes and white glistening teeth in a snarl. That is no dog. I run back in the car nearly screaming and book it out of there. I look in the rear view, but I don't see anything. Then I look ahead, and to my horror, the thing I'd seen before runs across the road in front of me, causing me to swerve. I got another quick look at it, revealing more details of sharp claws. I just miss hitting the thing, though now I realize hitting it may have been the better deal, because maybe I would have gotten rid of it. Then again, it would have brought it way closer to me. Anyway, I swerved and missed it. The last thing I saw in my rear view as I sped away was it picking itself back up to stand once again on two legs. The next time I travel that road, I'll be armed and I'll be doing it during the day only. But really, what the heck was that thing? The Disturbing Little Girl from Skyle RRRR27 This story takes place in Biloxi, Mississippi. It happened in September of 2018. My friend Jack and I were going to hang out around 8 that night. We planned on hanging out and just walking down the street, telling each other how our weeks had been catching up on everything we'd missed. But sadly, there was more than just us walking and talking about our weeks. We certainly weren't alone that night. Jack and I began to walk from my house down our street, having a pleasant conversation about how much we really hated school and how everything was so stressful. We made it to the end of the road, which has three ways we can go and all three make a loop back the way we came. We decided to only walk around one of the loops, then we would head back to a little pond we had to walk past to get to the end of the road. Everything went smoothly. We walked around the loop and were on our way back, but that was when the uneasy feeling hit. I couldn't figure out what was causing me to feel like this, so I simply tried to ignore it. We slowly made our way to the pond and began talking about how overgrown the grass had been since no one ever cuts it anymore. We then hear a huge splash from down below in the pond. It sounded like someone took a giant rock and just threw it as hard as they could into the water. Jack and I jumped, startled, and both looked at each other. Needless to say, we were on edge at this point. We both tried to brush it off thinking it was a fish or some nighttime animal just jumping into the pond. As we kept going, Jack began to talk about nature, but I saw something way behind the pond. There was a house, but this house was weird to us because we never understood how people drove to it. What I'm trying to say is there were no roads leading to it. As I looked at that old house, I saw a little girl, probably between the ages of five and eight. She was standing on the porch. It was a bit too dark to see what she was looking at. She was just insanely creepy. I tapped on Jack's shoulder and said, Do you see that girl over there? 
He said, yeah, and she's creeping me out. I pleaded for him to stay for a while, so that we could see whether or not she went back inside, or if we could tell if she was looking at us or something else. He agreed, and we started to talk again, keeping an eye on the girl. We started to talk louder, seeing if we could get her to move, to do something that showed us that she was alive. At one point, we started to laugh about something, and when we did this, I saw her head turn towards something behind her, then back at us. At this point, I was regretting it, wishing that we would have just left. The girl then slowly began to lift her arm and pointed at us. At then, Jack and I were completely weirded out. Then the girl just starts running at us at full speed. Startled and freaked out, Jack and I begin to run away. We safely made it back to my house and chilled in my room for the rest of the night, before Jack had to go home. The way that girl was just so silent and staring, and then how she so seriously pointed at us and ran. I don't know, there was something off about her and I didn't like it. And what was behind her that she was looking at, like she was beckoning to something behind her. Better yet, when I asked around about that house, I was told that no one lived there. So, why was that girl there? What was she doing? And why did she chase after us? I have no idea what's going on, but I think the best bet would be to stay far away from that old house. Because little ghost girls are extremely creepy. The Whimpering Thing from Nihilo This happened a few months ago when I went solo camping in the outback of Flinders Ranges in South Australia. I've told my close friends and family, but they say I'm just being funny, as there's something keeping me from describing what I saw exactly. You'll come to know why near the end of the story, and I'll try my best to tell you why I can't say certain things. Anyway... Here's my story of something truly bizarre, weird, and psychologically draining on my end. You see, I'm a hobbyist photographer. I purchased a high-end camera in hopes that, after spending thousands on it, it would force me to practice and ultimately take it more seriously. I'd recently got my hands on a new Sigma Art 20mm 1.4 lens. I wanted to give astrophotography a real shot. I knew the fundamentals about it, and only lacked an area to do it. As luck would have it, I had a chance to. My fiancé was flying to Melbourne with one of her friends for two days, for shopping and city life. I figured I'd take the chance to drive out the six to eight hours, to Flinders, and camp for the night. There's virtually zero light pollution there, and makes it prime for taking shots of the Milky Way. I'd been to Wilpina compound once before with friends, and it gave me amazing results with the lesser lenses I had, so I knew this was going to be stellar. I set off early that morning after my partner had caught her plane. I drove all the way up, stopping once for a bathroom break. I never imagined I'd camp alone like this, 
But after seeing so many videographers and photographers do it on YouTube, I figured what the heck. It's only two nights, right? Being the weekend, I wanted a really secluded place all to myself so I could set up my cap, my camera gear, etc., and most importantly, not be disturbed. I checked out the maps and decided on taking one of the off-road trails for 4x4s, then I'd take a detour off into the bush, and I'd camp there. Now, I wasn't stupid, and didn't literally wander off too deep. I made sure wherever I went, it would be a super easy, straightforward turnaround, then I could get back to my ute, or truck if you're from the States. Anyway, after the drive and me detouring and looking for a literal off-the-grid zone, where I knew no one except a few kangaroos and local wildlife would be, I parked my ute and headed off. This particular area was full of thick bush and old scraggly-looking trees. The trees themselves were perfect for a nice composition for my astro shots. The sky was clear, and the new moon meant zero light pollution. After about 40 minutes of casual, slow walking, always looking for a perfect tree, I decided to set up camp before it got too dark. Just as I was walking to a nice clearing, I heard what sounded like a far-off animal whimper. It was sort of like how a dog does if it's scared, possibly a wild dingo or something. Just a typical canine sound, I thought. I could tell it was far off, so I didn't pay too much mind to it. Plus, I was smart enough to bring a small hatchet for firewood, as well as a knife. Plus, once a fire is going, I doubt they'd hang around. I brushed it off and set up my swag and camera. I made a nice small fire pit and headed off nearby for some kindling and wood. It was getting dusk and the light was slowly fading. I didn't own a watch and used my phone to check the time. My phone, as it turns out, would play a huge role in the coming events. You see, out here, signal was basically non-existent. Very, very rarely it seemed an intermittent signal would fly in, and my phone would ping for a moment. I put it on vibrate so not to annoy me too much. It would vibrate every hour or so. I looked at my phone and it read 748, so I hurried along and started gathering wood. After ten minutes or so of grabbing whatever I could find, I heard that whimpering sound again slightly louder, but I ignored it altogether. I was fixated on getting my firewood and returning to camp. I finished getting what I could carry and got back. I started getting the fire made. After a couple hours of building the fire, having a bit of snacks and boiling some soup placed in the fire coals, I checked up to see if I could see the Milky Way. Out here you can visibly see the dust in space outlining the Milky Way. I couldn't see it, so I figured I had to wait earlier in the morning. I checked my phone and had zero signal. No biggie. It was 12.34 a.m. by then. Last I recalled, the Milky Way would be best visible around 1 to 3 a.m., so I stayed up and waited, reading a book. It was then that I heard the crack of sticks nearby. Hearing this out of the blackness was enough to scare me right to death. I realized how silly that was that an animal could scare me so much, just from walking, 
I mean, it had to be some animal. This area was extremely remote, and kangaroos were extremely common out here. Just as I gathered my composure again, the hairs on my body instantly flew up. I'd never experienced such a chilling sensation. My heart flew into my throat, and I could barely swallow. All the ambient noises of insects, nightlife animals, wind through bushes, just completely vanished. This sensation, though, I couldn't explain it. I felt exactly what it was. Something was watching me intently, and I couldn't move. I was trembling inside with a fear I wouldn't wish on even my worst enemies. I could feel tears welling up, and I had trouble swallowing. What was going on with me? Why was it so quiet all of a sudden? I was panicking inside more than I ever had before. I sat there frozen, locked up, choking, my throat closing on me. It was the most severe case of anxiety I'd ever had. But from what? What was going on? Then I heard it. The whimpering sound again. This time... It only came from a few feet behind me in the bush. I desperately tried to move, but I was paralyzed with fear. Only my eyes, which frantically searched around looking for any sign of movement, could move at all. I was looking for any means of hope in getting out of this situation. I then spotted my flashlight beside me. But I couldn't move. I was crying now, tears falling down my face my breathing tight and fast. I could barely get any air past my throat. Maybe I was having a heart attack, I told myself. No, this was different. Then the noise came again, sticks crunching underfoot of something, whimpering again, but longer. I felt its presence, and a severe dread flushed throughout my body. I was shutting down, Fight or flight completely skipped me. I was past the point of choosing, as if my body knew that neither fight nor flight were possible against whatever this was. I sensed it watching me, drawing closer, my body trembling more. I began to develop a thick sweat on my body. Just when I felt like I was going mad, there was a loud crackle from seemingly nowhere. The fire I had made had splintered a big stick and embers flew off, illuminating the area around me. Another loud whimper followed, and then instantly, as if a miracle, my body moved. The sounds of the forest returned, and my hairs fell back into place. My throat opened back up, and I rapidly began breathing in. I grabbed my flashlight, spinning around with it, aiming it at the bush, but saw... Nothing. Where did it go? Did the firelight scare it off? Whatever happened, I gave up the idea of shooting the skies that night. I just didn't feel safe anymore. Just as a child cuddles blankets when they're scared, I needed something to comfort me desperately. I knew I would not be able to stay up all night now and I was tired from the long drive and exploring. I figured my best option would be to grab my hatchet and knife, then get in my swag, a small tent, 
then I would wait as long as I could. If something came again, I'd hopefully be ready. It was a silly idea, I know, but I was exhausted now more than ever. That adrenaline had completely drained me. There's no way I'd be able to stay up anyway to take shots of the sky, even if I wanted to. I did have the idea to set up my camera and use my wide-angle lens to cover the entire campsite, just to see what gets caught. I cranked up the ISO, the artificial light, in case anyone doesn't know what that is, so it would show whatever was in frame. Then I got in my swag. I heard nothing for what seemed like an hour or so, and I felt myself drifting off. Maybe that thing got spooked and left. I was starting to think that I'd been scared over nothing. My eyes were feeling heavy, and I soon fell asleep. I woke up an unknown amount of time later from a noise, but I wasn't sure what it was. Then I knew straight away it was that whimpering again. My fire was out, and I could not see any light through my swag. I held close to my hatchet and my knife. The whimpering turned into a whining noise, remaining longer with each release. I was nearly crying already. This wasn't funny. I wanted to escape. I wish I'd never come. Why was this happening to me? The whining was as close now as it was before. And then nothing. All the noise had just been erased from the world. My body locked up like before. My eyes grew wide and my chest grew tight. I knew then that whatever it was was staring at me through the tent. This sensation, I knew it came only when that creature had me in its sights. My body was forfeiting itself to it. I don't know why. It was like this creature had the ability to lock its prey down from the sheer terror it invoked. Is this how it hunted things? Once fixated, the natural aura from this creature just shut down its prey. Then the negative thoughts began to rush through my mind. I was going to die here. There's no one around to save me. I couldn't move. I was at the mercy at whatever was outside. My mind was going haywire. Then one phrase echoed in my head. I love you. To my fiancé. At the very least, my camera would take shots of this thing, and maybe someone would find me and know what happened. Then they could hunt it down. The whining grew so loud, it was right up against my swag. It was right next to me, nearly touching me. Then my swag began to move. I couldn't even react to this. I was helplessly laying there, giving myself up to it when I didn't think I could be more terrified of it, something else happened. A different noise emerged, one that's harder to describe. A low guttural. It was crackly, bassy, and it just stayed, never stopping. 
An object ran alongside my tent, making its way down to the side, toward the zipper. I was begging in my mind for something to make this all stop, but I was on my own. It's then that I hate to admit that I soiled myself. Didn't matter to me at the time, because I was going to die. I watched the zipper to the swag slowly lower, and all I could do was watch the audience to my own demise. If this thing wasn't going to kill me, my heart would probably explode or stop anyway. The low, crackling noise remained indefinite. My zipper was halfway down. I closed my eyes, ready to be taken. The sound was now over me. I kept wondering, should I open my eyes now and at least see who my attacker is? If I could just move, I could move my head up to the small fly net opening at the top of my swag. No, it was no use. I'd only see it for a few moments before the end. I kept my eyes closed, picturing my fiancé. Then there was a buzzing sound. My eyes shot open. My body fell back into place. My throat and my heart went back to normal. I could move again. But that clicking sound and the zipper lowering continued. My phone had vibrated. With that little bit of reception, something came through and vibrated with a notification and woke me out of that stupor. Or was it hypnosis? But that thing was still there outside, about to be inside. I was going to see what this thing was and fight back now. I lifted my head to look through the fly net and my brain instantly shut down. It was staring at me. I don't know with what. I can't explain it, but its vision had an effect on my mind and perception. I knew that I was looking at it and it looking at me. It stopped making that noise and it shifted its body, but its body did not stay the same. It had many eyes, yet none. A mouth, but no mouth. The moment my brain saw something and perceived it, it changed. What was I looking at? Nothing made sense. I glanced at my phone and saw that it was 6 a.m. The sun was making its way slowly up. But despite the daybreak approaching, I was still in danger and I needed to leave. I left everything except my camera and what I could carry without packing. I ran, as fast as my lungs could carry me. I made it back to my ute. I floored it, not stopping until I reached a rest stop area a couple of hours down the road. And then I remembered my camera, checking it, hoping beyond hope that I saw something to explain this. But just as my perception had been when witnessing that thing, the photos were corrupted. Every single one of them that I'd taken when I was out there. It's impossible for me to explain what it was that I saw. It goes beyond physical comprehension. Every time I think I remember how it looked, a different image takes its place. 
I can't tell people what it was, no matter how much I wish I could. And I don't care what it was, because I know how dangerous it is, and I will never go back there. My best description I can give you is imagine the Google artificial imaging with all the different animals and eyes staring back. When I try to process it, my mind gets so busy and I immediately feel exhausted. So I just keep it to myself. I've told some friends and family who laugh and say nice try. I ignore this. I wish I knew exactly what it was. I've never experienced anything like it to this day. I've done research and found nothing. The closest I've come to anything similar are those missing 411 files where people go missing mysteriously. Maybe there's a correlation. Maybe there's not. But I do know that I may have almost met a similar fate to them. If my phone had not vibrated when it did, I never would have been seen again. The Shifting Paintings From John Kinnex When I was 13 to 14 years old, my school was haunted, but I was the only one who seemed to pay attention to it. The school had four levels, the loft or the abandoned floor, the third floor, the second floor, and the ground floor. On every floor there were four bathrooms, and two of those were pretty big, while the other two were always much smaller. In each of the bathrooms there were some pretty ugly paintings. The larger bathrooms had two of these paintings, one on the walls opposite of each other. The smaller bathrooms had only one on the main wall. Well, there were two designs of the vase and flowers, and each of the larger bathrooms had one of each. Now, these were pretty heavy paintings because they were made of metal. I did say they were ugly after all. One day I walked into one of the ground floor bathrooms was a particularly average day. I noticed then that one of the paintings had been shifted across the wall to a completely different position. It had been hung directly perpendicular to the other one, but it was now at a lower level and placed differently. I didn't think too much of this until I realized that the place it had originally been was completely devoid of any markings showing where that painting had been which should have been physically impossible. Over the next month, I realized that that particular painting was constantly changing places, and there were still no markings that it was at any spot, no nail marks, no dust shapes, no handprints, nothing of the sort. I began visiting other bathrooms, having been creeped out by that one, but it was happening in each of them, Paintings switching places multiple times. I ended up climbing onto the sink to check for any sort of marks or anything, but there were none whatsoever, despite the paintings being hung with a nail. No matter how many times they shifted, there were no new marks or new nail holes. It didn't make sense. There wasn't even any trace that someone had filled in the holes that could have been made. It was all still fresh and unscathed brick. I have no idea how I'm the only one who's noticing all this, but maybe I'm going crazy. 
The Horned Flying Serpent, from For the Lack of a Better Username. This happened on June 13th of 2019 in Toronto. It was a cloudy, rainy afternoon. While I was running on a treadmill, I was looking out at the sky through the glass window of the gym. I noticed a huge flapping wing starting to appear from behind the clouds. And soon enough, I could make out the entire shape of some animal. At first, I told myself that I was just looking at a very, very big bird. But the more I looked at this thing, the more I realized that this was something far stranger than that. There were no feathers on this creature, and instead the texture of the wings looked similar to that of a bat. I got off the treadmill and moved closer to the window to get a better view. The creature had a brownish color and something resembling horns. I would estimate the size of this animal to be between 15 to 20 meters long. Suddenly, I heard a female voice cry around me. What is that? Oh my god. The girl exercising on the treadmill next to me was now standing by the window too, looking out at the sky. Eventually, there were about five or six people looking at this thing, wiggling in the sky while flapping its broad wings. It eventually flew higher and disappeared behind clouds once again. As people do, they began to offer various explanations, like holograms and kites. Whatever it was, though, it looked very real. The most disappointing part was that none of us even tried to capture a video or photo of it, and just imagine the headlines if we had. Well, it looks like bringing a camera and filming or photographing these strange creatures and odd entities doesn't always work out. For one, you have to remember to get that camera going, and two, that's assuming the creature is even able to be photographed or recorded. These entities defy logic, and that's what makes them so terrifying. Sadly, they may always be a mystery. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story that you want to share with us, and possibly have it narrated, go to darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit and share it with us today. If you want to support the show, check the links in the description. You can donate on my Patreon, shop for some creepy clothes on my store, or even sign up for Acorn via my referral link, and we both get five bucks. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous full episode, titled, Why I'm Too Scared to Go Hunting, Three Real Werewolf Sightings. Psycho says, Geez, I was quick. I just dropped everything to show up. Well, it was a werewolf video, and your profile picture is a wolf, so I definitely believe that. And I don't blame you, because werewolves are awesome. Jerrica Hacking says, Darkness, if you don't choose my comment this time, I'm turning into a werewolf and I'm going to eat you. Thank you for the video. Well, joke's on you, Jerrica. I'm in Devor. So just try to eat me and let's see who gets awkward first. Patrick Cutrone says, 
One of these days I'll be featured in a Fave Commons recap that Darkness does at the end of every vid. One of these days. Hmm. If I had to give some advice, I'd say dress up in a werewolf costume in the middle of the night and have someone taking pictures or videos of you, spooking people. Just don't hurt yourself. Oh, look at that. I just featured your comment. Werewolf1231 says, I can't miss this video. Well, I wouldn't think so, Mr. Werewolf. And Yeeter Yang says, help me please. Same, Yeeter. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're awesome people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Stay tuned for a special offer that's basically free food. Also, before I start, I want to give a quick word. I appreciate everyone giving me their opinion on submissions with overused phrasing, but I need to apologize for my negative view on this. After seeing your opinion, I agree that certain circumstances and phrases are required and important to these stories and should not be seen negatively. But a few people took this as me saying I'm telling you what to write. That could not be further from the truth. Write what you want. I simply want submissions to follow the rules on my submission site, to be thoughtfully written, and avoid clichés that could make your unique encounter indistinguishable from others. Hear me out. Wanting well-written stories does not mean I'm telling you what to write, and it most certainly does not mean I don't appreciate what you send me. But when I'm only one guy, and so many people write stories, a lot of which write them in a rush, write them without any concern of quality, or even send in troll stories, which I have to deal with a lot, actually. It gets tiresome, but most of all, it doesn't just affect me. It affects it for everyone who sent a story, the thousands of people who are still waiting to hear theirs narrated, and would have to wait even longer to be heard. I am just trying my best to share your stories with the world as effectively and quickly as I can. I appreciate each and every one of you who takes the time to share your story with us. Thank you. Now, today I have six allegedly true scary stories, featuring the cutest little good boy church grim you've ever heard of, a man who's made of plastic, and a man with no eyes. Prepare yourself for a very odd episode. And don't forget, you can send your stories to me at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. Now, let's begin. The Plastic Man from Ike, Inc. I'm a hard-working painter painting houses for a living inside and out. In all the places I've worked, one particular job order stuck out. It was mid-March, a sort of perfect time for painting house exteriors, if it didn't rain or snow. Yes, snow. 
Welcome to Utah. Anyway, I received a job order to paint an exterior of a somewhat tall house in a new neighborhood. Skip a few days, I was finishing up on painting one of the bigger exterior walls, cleaning up the trash, and gathering up the supplies I used on that day. As I was picking up the last of the trash, I was suddenly feeling a sort of panic and dread. Confused, I thought, why is this happening to me? Why am I feeling like this? I stopped for a moment to gather myself and stood there, reminding myself that I was just tired and the heat could be getting to me. Just then, a small gray car pulled up in the front of the house, in front of me, in fact. As I looked at the car, I noticed that the windows were tinted, so I couldn't see the driver. The feeling of panic and dread soon was stronger than before, and this car was giving off those vibes. But why? It didn't make sense yet. Suddenly, the passenger window slid down, and I was shocked at what I saw. There was a man there, wearing a big smile on his face, and looking at me, with empty, completely fogged-over eyes. What disturbs me more, even to this day, is that his facial features looked polished and generic, like a Ken doll or a mannequin. My heart was racing at this point. I wanted to say something to him, but I couldn't. I tried to get a word out somehow, but nothing came out except for some awkwardly heavy breathing. The man then giggled, but the sound that came out was not from a grown man and sounded more like a five- or six-year-old child. It sounded distorted and monotone, too. The man then leaned forward, looking up at me, then giggled again. When he did this, I saw more of his face. Still, his face looked so generic and plastic. His features didn't really stick out, as in they didn't look unique or different. I then noticed that his skin was shiny, not the kind of shiny where you put oil on your skin, but more like the way a plastic product looks in light. I wanted to run, but I was paralyzed, even intrigued by this. I thought that if I moved too fast, though, that this inhuman thing would get out of the car and attack me. After what felt like hours, the plastic man then leaned back into the car and looked forward, now motionless with that big smile still frozen on his face. He gave me a small grin and then winked before sliding the window back up and driving away. As soon as he was gone, I was breathing heavily again. It was like I had run a marathon. I was still trying to process what I saw. Who was he? Why did he look like that? And why did he have to stop right here and torment me? As I asked myself these things, I finally relaxed, taking a deep breath and then exhaling. I then packed up and went home. Still, the experience was on my mind. The next few days after that, nothing happened, and the car did not show up again. I was relieved by this. 
because to this day the experience still disturbs me. Even writing it down now gives me goosebumps. I have never been more confused and terrified. I can only pray it was some cruel and unusual prank, because if it wasn't, uh, reality just doesn't make sense to me. Walgreens Stalker from Montesanti When I was 17 years old, I was a beauty advisor at my local Walgreens. I really loved the job. It was one of my first, and I actually enjoyed it as a teenager. I got along with everyone great, and I worked as hard as I could. There was one problem, though. There was this one guy I worked with who was a very pushy person and somewhat of a creep. I was stocking shelves one night, and while I was on a tall ladder, I had this urge to turn around, and there at the bottom of the ladder was the creepy guy just staring up at me, not even moving. I looked at him and he didn't even react. He just kept on staring. I was young and ignorant, so I didn't think much of this. I brushed it off, as people say. Not to mention I didn't like to judge people. I'd like to say here that I was not a good judgment of people's character. A few nights later, I was outside to walk home when Creepy Guy insisted on giving me a ride. I kept telling him no, and that I appreciated the offer, but he kept on insisting. He wouldn't stop asking no matter what I said or did. I was really tired, and I was a pushover, so I finally just said, fine. I got in his car and he drove me home, but he ended up leaning for a kiss before I got out. I told him sorry, but I didn't feel the same way. I thanked him for a ride and got out. The next night, Mom came to pick me up from the job. I had bought a couple of different colors of nail polish, and before I left, Creepy Guy came over to introduce himself as my boyfriend and began complaining to my mom about all the nail polish I was buying. What the hell was his problem? As I wanted to avoid any more confrontation, I just wanted to go home, so I told my mom I would meet her in the car. Things would only get creepier at work with this guy, and I did tell my mom on the way home that he definitely wasn't my boyfriend. That same night, I was downstairs looking at my old MySpace on the computer, when I heard something fall on the deck in the backyard. When I turned around to look, expecting anything but what I saw, there was Creepy Guy's face peering in through my tiny basement window. I ran upstairs screaming, all while hearing more deck furniture crashing around on the deck. I ran upstairs to tell my mom about it. We all got into my sister's bedroom to hide from the guy, and as we headed to her bedroom... My mom and I see Creepy Guy's hands and face. He had begun cutting a hole through my bedroom screen window. He knew where my bedroom was, so I could only guess that this wasn't his first time at my house. We called the police. My mom yelled out that they were on the way, and I was hoping that that would be enough to scare him away. I think it did, because when the police arrived... 
the found-only footprints on the deck under my bedroom window, as well as the pocket knife he had been using to cut his way in. Unfortunately, charges could not be pressed, because Creepy Guy's father was somehow politically involved. I ended up quitting my job instead, trying to get away from this creepy guy. I wish I could say that that's where the story ends, but that would be a lie. I'm severely dyslexic, which made it a nightmare to get my driver's license. So I didn't get my license until I was in my mid-twenties, and I signed up for a local driving school. They didn't give me the name of the driving instructor. I was just happy to be working towards getting my license. When the first day of class came around, a small tan car pulled into the parking lot. I eagerly run out to the car to start my first driver's lesson. I noticed the instructor didn't move from his seat or move or look over to me. But I did notice that he was wearing a hat with dark glasses and a big jacket. Right away, this was odd. It was a clear, sunny, and extremely hot day. I ignored it. I gladly took the wheel and said hi. My driving teacher didn't really talk much, so I started driving, remembering all the things that I had learned and trying my best at every second to drive perfectly. At one point, I'm about two miles away from home, but I'm feeling pretty awkward because the guy still hasn't talked yet. I was wondering what the heck was going on. The driving teacher took his glasses off, and his hat, then looked at me, saying, Hey, remember me? We used to work at Walgreens together. My heart sank. I could feel tears welling up in my eyes. It was the creepy guy. I tried my best to play it cool, saying, Oh, I don't remember. But then the nerve of this guy... He started bringing up the night he tried to break into my room. He was explaining that he didn't want to hurt me. He didn't mean to scare me. My ears were burning red at this point. I told him it's all water under the bridge, still trying to play it cool. I just wanted to defuse his emotion. I began heading back to my house at this point, and Creepy Guy goes on to tell me about his life now, how he's in school how he can't tell the difference between a girl's and boy's bathroom. Whatever. I just keep driving. I pull up to my house, but before I can get out, he locks the doors. Then he says, Can't wait to see you for our next lesson. I unlock the door and just run out of the car. I never went back to that driving school ever again. And I'm terrified that I'll see him again somewhere. Now, a quick word from a very tasty sponsor. How hungry are you right now? Cause it's 4pm where I live and I just had a beef stick and a coffee and I still need more. But I have to finish this episode. But luckily I don't have to do anything. Because I'm still signed up to HelloFresh, the awesome meal kit delivery service. HelloFresh lets you cook delicious homemade food without having to go shopping. Recipes are quick, yummy, taking only around 30 minutes to make. Every week you get to pick from an extravagant menu of meals to choose from out of 17 seasonal chef-curated recipes. And HelloFresh is crazy flexible. 
They have family plans, vegetarian plans, and more to fit your lifestyle, and you can change anytime you want. I'll be honest with you, HelloFresh is one of my favorite sponsors ever on this channel. It's a joy to promote things that I actually use and can actually recommend. I mean, just last night my wife and I had the best spaghetti and meatballs we've ever had, and it came from our HelloFresh delivery. Let's just say zucchini with spaghetti is truly top-tier fooding. So stop missing out and help out the show. Get 80 bucks off your first month of HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com DPP80 and using code DPP80. That's HelloFresh.com DPP80 and code DPP80 to get 80 bucks off your first month. That's like eight free meals. So happy eating. Thanks, HelloFresh. Now with full bellies, let's get back to the show. Nighttime Wanderer from M. Jean Romeo This is a story that happened to me when I was around eight or nine years old. For a bit of background, at the time I was living in a large four-bedroom house with my dad and brothers. Back then, my siblings and I had a habit of switching bedrooms. They were all pretty similarly sized and decorated, the only differences being the color of the carpet. I usually slept in the second room down the hall, as it was a wee bit larger than the other rooms, and the shape gave me ample room to play with toys and mess around, as kids do. However, one night I decided I wanted to sleep in the next bedroom over. It was smaller and closer to the bathroom, with a view that overlooked the houses behind it. I had just been tucked into bed and bade goodnight by my dad. Usually, he always left the door open a crack, but on this night, he had accidentally shut the door all the way, something he did on occasion without really thinking. Back then, I was deathly afraid of the dark, due to a prior, creepy experience in the house, in a room I would no longer enter, but that's a different story. I sat there for several minutes, debating with myself whether to just go to sleep and be a big girl or get up and open the door. Eventually, I felt my fear went out, and with a small whimper, I got up out of bed and headed over to the door to open it and set it ajar. Just as I was about to reach for the door handle, I heard a sound outside. Thump. It sounded as if something had fallen down outside my door. My hand was hovering in the air still at this point, and I let it drop to my side. I gulped nervously and continued to listen. Thump. Thump. The two thumps were accompanied by the sound of squeaking floorboards. I felt a sense of relief, believing it was just my dad outside the door, moving something around. It was only 7.30 p.m. after all, well before my parents usually went to bed. Feeling a little bit braver, I turned the handle and opened the door, only to find no one there. I stuck my head out of the doorway, looking down both ends of the hallway, and he was nowhere in sight. I felt tears begin to prick at my eyes as I shouted for my dad, screaming that someone was outside my door. Dad came running up the stairs and down the hallway, brandishing a rolling pin of all things. He searched the whole house as I cowered in my brother's room 
and of course he didn't find anything. All the doors and windows were securely locked. Even my dad, my intelligent, no-nonsense dad, was spooked by this. For a week or two after this, we slept in the same room, so that dad could keep an eye on us. This wasn't the last experience I had at that house, and I was so grateful when we finally moved out a year and a half later. Even now, I am still terrified by the memories of that place. Graveyard Puppy From Mythology Loves Horror If you grow up in England, there's a story that you'll hear. One of those old legends that's all but died out in our modern era. It isn't popular anymore, but the tale of the church grim still gets whispered around the fires at night and told in hushed tones to curious children. While it isn't as bloody or monstrous as some stories, its power comes from how real it is. The church grim is a type of spirit that oversees the welfare of the church where it was buried. It helps protect the churchyard. Whenever a new graveyard was built, it was believed that the first person buried there had to spend eternity guarding the other souls. So in order to prevent a human from shouldering this burden, a stray black dog was sacrificed. When I was eight years old, my grandma shared this knowledge with me, which had been passed down from her family who came to the United States from Europe. I'm now ashamed to admit it, but back then I didn't believe her. I called her a liar to her face, too, and I told her that ghosts aren't real. I remember how sadly she looked at me, and now I wish I had trusted her words. One night, not long after I turned seventeen, I was coming back from my boyfriend Max's house. A thick blanket of dark clouds had gathered that night, and I was hurrying along so that I wouldn't get caught in the storm. Fog had started to creep across the ground, and I was trying not to trip, when I heard a hurt-sounding whimper. I followed the noise until I was at the gates of our town's graveyard, which nearly made me decide not to go in. You see, there had been a string of murders in the area lately, and as I didn't have any form of protection on me, I didn't want to be alone any longer than necessary. Then the sound came again. My heart twisted. I couldn't just ignore an animal that was in trouble, so I took a nervous breath and pushed open the wrought iron gate. I cringed as the hinges squealed, but I continued forward. I called out quietly to the dog as I weaved among the headstones, but in the gathering fog, my phone's flashlight was not doing me much good. I thought I saw its eyes glinting once, but it was just the glassy eyes of a doll leaning up against a headstone. I was about to abandon my search, especially since my sneakers were beginning to soak through, when I saw a little black puppy... It was curled up next to an unmarked headstone in the furthest corner of the graveyard, and even from ten feet away I could see the poor thing shivering. I called out to it, and I smiled as it perked its ears up towards me. My voice carried the excited tone that most dogs loved, but the puppy hardly seemed to acknowledge me. 
I moved in closer, and when it didn't try to run away, I gently scooped it up. It let out another whimper, and I began to check it over for injuries. As I was examining it, I noticed that it was wearing a raggedy old collar with a tag, and apparently its name was Kirk. He seemed fine, and he had even given my hand a friendly, tentative lick. My plan was to take the poor thing home. Then tomorrow I could figure out who it belonged to. He gave me a happy little woof, and I could almost believe that he understood me as I spoke my plans for him out loud. I was about to turn around and head for the gate when Kirk jumped out of my arms. His hackles were raised. I didn't see anything, but I heard the sound of hushed voices. Quickly, I shut off my light, moving quietly over to a large gravestone to try and conceal myself. I paused, careful not to make a sound, and I panicked as I caught pieces of the conversation. Are you sure she's there? Yeah, definitely saw her light. When we catch her, gotta make sure she... Then slit her. Slice her up just like... That was all I was able to hear, but it was enough. I needed to leave, and I frantically tried to get Kirk's attention. He wouldn't turn his head, though, and his hackles were slowly raising even more. I was starting to shake, but before I could move to pick him up, he began to growl. Kirk, I said. I was still down on my knees, my hand outstretched, when Kirk's growl deepened into that of an adult dog. I couldn't really see him that well without my flashlight, but as I watched, the level of his eyes seemed to begin to rise. Then he let out a bone-chilling howl, and he bounded out of sight, and I could have sworn he was much bigger than when I found him. A moment or two later, one of the men let out a surprised shout, and within seconds, I could hear anguished screams and violent snarls. A gun fired and I was scared that Kirk was hurt. But the next thing I knew, the men screamed, and the sounds of rapid footsteps began to leave the cemetery. I turned the flashlight back on, not caring about hiding when I fully believed that I would be fleeing soon, but I instantly regretted my decision. There sat Kirk, sitting before me. His mouth was bloodied, and he was just as tiny as before. I was afraid, but for some reason I felt perfectly safe in picking him up and hugging him close to me. It wasn't him I was afraid of, and I couldn't help but say thank you through a few tears. After he nudged his head against mine, I set him back down, and still trembling, I carefully made my way out of the cemetery. The whole way Kirk followed me, up to the point that I crossed the threshold at the gate. When I did, I turned back, and Kirk was gone. I knew then that my grandma had been right all along. The church grim are real. I thoroughly believe that now, and no matter how scary they may appear, they're only there to protect the graveyards. And if you don't mean any harm, you've got nothing to worry about. The Telltale Bark from Marissa
This isn't necessarily the type of story that might keep you up at night. However, I was amused by it, and I knew I had to share. I live in a rural town in Texas. We have quite a mixture of characters here. For instance, old Mr. Miller, who was an exceptionally odd man, to say the least. A loner and a bitter man, Miller wasn't someone you'd want to give a smile or even a polite wave to, because you'd never know how he would react. He lived by himself and raised cattle to be sold for their meat. Everything in town was business as usual, until something indescribably tragic began to happen. One by one, most of the dogs in town started to get very sick and die inexplicably. No one could figure out what was causing such a thing. People were talking to one another about it, as there was no explanation yet. Even the local vet, at that time some twenty years ago, could not find any answers. One day, old Miller was at the local feed store and happened to let the word slip. Damned kids and their dogs. Keep messing with my cows. Won't be a problem much longer. Well, that's all it took. A couple of the locals started watching him a little closer, following him even, waiting to see if he was indeed to blame for the horrible situation. Sure enough, a guy I'll call James and a few of his friends saw Mr. Miller drop a piece of meat out of his old pickup truck, where two dogs happened to be lying out under some shade. James and his friends ran as fast as they could to intercept it, and Miller drove off like a bat out of hell. Turns out that crazy old man was putting cyanide inside the meat and feeding it to the dogs. Here's where the amusing part of the story comes into context. James's dad had a unique way of mimicking a dog's bark, and would often mess with his son's friends by sneaking up behind them and barking in places where no dog should be. It was all in good, weird fun, I suppose. After discovering who was to blame for the deaths of so many people's dogs, James's dad decided to give old Miller a call. Only, instead of saying a solitary word, he, you could probably guess it, he barked over the phone to the sound of nothing but silence on the receiving end. He did this every few nights, until Mr. Miller got the message. Never again did another dog meet the fate of old Mr. Miller and his demented ways. The Man with Empty Eye Sockets From Mariah Singer I'm 24 years old and live in Missouri. When I was about 3 or 4 years old, my mom's stepdad and I went up to St. Louis to visit my stepdad's sister and her family. I don't remember much about what we did that day, but I do remember almost every detail of that night after everyone went to bed. My stepdad had a room upstairs next to my stepcousin's rooms. My aunt and uncle had a room on the main level, and my mom and I were in the living room on the main level. In the living room, there were two couches that faced each other with a coffee table in the middle. I was on one couch, and my mother was on the other, snoring away. Being in a place that wasn't my own bed, I found it hard to sleep. While lying down, I eventually started playing with a stuffed animal I had, 
I was playing with it for a few minutes when it happened. Suddenly, I had a terrible feeling someone was watching me. It was extremely strong, and unlike anything I've ever experienced, it shot fear right through me and made me feel panicked. I looked straight up since that's where I felt it was coming from, and what I saw will forever haunt me. There was an eerie-looking man in some kind of uniform looking straight down at me, smiling. But what scared me most were his eyes, which were just empty black sockets. He looked evil. I would find it hard to believe that a good spirit would manifest this way. I gasped, pulling the covers over my head. I remember shaking and sweating as I thought to myself, this isn't right. This isn't right. After a few minutes, I finally got the courage to peek from behind my blanket and found nothing. The man was gone. I jumped up and ran over to the couch my mom was on. I shook her, trying to get her awake. I remember frantically whispering to her, Mommy, Mommy, there's a man standing over me. In her half-asleep state, she told me it was just a dream, and that I needed to go back to bed. I curled up on the couch next to her, as best I could, and I looked around. I could still feel someone watching me, but I could no longer see anyone there. So I pulled the covers over my head and softly cried, until I could no longer stay awake. I'm 24 now. I'm not sure what I saw back then. My only guess is that it was some kind of negative spirit lingering around the house. My step-aunt's husband was an alcoholic, so I wonder if the spirit was attracted to his lower vibration. But why would a spirit manifest itself like that, to a little girl of all people? Why would it have empty eye sockets? I'm not sure. I just don't want to see anything like that ever again. Life-size dolls, cutest little puppies, and helpful co-workers. Today's episode was awfully heartfelt. It just goes to show you that the world is creepy, always, at all times, no matter what you do or say. Sorry, and good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you want to hear your story in a future episode, share it with us at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. If you want to support the show, be sure to help our sponsors out by clicking the link below and using code DPP80 to get $80 off your first four boxes of HelloFresh. Or you can try the other links below in the description to support me on Patreon, buy some of my merchandise, or start investing with acorns, which helps me out too. Now as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous video titled, Never Go Camping Alone, Five True Wilderness Scary Stories. Rain says, more like never go camping, stay inside your home. Well, if I stay inside all day, how can I go camping in the rain? Jaren Kaiser says, never go camping alone, huh? Does Jack Daniels count? Uh, I feel like there's a whole world of alcohol jokes that I'll never understand. I think my dad always telling me when I was a kid that beer tasted like pee 
has completely turned me off alcohol. No need, says. New drinking game. Take a shot every time the woods go silent. Makes it easier for me to catch you when you're in my woods. There's no need for me to take a shot for you to find me in your woods without clothes. Shady Dawn Pictures says, I could see that phrase, the woods went silent, being annoying, but that being said, in the situation, I'm pretty sure that would be something that would stand out and stick with you. Just look at it from another form of so-and-so, or let's not meet. I can definitely agree now, but I also think there's a lot we could be missing, besides that circumstance. I mean, surely there's more to describe than simply the woods going silent. For example, the woods going still. Sometimes you see those descriptions together, but more often than not, you see just the whole quiet part. But what would be really freaky is how still the woods get. It would feel like you're in a painting, a creepy painting at that, when something was about to happen. Basically, give me more description, then I'll be happy. And Bailey O'Donnell says, Why does everyone run away from me? I don't think that has anything to do with the video, and I hope you find a friend one day, Bailey. If we run into each other, I'll give you a hug. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're great people. Remember, stay safe out there and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. I have this weird thing where I want to lose myself in the woods somewhere, trying to survive on my own for a while. Does anyone else feel this way? Well, before I give in to that desire, and before you do too, and we all wind up lost forever or washed up lifeless on the riverbank, I'm going to have to convince us that it isn't a good idea. So what better way to convince someone that a certain place is a bad place to visit than to show them the most horrifying things that have happened there. In this case, these are real-life horrors in the woods. Enjoy these stories, and be sure to share your own at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. Cries of the Night from Stephanie G. This is a story from New Mexico, specifically at the Oasis State Park. With that said, my family lives about 15 minutes away from there. We had planned to go camping at the Oasis, but we were not going unprepared. So after some steady yet careful preparation, the time for the trip comes. We arrive and set up camp, putting our tent in the back of the truck because of the fear of rattlesnakes on the ground sneaking up on us in the night. Across the road from our campsite was a trail leading to the bathrooms and a pond. Now you should know during the 70s and 80s, Oasis State Park was the home to a satanic cult that held rituals or whatever you would call it on these grounds. 
the cult would practice rituals with animal sacrifices, too. Law enforcement ended up having to get involved, forcing the cult members out of the park. Now, back to our story. After setting up camp and walking down to the pond to do some fishing, we came back just to relax. We enjoyed the scenery and wildlife. We watched as tiny lizards scurried about on the campsite floor. They were fast, too. As evening approached, we could hear coyotes howling in the distance. But as it grew late into the night, we heard the sound of crying. This did not sound like normal crying. It sounded somehow like a woman and a child crying together in unison, like their two voices were harmonized. It was constant, and it didn't take a breath either. The sound of the crying just kept going and echoing throughout the forest. For safety reasons, or paranoid reasons, we decided to sleep in the truck. The following day, everything seemed fine. We had a great time, making several trips to the pond and back, enjoying the scenery and wildlife as before. That evening, we sat down and enjoyed some YouTube and podcasts while relaxing. Again, we began to hear the coyotes howling in the distance. It was eerie, but relaxing, if that made sense. By 1 a.m., there was a dog barking in the campsite next to us. You could hear crickets chirping in the distance, as well as a light breeze picking up. Then immediately, in under half a second, all of those sounds stopped. For a few minutes, there was nothing but silence. But that silence was soon broken by a growl. We grabbed our flashlights in a hurry, shining them across the road to where the growling was coming from. But all we saw were still trees. It grew quiet again, until the growling erupted once more in a different spot across the road. We moved the beams of our flashlights in a jittery pursuit, and finally we spotted it, a tall, pale figure. Do you see that? Do you see that? I asked my spouse, panicking. See what? She was just as scared, but I don't think she saw the figure that I did. There's a figure in the trees. Where? I don't see it. Over there. I point when I looked back to where the figure was, but it wasn't standing there anymore, and I can't exactly describe it further than that. I was not wearing my glasses at the time, and all I could see was how tall it was. It was human-shaped, and it was quite pale. I looked at my wife. Do you think we should go home? My voice trembling. She nodded, and we then performed the fastest camp pack-up in history, throwing stuff in the back of the truck in the tent, just trying to get the heck out of there. As my spouse was putting the spare tire into the tent, she stopped and looked towards the trees across the road again. She looked into the exact spot that I'd seen the figure. I asked, Are you okay? But she said nothing, save for eventually telling me to get in the truck. I listened, and we hauled Tell out of that park. When we were on the highway, my spouse turned to me and asked, do you want to know what I saw? 
Of course, I said, worried about her. There was some figure, tall, lightly skinned, and I think it had horns on its head. But I can't be sure. Maybe it could have been branches, but they looked so similar to horns that that would be a major coincidence. I don't think I want to come back here, at least for a while. I agreed. I was too terrified to even consider coming back there, even during the day. Whatever that was, it did not look or sound friendly. I mean, it was growling at us. And I don't think anything we had on us at the time would have done much good if it came down to a fight. Beware of Oasis State Park, and whatever that is that lurks inside. A Sound in the Dark Part 1 From Mr. Smith This is a pretty long one, and it's been nearly a year since it happened, but I will do my best to recount every detail that I can remember. This is the story of the days and weeks leading up to a moonlit October night in the rural heartland of the southeastern U.S. But before I begin, there are a few things you should know. My family has owned a moderately sized farm in a very rural county for six generations, and we have all sorts of strange stories and family lore about the land. I'd love to share more, but for now I'll focus on this story. Just know that this farm has a history of peculiar happenings. My grandfather had passed away suddenly while I was completing my senior year of college, and my father had recently moved out of state for his job, taking my mother with him. This left me as the only immediate family member in any position to manage the land. So as soon as I finished my exams and made my proud walk across the stage for my diploma, I packed up all my belongings into the truck and headed home. I have to admit that it was pretty nice to be back in my old hometown, even though lots of little things had changed. However, by far the strangest thing I came back to was the old farm. Even though I had spent a huge portion of my childhood running around the orchards, swimming in the creek, and hunting deer and turkey in the woods and hayfields of that farm, I'd never actually lived there. So it felt strange indeed to be coming home to that house. Moving in was at least fairly easy, as the house was practically empty. There wasn't even a clock left on the wall or a single potted plant left on the porch. I might be easily spooked, but I have to admit, the emptiness made the place a little creepy, especially combined with the isolation. The driveway to get to the farmhouse is about half a mile long, and the nearest neighbors are close enough to hear a gunshot, but not close enough to hear a call for help. To make matters worse, apparently while I was away, a serious coyote population had moved into the area. On clear and calm evenings, I could hear at least five different packs of coyotes raising cane all over the area. They're not usually a real threat to humans, but they can carry some nasty diseases, and their howling is certainly an eerie sound to hear on a dark and foggy night. 
Nevertheless, I have to admit that life was good. I'd gotten a job at a local machine shop that paid well enough to make ends meet, and also gave me a little bit of pocket money to spare. Meanwhile, I was using my free time and money to fix up the farm. I repaired fence lines, trimmed the long-neglected orchards, and put up new tree stands at a few choice places around the property. I even rekindled a high school romance with a nice local girl who now owned her own business in town. Like I said, life was good. Things didn't start to get weird until around September, but boy, did they get weird real quick. It began one evening very early in September, which is still really summertime in my area. The sun had gone down, but it wasn't completely dark yet, and I had just finished picking the first autumn apples in one of the orchards. I was unpacking the baskets from the back of my truck, enjoying the coolness of the evening after the long, hot day, when I noticed an unfamiliar sound. What was strange about it was that I couldn't really tell you when it started, because it wasn't sudden or really even that noticeable. It's hard to describe, but I just gradually became aware that the evening wasn't as quiet as usual, and when I listened closely to it, I finally realized that there was a low, droning, and constant howl echoing across the landscape. Now, this wasn't the howl of a coyote or even a wolf. I've heard both of these before, and this was certainly something different. In fact, at first I didn't think it was an animal at all. It sounded more like the howl of wind through the old boards, or the sound that worn-out tires make when you go just the right speed on the interstate. I hadn't yet gotten around to hauling away some of the junk around the farmyard, so I figured that some old scrap must have been catching the wind just right to make the howl. Perhaps a piece of tin roofing or some rusted-out sheet metal. However, the noise continued to gradually grow louder, and that was when I noticed that there was no wind blowing at all, not even a slight breeze. At that point, I was beginning to feel uneasy, but still, there was nothing to be alarmed about, right? There wasn't any crashing footsteps or glowing red eyes staring out from the woods at me. I figured maybe it was the sound of some electric farm equipment on some of the neighbor's property. After all, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that some manufacturer makes an eco-friendly tractor that makes plenty of operating noise, but lacks the signature rumble of a diesel engine. By this point, I had finished unpacking my tools and the few buckets of apples from the truck, but the howling had actually become louder. It seemed to be coming from a stand of woods off to one side of the back fields, but it was hard to tell since all of the outbuildings have a tendency to bounce sound around quite a lot. Another thing that made the sound difficult to pin down was the low and constant nature of it. It was almost as though it simply hung in the air, rather than really coming from anywhere specific. I decided that I didn't really like trudging through the woods with a flashlight and a shotgun, and I figured that the truth would probably come out in the morning light. So I simply pulled my truck into the garage and headed inside. Nothing else happened that evening, but once I got inside the house, it finally hit me just how loud the howl had gotten. When I stepped inside and shut the door, my ears were ringing. The soft silence of the farmhouse seemed profound by comparison. Over the next two weeks, I noticed the howling a few more times, 
but I wasn't able to pin down any concrete pattern or cause and effect surrounding it. The one thing I noticed was that it always started at dusk, and it would usually happen after a night or two of intense coyote activity. The following day, the whole farm would be dead calm. I asked around with some of my neighbors, but none of them reported experiencing anything like what I described. Naturally, this was quite a concern to me, and I began to wonder, might I be developing hearing problems or something like that? Luckily or perhaps unluckily, this proved not to be the case. One night in late September, a friend of mine from college was passing through on his way to visit some family, so I let him crash at the farm with me for the night. I heard him coming up the long gravel driveway just past sundown, and I headed out onto the front porch to meet him. As soon as I stepped outside into the cool evening air, I noticed that the sourceless howling was rolling over the fields that night, but I decided to just ignore it for the sake of my friend. However, as soon as he got out of the car, his ears perked up, and he looked around suspiciously for a few moments. You hear it too? I asked him, suddenly relieved that I wasn't going crazy or developing tinnitus. Yeah, what is that? He asked nervously. I told him a few of my theories, but I confided in him that it was starting to spook me a bit, since it had been going on at random for nearly four weeks by now. We both eventually laughed about it, but we spent the rest of the evening indoors, except for the few times he went out onto the porch for a smoke. What's more, every time he would come back inside, he would shake his head and say, I guess it's still out there telling me that the howling has not stopped. After that night, the howling did not return for more than a week, and in the meantime, I busied myself with work at the machine shop. I was also putting all of my spare time into picking apples, plums, pears, pecans, and wild grapes. All the bounty of autumn, and a reward for a summer of hard work. Besides, it was hunting season, and it was high time to get back into the woods for a chance at a nice sight of venison. Now, I'd been tracking a small herd of deer back and forth across the property for a few weeks, and I'd gotten nice and comfortable in my tree stand in the early evening. I was scanning the fields for any signs of movement when I heard a lone coyote start to howl not too far away. Soon enough, a whole group of them had taken to barking and howling, and they were close, too. Their barks and yips drew closer and closer, coming from just beyond the tree line, about 400 yards ahead of me. I picked up my 35 caliber rifle, then looked through the scope, scanning the trees for any signs of movement. All of a sudden, two does and a very small buck leapt out of the trees and bounded across the field, moving swiftly across my firing line from right to left. They were on the very edge of my rifle's effective range, but I could tell that they were running from something. Sure enough, a few moments later, a group of four or five coyotes tumbled out of the brush in hot pursuit. It's rare for coyotes to be so aggressive, but when they have numbers on their side, nothing is off the table for them. The light was fading now, and as I watched through the scope, one of the deer began to fall behind the rest of the group. The coyotes were gaining on it rapidly, I considered firing into the air to scare them off, 
but I figured it wouldn't do anything with the pack all hopped up on adrenaline, so I decided not to waste the ammunition. However, as soon as the coyotes had the doe surrounded, and it looked like they were about to move in for an early supper, they suddenly stopped and began to yelp. All of them looked in the same direction and ignored the exhausted doe. At first, I was puzzled by this, but then I heard it. The low moaning howl had begun. It was barely audible, but it was surely there. The coyotes continued to yelp and bark, circling the doe nervously, but constantly looking across the field towards the opposite tree line. Almost like they weren't sure whether to flee and leave their prey alone, or ignore the howling and go in for the kill. The howling grew louder and louder, and the coyotes finally turned tail and ran back in the direction they'd come from, vanishing silently in the trees as the last of the evening light faded away. I peered through my scope and looked up and down the tree line that the coyotes had been fixated on just a few moments before, but in the inky darkness and rising mist, I could not see anything but the tangled shadows of sycamores and dogwoods. For just a moment, I thought maybe I caught a glimpse of movement, but I could not be sure in that gathering darkness. The howling continued for another half hour or so, and that whole time I stayed stone still in my tree stand. I was riveted to my seat in hopes of finally solving the mystery of the phantom sound, and I won't pretend that I wasn't a little bit scared to get down and walk across the fields, back to the house after what I'd just witnessed. But eventually, the rumbling of my stomach and the chill of the October air drove me back to the comfortable warmth of my house. That was not the last time I heard the howling. A Sound in the Dark, Part 2 Following that night in the tree stand, I was even more curious and on edge about the mysterious howl, but what could I do? I had checked every trail camera on the property and never seen anything out of the ordinary. A few deer, some coyotes, a neighbor's four-wheeler, a stray cat, and some raccoons and possums. Furthermore, on my regular rounds of checking the trees and fence lines, I had never found any suspicious tracks or trails. And every time I had ventured back into the woods, often going fairly deep, to track deer, I hadn't seen anything more than a few coyote signs in deer beds. The mystery was occupying my thoughts more and more, and I was glad for any distraction that came my way. So, when one of my neighbors knocked on the door, wanting help gathering honey from his beehives, I was happy to accept and distract myself. If you've never extracted honey... It's an intensive job that requires constant supervision to do right, so my neighbor and I had plenty of time to talk. Mostly we made small talk, but gradually the conversation shifted to something we both had in common, hunting. We talked about the bucks we had seen that year and the best recipes for the perfect deer jerky. He briefly mentioned how it used to be much harder to hunt around these parts due to a pretty prolific poacher. I had never actually heard this story, beyond a few snippets of local folklore, so naturally I inquired about the details. All of this apparently happened well before my time, way back in the late 1970s, and according to my neighbor, 
who was a good 45 years my elder for context. The deer population in this part of the county had all but been wiped out at the hands of one man. He would trespass on all the farmsteads in the area with impunity, and he would hunt year-round. On more than one occasion, the sheriff was called, but the investigation never got anywhere since the poacher was always long gone by the time the lawmen arrived. Nobody in the area knew the guy either, which led to the rumor that he must have come across the county line. Eventually, the poaching just stopped, and most of the locals figured the law had finally caught up to him. That is until my grandfather and my great-uncle stumbled upon an overturned tree stand on the edge of their land, now my land, with several spent casings scattered across the base. A few dozen yards away, they discovered a broken rifle that they both immediately recognized as belonging to that poacher. The police were called and a detective was sent to the farm. He asked my grandfather a few questions about the poacher and eventually pulled out a photograph, asking if this was the man in question. Sure enough, it was him, and when they told the detective as much, he informed them that the man was the subject of a missing persons investigation. About a month prior, he had simply fallen off the face of the earth. Police and canine units combed the area around the farm afterwards, but no trace of the man was ever found. The police eventually closed the missing persons case and ruled the man's death an accident. They reasoned that the man's tree stand had toppled over due to wind or uneven ground, and he had been mortally wounded in the fall. Maybe he had survived long enough to crawl away and had died of his wounds somewhere else, or maybe he had died on the spot and his body had simply been dispersed by scavenging animals. Of course, nobody around here actually believed that. The general consensus was that one of the locals had finally gotten fed up with his hijinks and decided to take matters into their own hands. But nobody could ever figure out who had done it, and no one ever came forward to talk about it, so the issue had quietly faded into obscurity. This story was one that I had heard referenced occasionally in passing by my grandfather, but I had never heard the tale in its entirety. Honestly, it made me think of the way the howling had scared off the coyotes in the middle of their hunt just a few nights before. It was as though they were familiar with the sound and only needed a warning to be afraid of it, perhaps thanks to a past experience. We didn't chat much more after that, and when we had finally sealed the last jar of honey, I quickly went on my way and hurried back to the farmhouse before nightfall. For close to twenty days after the night in the fields, things were mostly quiet. I had heard the howling one other time in the interim, but it had simply started around nightfall and lasted for about half an hour with no other weird occurrences to speak of. I remember the night of the final instance distinctly, because there was a bright, full, or very close to full, moon in the sky, and without it, I may not have been able to see what I witnessed that night. It was a cool and crisp Friday evening, and my girlfriend was staying with me at the farmhouse, as neither of us had work in the morning. We had spent the afternoon helping one of my neighbors put out decorations around her own farm, because she and her husband would be doing hayrides and a haunted trail that weekend. After all, Halloween was only a few days away. It just had to be the extra spooky time of year, didn't it? 
After that, we had returned to my place as the sun was beginning to set. We then worked all evening on a flurry of baking and home cooking, taking advantage of all the fresh fall produce. Anyway, after an afternoon of lugging hay bales and pumpkins and scarecrows all over my neighbor's property, as well as a hectic evening of cooking, we were both completely tuckered out. We headed to bed around 11 o'clock. The both of us were so exhausted that we fell asleep almost immediately. I woke up in the middle of the night. My watch on the bedside table said 2.20, and I was suddenly very awake. I wasn't sure yet what had awakened me, but I could tell right away that I was not going to be able to get back to sleep for a while. I didn't want to wake up my girlfriend, as she was still sound asleep, so I figured I would just get some water from the kitchen and find something to read until I was tired enough to fall back asleep. As I walked downstairs and into the kitchen, the pleasant scents of cinnamon and sugar and fresh fruits filled my nose and got me thinking of all the fine desserts I would be enjoying in the next few days. But as I held a glass under the faucet to fill it with water, I was snapped out of my daydreaming by the fact that, if I listened closely, I could hear the howling. By then, I might as well have had a cup of full-strength coffee because I was wide awake. The howling had never persisted so late into the night before, and it had never been so loud for me to hear it inside the house so clearly. I walked briskly to the parlor at the front of the house, and I noticed that the howling was even louder there. I have to admit, I was more than a little bit hesitant to open the blinds of the front window, scared of what might be awaiting me on the other side of the glass, my curiosity was stronger than my fear, though, and I quietly unfurled the blinds, letting the sapphire moonlight filter into the otherwise dark room. Thankfully, there was no mothman or werewolf waiting on the front porch, and as I scanned the yard and tree line, I was almost disappointed that there was no obvious source to the noise. However, as I looked closer, I spotted something I had missed at first glance. Sitting there in the driveway, so still as to be almost invisible, was the shape of a deer. If it weren't for the bright moonlight, I may have overlooked it completely. On closer inspection, several odd things stood out about the shape. It was not sitting like a deer usually does, down on its belly with its legs tucked underneath it. Instead, it was positioned more like a dog, sitting on its hind end with its rear legs tucked at its sides and its front legs supporting it as it leaned forward. Most strikingly, it had a magnificent crown of antlers, 14 points at least, but by contrast, its body was quite slender. It had so little meat around the middle of it that it really looked malnourished or emaciated. I stared at it for a few moments before coming to my senses, and when I thought more about what I was looking at, I realized that the poor thing must have been pretty badly hurt. With hunters in the woods flushing them out, they're far more likely to wander into the road. While deer are pretty tough animals, especially big bucks with 14-point racks, it's not uncommon for a deer to limp or drag itself away from the scene of an accident 
only to perish of starvation a few weeks later due to its injuries. I figured that the animal in the driveway had probably been hit on a nearby road a week or so ago and had broken its back legs, hence the gaunt appearance and strange posture. Furthermore, the responsible thing to do with such an animal is to grant it a quick and merciful death in order to keep it from suffering too much or from contracting diseases in its weakened state that it could transmit to other members of the herd or even people. With that in mind, I retrieved my 44 from the safe and loaded the cylinder before going back upstairs to warn my girlfriend. I didn't think she would exactly appreciate being awakened at 2.30 in the morning by the sound of a gunshot less than 50 yards from the house. I shook her awake gently and told her that a deer had been hit by a car and that I had to go out and put it out of its misery. She just groggily pulled a pillow over her head and said, tell me about it in the morning, before rolling over and going back to sleep. I made my way down to the front entrance, but as soon as I unlocked the heavy oak door and stepped out onto the front porch, I realized that something was very strange. The sound of the howling was extremely intense. It was as though I was in the middle of a tornado, and yet there was nothing more than a slight breeze blowing through the chilly evening air. The sound was so intense, it seemed to be pressed on my ears and reverberated in my chest, making me tense up and brace myself against its force. As I slowly inched closer to the deer shape, the howling grew louder and louder, and I began to notice a few more things about the deer in the driveway. I had initially observed the deer's thin body as a sign of malnutrition and starvation, but its ribs weren't sticking out or even really showing. It simply had a small and thin frame. From a closer perspective, I could also see that its fur was immaculate and glossy, without a single matted or bloodied patch anywhere. Certainly not what you'd expect of an animal that had been recently hit by a truck. I couldn't really make out the color of its fur in the brilliant silver moonlight, but I could very much tell that it was not the trademark tawny coat of your average whitetail. It had remained facing away from me the whole time, but as I drew closer to a distance of about fifteen yards or so, it turned its head to face me. Its head was the correct shape for a deer or elk, but where its face and eyes and nostrils and mouth should have been, there was nothing at all. Its head was simply covered in a featureless coat of fur matching the rest of its body. The howling was deafening now, and I was left with only one explanation. The creature was the source of the phantom howl that had hung over the farm for the past month, and I was face to face with it, or rather face to not face. I stared in a combination of awe and horror at the bizarre animal sitting before me, and I slowly lowered my hand to my side, finding the grip of my revolver. It's difficult to describe, but I could tell the creature was watching my hand, despite its lack of eyes. I left my hand on my gun, but made no effort to draw it from its holster or pull the hammer back. We simply stared at one another for several moments before the deer thing began to move. Effortlessly and gracefully, without making a single sound other than the constant howl. 
It stood up on two legs, rising to its full height in the brilliant light of the moon. It stood noticeably taller than me, making it comfortably over six feet tall, though that's not counting the considerable bulk of the antlers that rose still higher above its head. It had an ever-so-slight hunch to its stance, as though it split its time equally between standing upright and being on all fours. Its arms were very long and slender, ending in human-like hands. However, they weren't bony, gaunt, claw-like hands. They were delicate and graceful ones, like those of a young woman. Its legs were articulated like a deer's, and they ended in a pair of split hooves like a deer. But the structure of the legs was far more dense and muscular to support walking upright. As for me, I should have been pumping the thing full of lead or screaming or quaking in abject terror, but instead, I had actually begun to feel calm. There was a towering, faceless deer man standing less than 25 feet in front of me, but I was calm. It was then that I realized the howling had ended. The night air was tranquilly serene with no noise except for the slight rustle of the October breeze through the trees and bushes. I have no idea how long we stood there looking at each other, but finally the deer thing dropped back to all fours, turned calmly, and bounded off down the hill toward the fields. I followed it with my eyes for several moments, before it seemed to simply vanish into the silver light of the moon and the midnight mist rising from the damp grass. The next thing I remember was waking up the following morning, having slept soundly the entire night. I don't remember going back inside, and I was so at ease and well-rested that for a moment I thought the events of the night before were simply a dream, a fabrication of my stressed-out mind to give me some sort of fake closure. However, as I got out of bed, I saw that my revolver was lying on the nightstand beside it, and upon closer inspection, there were six unfired shells in the cylinder. Likewise, as soon as my girlfriend rolled over and saw that I was awake, she asked me what had happened to the wounded deer the night before. I told her that it must have been fine, since it had run off by the time I had gotten outside, which seemed a lot easier than recounting the full tale of the thing I saw in the early morning hours. After that night, I never heard the howling again, but to this day, coyotes don't often trespass on my land. I am not sure just what the thing I saw was, but I have my hunches. Way back in my family tree, the first of my family to own the land where the farm now sits, married a full-blooded Catawba woman, and he received the land as a part of dowry. Technically, this means that I'm part Native American, but the percentage for me is so small that I don't really identify with it at all. However, my grandfather was much closer to that part of the family's heritage, and when he taught me to hunt as a child, he always stressed to me the importance of giving thanks for the bounty of the land and properly respecting it. Have a good harvest of apples that you can't handle yourself? Leave some for the deer. Have more blackberries than you need? Leave those for the birds. Only take what you can take without harming the natural balance of the land. That sort of thing. My theory is that the thing I saw in that autumn night was a spirit, or a creature, or a guardian, 
something like that, which is tied to the land and keeps it in balance. It attacked those coyotes because they are invasive and destructive, and it may have very well been behind the disappearance of that poacher all those years ago. I'm not sure about why it disappeared after that night either. Maybe its work was just finished here. But I do know one thing for sure, that even though I haven't heard the howling or seen that thing in almost eight months, I know it's still out there. That being said, I'm not worried. My family has always cared for the land, and if the creature had wanted to harm me that night under the moon, I'm sure it could have. I've never told anyone else about this. I mean, who'd believe me? For now, though, things are calm, and with a little bit of luck, they'll stay that way for a long time to come. The Skinwalker in Canic Chase From JRG962 I know this may sound weird, but maybe there is a reasonable explanation. This took place in a wooded area known as Canic Chase. I was taking a hike there. Black-eyed children's stories are pretty common around here, and the place always gave off a creepy vibe. But still, this event took me off guard. I was alone during the afternoon, around 2 p.m. I was exploring, trying to get in some steps. I began to hear noises like twigs snapping, and soon I began to hear disembodied voices, which immediately sent chills up my spine. I began to power walk back to the edge of the chase, but I had two miles to go. I tried to put it down to rabbits or likely deer, but one thing wild critters out here could not do was snap their fingers, and that's what I began to hear next. Someone snapping their fingers together in the distance. I turned slowly to face the sound, and soon I saw a man. He seemed to look like a normal guy. His clothes were hiking gear, and he appeared to be smiling, although the rest of him looked very out of place, because his arms were longer than his legs, and his skin was torn almost, like a zombie in The Walking Dead. And then he reached out one of his hands and beckoned me to follow him. I reached behind me to grab my pocket knife. When I turned back to him, though, there was no longer a man there, but a deer. A big deer that rushed towards me and knocked me to the ground before racing away. I laid there frozen in fear before picking myself back up and forcing myself to run home as fast as I could. I thought it was over. I honestly assumed it was one of those terrifying one-off experiences that you share around a campfire. But that night, after I went to bed, I woke up to a strange sound, one that was at first comforting, and then the most horrifying thing I'd ever heard. It was my mother's voice, asking me to let her in just downstairs. I entered the hallway and checked the room near me, and my mother was still in bed. I ran back to my room and covered my head in my blanket, trying to ignore the sound. But the thing mimicking my mother's voice soon grew angry and let out a terrifying shriek 
that sounded more like a dog dying than my mother. I lay there all night, pretending to be asleep and hoping it was all a nightmare. Creature in the Woods from Cameron I live in a nice district called Rydland in Pataka, Kentucky. It was the usual night me and my best friend at the time, Austin, were about to sneak out of his house. I would always stay the night with him on the nights we would sneak out, just because it was easier at his place, and I wouldn't have to walk 30 minutes to meet up with him. We were both in high school at the time. He was a senior, and I was a sophomore. I always hung out with the older crowd my whole life. Anyway, we had snuck out to do the normal, mischievous things. We were walking around the neighborhood, which is by the Rydland Food Giant. As we were walking, we came to a bend in the road with about a three-acre field in front of it. Maybe more. It's been a long time since this happened, and I haven't really told anyone about this. I'm 27 now, married with three kids. Back to the story. We were coming up on the bend when we heard the loudest and most disturbing scream. Getting way too freaked out, we decided it would probably be best to head back already. Heading back to his room, we felt a bit safer, and we decided later to go back into the woods. You know how teen boys are. They may get creeped out for a moment, but around their friends, their bravery gets a little too high, especially if the two of them pump themselves up. We trekked back toward the woods, albeit going slower this time. We were maybe ten feet from the creek, just at the start of the wooded trail, when the scream came once more. It was almost at the same spot. We barely got much closer than last time, so it seemed to me like whatever was screaming was doing it on purpose, watching us, waiting for us to get in this exact spot. Maybe I was just paranoid, but I would soon have an answer to this. Instead of running back to the house this time, we both jumped at first, then stopped, holding our ground silently, waiting for the screeching to end. But the screaming kept going for so long, it defied all logic. That would be physically impossible for any animal to do. It screamed for about five or ten minutes straight. Once again, we decided to get the heck out of there. But what really scared the hell out of us was as we started to run back to the house, the scream exited the woods and began to pursue us. We exited the creek in the woods. We ran up a hill on the way to the house. When my friend's motion light came on, which was attached to his house, I could only barely make out a pale figure running at us. Only for a second. Because as quick as we could, we were diving back into his house and locking the doors. We were freaked out the entire night and didn't dare exit the house until sunrise. And personally... I didn't leave the house at night for another month. This put a damper on us sneaking out at all for a long time, and maybe it was a valuable lesson. Because there's something in the woods. Well, I hope you've learned your lesson now. 
And yes, I'm talking to myself too. Stay out of the woods at night, or if you're alone, or if you're unarmed, or if you plan to stay too long. Dang, just look at all these stipulations. If you're gonna go for a quick jog in a wooded trail, you might survive. But I can't guarantee that the rake himself won't run across your path and ask you for tree pity. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have your own story you want to share with us, submit it at darkstories.org or darknessprevails.org slash submit. If you want to support the show, check out my Patreon and donate, maybe, or explore my merchandise shop via the links below. Now, as usual, here are my five favorite early comments from the previous episode, titled, Five Terrifying Encounters with Supernatural Entities. If it sees you, you're already dead. Raging Reaver says, You have much swag. Boy, I got so much swag, it don't fit in my swag bag. We, we still use swag bags, right? Joshua Chalker says, Allergies are a supernatural entity. With no exaggeration, the amount of snot that comes out of my nose with allergies is supernatural. How do I not die of thirst when I have to blow my nose like 80 times an hour? The human body amazes me in the most irritating way. Casca Venom says, If it sees you, you're already dead. Bro, I just finished writing a dream I had down about my grandpa hiding with me and my sister from some clown entity. And he said, if it sees you, it will hunt you down until it gets you. And now I've been seeing lots of messages like this lately. Well, that's really, really creepy, and I hope that nothing comes of it. Because clowns are terrifying and no one likes being hunted down. Maybe you're just noticing things by coincidence. Then again, it may not be coincidence. Stay safe, Casca Venom, and if you need some anti-clown spray, let me know. Luke Skywalker Endor says, But if they see me, they're already dead. Darkness for life. Hmm, nice little turnaround to make it sound hardcore. If I say something like that, it really hides how afraid I am all the time, every day, and I can't sleep. And Mo asks, Hey Darkness, you got any more of them chupacabra stories? Do I have a hick accent that I have trouble hiding every day? Heck yeah, I do. But I always wait a little while, if I've already covered the topic recently. I don't want to annoy people with Wendigo, Skinwalkers, and Chupacabra every day of the week, even though it still happens because people send those stories so often. But you like it, right? Right? Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time... Here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're amazingly talented and oddly attractive people. Remember, stay safe out there and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. And real quick before I forget, be sure to follow me on Twitter and check out my pinned tweet. I'm looking for the scariest made-up story you can send me in a single tweet. Because my friend Limbo the Lost wants to animate some stories, but short ones. So, write me up the scariest thing you could make up in one tweet and reply to that tweet of mine. If it's good, hopefully Limbo will animate it, and I'll definitely narrate it sometime. Thank you.
and have a sweet, sweet night. Just because some dudes in uniform walk around writing people up for littering doesn't mean national parks and state parks are safe. Far from it. After all, the woods is the woods. It is an unforgiving place, and society has done well in making us all forget how dangerous the wilderness is. Wild animals, psychotic people, and sometimes even ethereal specters. The woods is no place to make new friends, unless you're used to your friends eating you. Enjoy these allegedly true scary state park and national park stories. If you have a story of your own as well, share it with us at darknessprevails.org slash submit or darkstories.org. Now, let's begin. Horrifying Camping Experience from Stromskirt This happened to my cousins and I around a decade ago. I was 16, and my cousins Bill and Ramon were 13 and 10, respectively. We had gone on a camping trip with their dad, who I'll refer to as Roger, to the Appalachian Trails, and engaged in your average camping activities, like fishing hiking, and sitting around campfires telling scary stories, before turning in for the night. We had initially planned to stay out for longer than a week, which in the beginning was a very pleasant experience, marked by warm, sunny weather and breezy, starlit summer nights. However, around the fourth day, things began to take a turn for the strange and downright terrifying. It was in the evening, and we were sitting around the campfire, talking and laughing loudly, your typical tumultuous adolescence. We roasted marshmallows while Roger was making dinner, when I decided to get a picture of myself standing in front of the dark woods, holding a large brook trout that I had caught earlier that day. Around 11 p.m., the radio that had been playing suddenly began to falter into static, causing Bill to smack it repeatedly in a misguided attempt to get it back to work which it didn't. An eerie silence overtook the campsite, only occasionally broken by the periodic crackling of the fire. Even the nocturnal choir of frogs and crickets had been completely extinguished, along with our own racket. I remember the tense feeling of being watched, as shivers ran down my arms and spine. Ramon, being the youngest, held on to his father who tried to break the unsettling silence, with an inappropriately cheerful, let's eat. We turned in soon after eating, though it was distinctly hard to fall asleep, with that deafening silence and the persistent feeling of being watched still hanging over me. The following day started off well enough. Birds were chirping, and the fresh morning breeze was gently swaying the leaves around us. We had some breakfast, then headed out for our planned hike. I was feeling much better than the night before, and had begun looking forward to our woodland adventure. It was late in the afternoon when we finally stopped to eat lunch in a clearing, 
surrounded by forest and its noises. As we ate, though, I felt goosebumps along my back and arms, just like the previous night. The feeling of being watched returned. From the looks of it, Roger and my cousins were also overcome with an uneasy feeling. As if synchronized with our discomfort, the birds also halted their singing as silence befell our hike. Tense and tired, we decided to make our way back. The entire time, the dreadful feeling of being observed only grew as we approached the lake. Making our way down the hiking path and reaching the bank of the lake, we stopped when we heard a rustling sound in the distance. Roger held his hand up as if to motion us to stop. We went quiet while he nervously scanned the vicinity. Again we heard a rustle, only this time much more vigorous and seemingly closer, as if something were stalking us from within the tall grass nearby. Roger, who was holding a rifle, was on full alert, as he was expecting a black bear. I think all of us were. His stance and seriousness frightened me, as my cousins and I huddled together near Roger. We stood there for what seemed like an eternity, until finally Roger decided the coast was clear. We spent yet another restless night, haunted by the strange silence. The following day, however, was the most fun I had the whole trip. In the morning, we had gone fishing out on the lake, and I caught another large fish. After that, we spent the day swimming, until late in the afternoon. We arrived back at the campsite around dusk, as I specifically remember the dramatic hues of orange and yellow that painted the sky in resplendent watercolor. Crickets and frogs were resonating their characteristic serenades as we approached, coming back from a day of fishing and swimming. We were laughing, stumbling along as we carried our fishing gear down the trail. Roger led the way. Before we stepped into the campsite, Roger stopped dead in his tracks, causing me and my cousins to crash into him and each other. Though he, a gargantuan man, didn't even seem to flinch, we looked at each other, baffled, and then we peeked out from behind him to find something which caused my legs to tremble in fear. There, right in the very center of our campsite, erected over the ashes of our long-extinguished campfire, was what I could only describe as a grotesque effigy, apparently made of thousands of small twigs that had been banded together to form a torso and four limbs. At the end of both arms, twisted branches had been contrived into hands, and perched atop the torso was a large deer skull, which was seemingly smeared or painted with strange crimson-colored symbols. From its large, menacing antlers hung several small wooden trinkets, fashioned into symbols which looked like the ones painted on the skull. After taking in the disturbing situation, Roger snapped into action and gripped his rifle, which had been slung over his shoulder. He looked like a drill sergeant. He ordered Bill and I to pack up as much as we could, as fast as we could, while he started the truck, instructing us to leave anything too heavy including the tents. I'd never moved so fast in my life. We left nearly everything non-essential as we haphazardly threw our belongings into the truck. Meanwhile, Roger was standing watch, 
gun ready, as Ramon was crying in the car. Shortly after, we sped away down the dirt path, surrounded by these soundless woods. A few days after this, long after we made it home, I'd remembered about that photo I took with the brook I caught fishing. I wish I had never remembered about that photo. After downloading the pictures from my digital camera, I found the photo I was looking for. There I was, cheerfully holding my catch, illuminated by the warm light from the campfire. But something behind me had caught my eye, something I had missed while looking into the camera screen. Hidden in the gloom of the dark forest was a faint glimpse of a partially illuminated head. After increasing the brightness of the image, I almost fell backwards in pure terror. Right there, looking at me, was what appeared to be a menacing human-like face, with ghastly white skin, dark sunken eyes, a flared nose, and I swear I could see antlers above it. If the effigy at the camp was the second most horrifying thing I'd ever seen, this photo was the first. Bottomless Lake, Beware, from Stephen B. I recently traveled to New Mexico State Park, Bottomless Lake. I live about an hour and a half away, so traveling wouldn't be a worry. My aunt and siblings even tagged along. Usually, I'm down for any type of vacation getaway, but that day, my gut thought otherwise. Instead of following my intuition, I swallowed down my fear and went on. My cousin had tried to scare me a few times, saying there were monsters or currents would drag me away in the water, but I paid him no mind, but maybe I should have. When we arrived, it hadn't been as hot as I thought it would be. We set everything up and I went to the bathroom to change clothes. Right after that, I went swimming. I dived right in with my goggles on. I saw tons of tiny fish under two inches in length under the water, but nothing really bigger than that. We were in the water for a few hours. Then, about an hour before we left, I suddenly felt something brush against my leg. Having my goggles on still, I looked under the water to take a look. Only, I wish I hadn't. Whatever it was, it was about four feet long, and it was swimming past me. It was green, with eyes the size of baseballs. And it wasn't a fish, per se, because it had arms and legs. Its limbs were webbed, and it was slimy-looking. It had spikes on its back, and when I looked under the water, it looked back at me, then swam away more like a crocodile than a fish. In a flash, it slapped its tail against my leg, and was gone, leaving nothing more than a trail of rippled water. I jumped out of the water and swam to shore in a hurry. I'm too scared to ever go back in the water, because that thing was the creepiest thing I'd ever seen. I think something's wrong with the cat outside. From Dang Dahmer 213. 
My boyfriend, his father and I, along with our cats and dogs, live all cramped together in a small trailer in the middle of a Washington state forest due to some complicated and bogus circumstances. We're pretty much homeless out there in the middle of the woods and doing the best we can. My boyfriend's dad is a truck driver and normally leaves around one in the morning and isn't back until five or six in the evening, sometimes later if it's a slow day. His dad's pickup truck was out of gas, so it was just sitting there at the front of the trailer, still hooked up to it. My boyfriend had his car, but it was not in the best condition, and the brakes were just shot, but it got us from A to B so far. With the truck out of gas, my boyfriend's dad had been using his car to get to and from work, so from 1 to 5 or 6 p.m., we were alone at the campsite depressingly sitting around watching old movies on a laptop or taking the dogs for walks around the park trails. Usually, we'd go pretty far in and go into some of the less traveled paths with the dogs. Things are kind of gloomy right now, and God knew we needed some sort of adventure during this whole time. What we ran into, though, was a lot more of an adventure than we had hoped for. We've been in this park for about two weeks now, and the first week went on pretty slowly. It wasn't all that bad, but it could get boring. We are further somewhat hidden behind some trees back in a community camping area. We've had a decent amount of people around us during our stay, so far, but like I said, we were partially hidden. Now my boyfriend and I have been spending part of our time over at our friend C-Note's house, She's been letting us raid her fridge, use her shower, clothes washer, etc. We've been over pretty late a couple of times. And every time we do come home late, there's always this black cat sitting on the rock next to the fire pit. The first time this happened, my boyfriend freaked out, thinking somehow his cat had snuck out of the trailer. He tried walking up to it, but it would jump up and bolt into the woods. I could see the headlights of the car that, when it jumped up, it almost doubled in size and just didn't look right. Like when it was sitting on top of the rock the way cats normally sit, everything was settled and it looked just like B, my boyfriend's actual cat. Once it got up, it appeared like its skin didn't fit on it and that its limbs were just too long to be an actual cat. I thought maybe it was a trick of the light somehow and I tried to ignore it. We searched the entire forest for B, still thinking it was our boyfriend's cat who had escaped. Eventually, we went back to the trailer. Inside, Dad was peacefully snoring, and there B was, just sleeping peacefully. So the cat we saw definitely wasn't him. We assumed that someone else in the park simply had a cat that looked exactly like B and that the oddities of the features of the cat that I'd seen was just a trick of the light. Before long, we went to bed. A few hours later, we woke up to the trailer rocking. Dad had already gone off to work. The rocking wasn't gentle because of a dog switching positions or something like that. Rather, it was rocking like something big had grabbed onto it and began to shake it back and forth as hard as it could. The air was filled with the smell of rotting flesh and sulfur, and the dogs and cats were going crazy outside. 
With how loud they were, I would have half expected someone to call a park ranger, but no one did. After what seemed like ages, the rocking finally stopped, and the smell faded away. It took a while for the animals to calm down, though, but even after they did, there was no more sleeping for the rest of the night. We were too terrified and confused. I've got no idea what's going on out here, but I think it has something to do with that weird black cat, non-cat thing. In the Darkness of the Forest From Mike Wynn For as long as I can remember, my dad has worked for the Forest Service here in Wyoming. He worked long hours, but always came home happy, even on the rare days when search and rescue operations added plenty of extra hours to his shift. Heck, maybe he was even happier after that, because my father felt like he was making a difference out there, bringing people back from the brink of death in the woods and keeping poachers at bay. One of my first memories is riding on one of the Forest Service ATVs during a family event the service was holding. But in 2008, my father came home acting different. And ever since that day, I never saw him smile again. No matter what happened in his personal life, the smile my father once had never returned. It was pretty devastating for my 12-year-old self. I grew up close to my dad, and now his smile could only be a vague memory for me. Nothing seemed to make him happy or interested anymore. Not even me. In 2017, Mom passed away due to breast cancer, and Dad's demeanor only got worse. He stopped calling his kids. He stopped inviting us over. He stopped answering his door for anyone. Dad had become a shut-in, and I was terrified that he was going to do something that he wouldn't have a chance to regret. So the spring of this year, I decided to drop by for a surprise visit, and I was hoping to stay for a week at his place. After getting no answer when I knocked at his door, I began shouting for him, hoping that he'd recognize his own son's voice and finally come out of hiding. It worked, after no exaggeration here, 20 minutes. How I convinced myself to knock for that long is beyond me, but I love my dad that much. When he opened the door, he was disheveled with a beard that went down well below his collarbone. Considering dad had always had trouble growing out his facial hair, this was disheartening to see. He just wasn't taking care of himself. And when I went in to give him a hug, I nearly gagged at the strong scent of alcohol all over him. For a brief moment, I thought he would smile. But not even the sight of his son, after all this time, came close to evoking a real grin. We sat down in the den together as he lit up a cigar, an old habit he apparently revived. I tried not to grimace with disappointment and sadness at this. The two of us talked for an hour, going over how we've been, talking about how my brother had his third kid, 
which made him frown, because Dad still hadn't met that grandchild yet, but he knew it was his fault. After a long discussion, a moderate rain began to fall outside, and the sky grew dark. We sat in silent company together, listening to the droplets hit the window. The old CRT TV near muted, but a deep concern steadily swelled up within me, and I brought the question out into the open. Dad, the endearing word came out more like a desperate whimper in that quiet house. Mm, he responded, rocking in his chair. What? Well, what happened to you? I finally just said it. It felt both relieving and daunting. What do you mean? He turned away for a moment. I saw it back in you then, Dad. You came home from work that day. You never smiled again. Uh, well, son, your mom just left us, and... No, Dad, I'm not talking about Mom. It was a long time before that. What happened to you back then? You came home with this look on your face. You were never the same. I stared him dead in the eye, and I knew he knew exactly what I was talking about. Oh. He thought for a few seconds, then wiped at his right eye. There were tears in his eyes. Might do me some good to talk about it. <laughs> What's there to lose? <coughs> he laughed into a small coughing fit. Why didn't you just tell us back then? Because even I thought it was crazy. And I managed to convince myself that not talking about it meant it never happened. He cleared his throat, and he began the most wild story I'd ever heard. It was a Friday. I was tracking a bear. She was pregnant and feisty and was sighted too close to the southernmost campgrounds. After the fifth call-in from campers complaining and afraid, we put a tracker on her. Sure enough, her tracker stopped for a few days in the same spot in the middle of a dried-up creek bed, and the higher-ups sent me out there on the ATV to make sure she was okay. We wanted her to give birth just fine, but we had poachers out there, and I was honestly expecting the worst. The drive to the creek bed took maybe an hour. The terrain was rough down there, the wind was picking up fierce. By the time I made it, I had already come up on some tracks and a few spatters of what appeared to be blood. I parked the ATV under a pine tree. Then I took off with a rifle on foot. Before I came upon the creek bed, I could hear it. The pained moans carrying on the wind. Gruff and low, definitely a bear. I crouched low to the ground, didn't want to startle her. I made sure to turn off my walkie, too, because if you piss off an angry mother bear, you're gonna have a rough time. 
I poked my head through the brush and caught sight of her. There she was, lying on her side in the creek bed. On occasion, she'd point her snout in the air and grunt long and slow. She was hurting really bad. That was the same sound I'd heard before, and there was no sign of the, uh, process being over. So I hunkered down by a tree and waited for a while. I figured I might see something rare. A bear giving birth. If anything, I'd wait and make sure everything came out okay. After a while, she grew quiet. Another half hour after that, I figured I'd been there long enough, and it was time to drive back and report in. I stopped dead in my tracks, though, the moment I got up. There are certain sounds you don't want to hear, especially in the middle of the woods. What I heard was a moist, squelch, and ripping sound. It made my heart freeze up solid. I... I turned and poked my face through the brush again. She wasn't moving. Her eyes were wide open, but her face was motionless and laid flat in the rocks. The bear was dead. But there was still something writhing around in her gut. Something that had already halfway worked its way out of its mother's body. I felt sickened, but I was petrified at that spot. I couldn't move, even if I wanted to. All I could do was watch. Wait till my curiosity was satisfied. The newborn, still on the inside, pushed itself hard against the untorn remainder of its mother's stomach. And with another big rip, the flesh gave. Something pulsating and very much alive came crawling out with a gust of blood and uterine fluid. The creek bed weren't dry no more. But what I sat there staring at, this new life bounding into the world, was certainly not a bear. Nor was it anything I'd ever seen or heard of before. It did have four legs, sure, but it was the only trait it shared with any other living thing on this planet. Its legs bent in awkward, rigid angles, each with a different number of joints. These legs met in the middle where there was an abdomen and what appeared to be a scissor-like mouth. From the look of its skin and the sound it made as it breathed, it was more like a reptile or insect fused into some ungodly aberration. It clicked with its upper and lower jaw, slamming shut and then opening. The thing was three feet tall and looked like it would have barely fit in that thing's stomach. Dry as I might, though, I couldn't find any eyes on the thing. That was as much as I could take in before it just scuttered away, moving in instant, juttering lines like some fast bug on the ground. I must have stood there, staring at the creek bed for another five minutes before I walked back to the ATV. Didn't know what to say to the rest of the crew. So I didn't say anything at all, save for the bear not making it 
and that some wild animals had dragged off the newborn by the time I got there. I looked at my dad, mouth wide open like my jaw had rusted and frozen that way. That was the last thing I'd ever expect to hear from him, of all people. And to be completely honest with you, I didn't believe a word of it. Even though my dad had never once told me a lie, this just didn't make any sense to me, and broke my heart even more. That wasn't the end of it, he sighed. We found a few more female bears in the same state, even some elk and moose, all of which had no newborn to be found. And before we knew it, we had a sudden rash of human disappearances on our hands. I was there for the brunt of it. It was the darkest time for all of us at the park. We never found a soul in that rash of missing people. And to be frank with you, nothing made sense to me anymore. Was my dad going crazy? Had he lost his mind after all these years and hardships? I didn't broach the subject again, and I soon left my father after a tight hug around 9 p.m. I'd been planning on staying, but something felt so wrong and dark in that house, around him. I was worried that my father... Well, he wasn't my father anymore. But if I was wrong and he was still the same man. That meant realizing that what he was talking about was true, and that was something I was unprepared to even attempt to understand. When the Wind Speaks Your Name From Draco Domination I live in Kansas, and I've noticed few people report the stories from here, so I'm going to talk about a legend I've been told my whole life, and what happened to me recently. The legend states if you can hear your name in the wind, or when the coyotes howl in the night, then something's out there looking for you. I've lived here my whole life, and I've been told this over the years. Starting back when I was young and about ten years old, I would go camping. My uncles loved to camp and go super primitive, but we never went without a firearm. But now I know why. Skip to now, years after that first time he told the story. It was the 27th of April this year, and I went camping again. This time I was alone and I was camping at a state park. I was only going to be out there for one night, so I didn't feel the need to bring a firearm. The day went fine. I tried to go fishing, but the cold water meant everything was dead, and I had no luck with the trout line. But maybe I'd be proved wrong overnight. Around 10.30 that night, I decided to let the fire go and crawl into my tent. But I was startled awake around 3.33 a.m., I rub my eyes and I listen. There's no sound at all anymore, except for the light, whirring sound of the wind. Not to mention the temperature had now dropped low enough that you could see your breath. 
I'm a North Germanic descent, so cold doesn't bug me too much. But this was different. This was almost like the cold was inside me, and I was about to sit up and check the fire and grab a drink. But before I could do that, I stopped, still lying on the ground. The sound of the wind had rushed by the tent, bringing with it a whisper, but not like a person or a mechanical recording, but more like white noise on a radio or TV. And then I heard footsteps. My only thought was why? Why now? Why here? As I was stealing myself to stand and face whatever was outside, I felt this unnatural calmness wash over me and then I heard my name on the wind again. Whatever was out there, it was looking for me, calling out to me, but I stayed still and quiet. Sometime later, I was able to wake up again. I checked the time. It was 5 a.m., and the wind was now more like a gentle breeze. I wish I could tell you what was out there, but I even don't know that for sure. If I'd seen it, I don't think I'd be here now. If you're ever out camping alone, be sure to bring some serious protection. Because you never know when it's going to be your day next. With all the disappearances that happen in state and national parks, maybe there will finally come a day where these sanctuaries are seen more like cursed places. But if folks are anything like me, cursed land sounds more exciting than ever, and people will probably go missing at a record rate, me included. So if you ever see my face on a missing persons poster, please come looking for me. Good night. If you enjoyed this episode of Darkness Prevails, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe. If you have a story of your own, send it to us for a possible narration at darknessprevails.org slash submit or darkstories.org. If you want to support the show, check the links below. There's a link to my Patreon, where you can get a few hours early access to these episodes, and you can download them for free, without ads, but only if you donate. Or check out my merch store, where you can get some creepy cool merchandise. Now, as usual... Here are my five favorite early comments from the previous episode, titled, Five Real Horrors in the Woods, Why I Don't Sneak Out Anymore. Daniel the Vape God says, Best stories ever. Well, you haven't heard today's video. Or actually, you have if you are listening now, which makes me entirely incorrect. Just ignore that one. Haley Campbell says, If you sneak out again... I'll be waiting. Ah, it looks like that creepy creature made an account on YouTube and is now talking to us. Hello, creepy creature. Fireshard Tuvog says, Can you fix my twisted head? No, I can't do that, and I'm surprised you're not dead. Good luck with that broken neck and everything. I'm dead inside, says, Hey, darkness. Thank you for your creepy stories. I'm now occupied with terror. That's the right way to live. But if you're ever constipated with terror, go see your doctor. And John Augustine says, Hey, someone needs to draw darkness as a chibi character. Agreed. And if anyone did that, tweet me at Dark Prevails and I'd love to see it. Well, that brings us to the end of this Darkness Prevails episode. 
But don't you worry, because more scary stories are on the way soon. So stay tuned. Until next time, here are the credits to my amazing patrons who continue to donate. They're great people. Remember, stay safe out there, and stay creepy. Because this world is a strange one. Hey, Acorns the Investing App is now offering to invest 200 bucks for everyone who can find five friends to start investing with them before July 31st. So, take the first step in investing in your future and at the same time support my show by clicking the link in the description and signing up with Acorns. They make it easy to invest, especially with Roundups, where the app automatically invests the remainder of every dollar you spend. Buy a bag of Funyuns for $1.75 and they'll automatically invest $0.25 cents from your account. So click that link and invest in your future. Unless you don't think you'll survive these stories. It's Independence Day week and that's why my uploads have been sparse lately. But I hope this video tides you guys over while I spend some time with family and get second degree burns from firework hijinks. So I really hope you guys have the best and safest 4th of July and I hope these allegedly true scary stories can make your holiday even better. So be sure to click the share button and share this video everywhere you can. I'll see you guys soon. Here come the stories. The Shifters From John Kinnix When I was 15 years old, in grade 9 in school, I believed I attended a haunted school. I dealt with two of what I call shifters. At first, I wasn't aware that they were not my real classmates, mainly because I tend to become very distracted when I'm writing and studying. Well, on a particularly dark and stormy day, I went downstairs and out into the football or soccer field with someone whom I thought was my friend Hannah at the time. We were just generally walking around and talking, when one of us brought up the subject of the paranormal. Hannah, another girl named Maya, and I often went exploring at supposedly haunted places. We discussed our most recent investigation, and then Hannah went, You know, maybe the school isn't haunted. Chances are there's something haunting you, and it just followed you here. I should have realized at the time that Hannah, being a complete airhead, would never have had that particular piece of wisdom. Also, the fact that the field was completely deserted at the time, and everything was totally silent, was more than suspicious. I didn't think much of it at the time, until sometime the next week when I was alone in class and everyone else went down at first break. I should mention that I'm an introvert, a gay cheerleading captain, and didn't really have many friends but I didn't mind too much. My point is that everybody but me would often go down for break, but today, another person remained. I should have noticed that something about this was off, but I didn't. I was busy writing something when I noticed that a classmate of mine was sitting at the desk next to me, not doing anything in particular. 
I decided to strike up a conversation, which again happened to lead to the most recent paranormal thing we conducted. And once again, I heard the same sentence not Hannah had uttered, in the exact same way, the exact same tone, word for word. Even then, I wasn't too worried. I just thought it was odd, even when the lights began to flicker, and an eerie silence began to shroud us. Fast forward another week when I casually brought up the conversation with my classmate, the one that was in the room with me during the break, and they fixed me with the most confused stare, explaining to me that they had never spoken those words to me, and that they had never stayed behind in that class. As I came to think about this properly, it would make more sense, because this person in my class was not someone who ever talked about the paranormal or even wanted to. I was kind of freaked out now, so I went to Hannah, asking her if she remembered our conversation. And she didn't. Even stranger was the fact that she had been entirely absent from class that day. Whoever these two people were that I'd been talking to, they only looked like my classmates. I put together these facts and made a conclusion that maybe I crossed over somewhere, or maybe these things crossed over to me. Because that school, it's never quiet, and I've yet to explain how no one else saw these people or had conversations with them besides me. Something strange and something scary is happening here. The Day I Almost Lost My Dad From Brother Bear When you hear the date, October 31st, most people know it as Halloween. Others know it as Reformation Day. But I know it as something else entirely. That was the day... I nearly lost my dad. My dad is a very restrained man, always soft-spoken, very calm most of the time. He was a little husky in terms of weight, a soft belly protruding against his 2XL men's shirt. This all being said, if something does rile him, it's rarely pretty. This day was the first time I'd seen him brought to blows, and it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen. Halloween of 2011 started out like any other in the rural Midwest. Quiet, crisp, and cool. The leaves on the trees had been turning, many having already fallen, so the little kid in me liked to run through them, just to hear them crunch underfoot. We lived away out in the country, surrounded by trees, so the colors of the changing leaves were a sight to behold, it was a Saturday morning and school was out. As such, I had the woods surrounding my home basically to myself. Any late teen guy's dream, right? Little did I know how wrong I was. I'd set out into the woods early that day after feeding and playing with our golden shepherd, Rascal, in the hopes of getting a good five-mile hike and run and before lunch. The hills and valleys in the woods made for a great workout, and as I neared the little stream I used as my halfway point to stop for a break, I pulled out my water bottle to get a refill. 
Now, before anyone gets on to me about being unsafe in the woods, or to just dunk a water bottle into a creek for a refill, note that this particular creek is spring-fed. It's clean and clear as glass. As I was filling up my bottle, I heard some rustling in the bushes behind me. Thinking it was just a raccoon or other small animal foraging for food, I kept filling up my bottle. The longer I sat and drank, the more I was convinced, though, that the sound I was hearing was not from an animal. If you spend enough time in the woods, you begin to learn the sorts of sounds each animal makes as it goes about its business. But this sounded off. I cut my break short, took a short whiz at a nearby tree, then I started back towards the house. As I got close to home, there was a dense patch in the forest with a narrow segment of trail leading to the trailhead. My gut nodded and red flags began to flare up. I wasn't safe here, and I had to get out. I was about halfway through the patch and beginning to feel claustrophobic, but I could now see the trailhead. Yet, all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, I hear the soft and eerie tune of Pop Goes the Weasel being whistled somewhere. Then from the trees, four strange men step out, each holding something in their hands. Afraid and looking closer, I came to the horrifying conclusion that they were carrying two K-bar knives, and two of them had 9 millimeter pistols. Why they needed those, I had no idea. It was then that I realized how vulnerable I was out there in the woods. The view of my own home was still blocked by the trees, and all four of the creepy men began to walk towards me. I was surrounded, the oldest tree in the woods at my back, and these creeps in front of me. I started sobbing. I had no idea what these men wanted, but with those sinister looks and their wordless aggression, it couldn't be good. Rascal must have heard me crying, because all of a sudden, one of the men screamed as Rascal jumped and bit him in the shoulder, pulling him to the ground. My dad was right behind him too, and in the blink of an eye, my dad's fist collided with the jaw of one of the creeps, sending him to the ground as well, and from the looks of it, his lower jaw had popped out of place. The other two tried to get to my dad, and as they went for him, Rascal bit down on my pant leg and began to yank at me, trying to pull me away. He must have been trying to get me to safety. I knew this, even through my fear-riddled mind. I ran as I'd never run before, attempting to reach the assumed safety of my own yard and house. As Rascal and I reached our yard, I heard something that made my heart stop dead. Cries of pain coming from behind me where my dad was, and I couldn't be sure if it was our attackers or my father. There was the sound of groaning and rocks being thrown and crushed, and then I heard my father bellow with anger and intensity, a wordless threat and challenge to our attackers. Rascal once again began to tug at my pant leg, but I didn't budge. I was horrified at the thought of what could happen to my father. I watched my dad slamming into the men, punching them with such force. Adrenaline consumed him as even all those men had trouble handling him. 
I dreaded that one of them might raise one of the pistols, and I would hear a banging sound, and I would never hear my father again. But for some reason, they did not use their pistols. Maybe they were afraid of getting into more trouble than they had planned. Maybe those pistols were just an empty threat and weren't even loaded. Whatever was the case, they did not use those on my father. But what they did do was stab him multiple times in the back. But my dad behaved like he didn't feel it, continuing to attack the men until each and every one of them were bloodied and bruised and terrified. Those that could ran off in the forest, and those that couldn't stumbled away and hoped my dad wouldn't follow. My dad, though, once they were out of sight, collapsed to the ground from blood loss. I screamed louder than I ever had before. I was scared when the men appeared, but this level of fear was something else entirely. Fear of losing one of the people I loved most in the world. I ran to him as Rascal gave chase, but I didn't care. I was in tears and rightly so. I pulled out my phone to call for an ambulance. I didn't touch the knife in my dad's back that was still there, as I knew about cops and fingerprints at the time. Besides, I had heard that you shouldn't pull weapons out of people with injuries like this, as you could accidentally make it much worse. I waited desperately, every second feeling like a new eternity. Dad rolled onto his side. His face was contorted in pain, but he took one look at my face, which I'm sure was red and moist with tears, and his softened. He tried to smile and tried to talk, but nothing came out save for a half cough. With that, my father passed out and his whole body went limp. I remember thinking that he died then and there. I curled up next to him, letting everything out that I had. I cried until everything went black. Maybe I fainted, maybe I fell asleep. But when I woke up, I was in a hospital emergency room. I was fine, but I soon found out that my dad was okay too. We had managed to stop the bleeding in time, but I was quite disturbed upon learning how close he had come to passing away. I can only hope and pray that something like this never happens again, because I doubt I'd be able to handle it. I'm so thankful for my father, and I'm thankful he was there in time. The Whispering Ghost from Amber 1234 I live in England, and I've had a lot of weird, ghostly experiences. Let me explain one of my mom's first. My mom was getting ready for bed one night. She was laid in bed just relaxing until she heard her bedroom door open. Thinking that it may have been the air pressure or even one of the kids, she ignored it. But then she heard a voice. Mom! Mom! Wake up! She opened her eyes and sat up, because she thought the voice sounded a lot like mine. But she saw that I was not in her room, and when she went to check on me, I was still in my bed, fast asleep. My mom shrugged it off before trying to go to bed again. She closed her eyes, 
but then immediately felt as if something was breathing down her neck. Mom. Mom. She sat up quickly again, looking around her, now afraid and confused. Once more, she saw nothing. She went to ignore it until her radio began crackling by itself and then turned off. This was odd because the batteries were fresh in the radio. My mom then couldn't sleep, so she got up. But at the time, I heard a bang from my room. I woke up scared before running to my mom to get her. I walked out of my room and I saw her. She told me what had been happening to her, and it only made me feel more nervous, as if someone was with us, watching us. I walked back to my room and waited for my mom to come too, but before she entered, I remember becoming instantly so tired. I closed my eyes for a moment, but I was fully asleep in no time, before I suddenly woke up to the sound of... Amber, Amber, hey, Amber, come on. I opened my eyes and looked around, shocked. It sounded like a man's voice, but for some reason, the voice was kind of comforting. My mom then finally came in and told me what happened to her in fuller detail. I then had this horrible feeling come over me that there were several other people in our room. I swallowed hard, but I couldn't help but start crying. My mother asked me what was wrong and reminded me that there was nothing to be afraid of, but I responded, there's someone in the room with us. She nodded and looked around the room before saying, if anyone's here, please leave. You're making us feel scared. I continued to cry because I felt guilty for whatever reason. I jumped out of my skin when the door handle began to wiggle, and then silence overcame the room. After a while, I was able to calm down again. I swallowed nervously and wiped my eyes. Sometimes I can just feel bad for no reason. Do you think they're angry at us? I asked my mother. She shook her head at me and rubbed my back. Of course not, sweetie. I settled down a bit more, but was still tense. My mom and I came to the conclusion that maybe it was my brother, my late brother, talking to us. And I felt comforted by that. A few weeks later, my mother and I were hanging out with our friend Joe. They were talking about decorations because Joe is a builder. But suddenly Joe goes quiet and looks at us with furrowed eyebrows. Is there someone upstairs? He asks. My mother looks confused and shakes her head. She says, why? But he cut her off and said, be quiet, listen. We did as he told us. That's when we heard these footsteps pacing up and down the hallway, which was supposed to be empty. From my room, then to my other brother's room, they went back and forth. My mom then explained to Joe in a whisper that if anyone even wanted to break in upstairs, they would have had to make quite a bit of noise because everything was locked down. I was growing nervous as the footsteps grew louder, closer even. 
My mom then rushed to the steps and shouted up the stairs. Hello? Suddenly, the footsteps ran into my room, and then everything went quiet. We all exchanged glances, confused glances. That wasn't my imagination, right? Joe said with a chuckle. My mom agreed and I nodded. A few minutes later, Joe went upstairs to make sure everything was fine. I checked my room too and everything seemed normal, but something did catch my eye. There was a wet footprint on the ground. I looked at Joe's feet, but it wasn't his because Joe's feet were much larger and these footprints were size 5 in shoe size. Whoever that footprint belonged to, they were young. A child, perhaps. Something is up in Mohican, Ohio. From Another French Surrender I live in a small town in Northeast Ohio. I was born in Wooster Hospital, but moved a few years later to Denver, then Cleveland, then Columbus, but then into where I live now with my grandparents and uncle. My grandparents and I were going to do a guy's night out kind of thing, because my mom, grandma, and aunt lived there too. This was in 2010. I was maybe six years old. So we went camping for three days at Mohican, which was absolutely beautiful. We had all the essentials like food, water, fishing stuff, extra clothes, mud boots, a big hunting knife, and of course, bear maze. We got the tent all set up and started cooking some steaks, which my grandpa cooked amazingly like always. But the whole time, I felt weird, like someone was watching us. We were at the bank of the river with trees on three sides of us, so I thought it was a squirrel or rabbit or raccoon, which I always thought was cute anyway. That first night was strange. I could hear movement around our campsite over my grandpa's loud snoring, and when we got up the next day, we found footprints. My grandpa said it was coyotes, which he was old and wise, so I believed him. The following night, I heard howling, not like a wolf or coyote, but something else, followed by scratching noises. We went fishing later, but out of nowhere, everything around us just went quiet. My grandpa told me then to pack up the supplies and get back to camp. We did what he said. And when we were back at camp, we packed up anyway to go home, getting everything back into the suburban. I asked grandpa why we had to leave early. He bent down and told me that the forest only goes quiet like that when something especially mean is about. We left and only stopped once to get some snacks at a gas station. I remember back in the third grade I did some research when thinking about this event again. I looked up wolves, coyotes, and all the sort of creatures I thought I heard or saw that day. But not a single one of their noises matched what I heard, and none of their footprints was anywhere near the same as the ones I saw on our campsite. Not to mention, when I asked my grandpa what was out there that day, he remembers the camping trip very clearly, but he tells me not to worry about it. I'm not sure why he's hiding this information from me, 
and until I find out for sure, I think I'll stay well away from Mohican. He heard her voice from Amjean Romeo. This story took place last year in July. I went on a trip to Edinburgh, Scotland, with all of my immediate family. We were supposed to be meeting up with my paternal grandparents while we were there, but rather freakishly, about two weeks before we were due to travel there, my grandmother got in a bad car accident and was rushed to the intensive care unit. She had been driving along a busy road and hadn't seen the other car coming. Of course, my granddad was not going to leave her side while she lay unconscious in the hospital. So we debated whether to still go on the trip as the main reason we were going was to spend time with my grandparents as we hadn't seen them in so long. Eventually, we decided we'd still go. We just didn't want to miss the opportunity to spend time together as a family. We arrived in Edinburgh on the Monday and spent the first few days checking out local tourist spots. My favorites were visiting the castle and the Edinburgh dungeons. Then the Wednesday of that week, we all traveled down to the hospital my grandmother was being treated at. Due to the seriousness of her injuries, though, we weren't allowed in her room. I did catch a glimpse of her through the window and the door. I saw her lying motionless in her bed, her face bruised and pale. Her left leg was wrapped up in bandages, and her entire body looked bruised, battered. She looked so small and broken, but what hurt me the most was the expression on my granddad's face as he opened the door and came out of the room to greet us. He looked defeated, like he had passed the point of sadness and no longer held any hope. I could see dried tears on his cheeks. He immediately threw himself at my dad and began to cry into his shoulder. We stayed there for a few hours, taking Granddad down to the hospital cafe to make sure he ate. It was early evening by the time we left, and I was relieved to see that a little bit of life had returned to my Granddad's eyes after our visit. We arrived back at our hotel in Edinburgh a couple of hours later. Everyone was tired, so we all decided to go straight to bed. I entered my hotel room and immediately dropped down on the bed. It had been both physically and emotionally exhausting that day. It didn't take me long to fall asleep. I woke up to the room engulfed in darkness. I hadn't even turned the lights on when I entered the room, as it had been fairly light out still. So I sat up in bed reaching over to the little bedside table for a bottle of water that I'd left there. As it was so dark and I was wearing my glasses, I had to feel around for it. But when I reached out, my fingers came into contact with something cold and firm and fingered. It was a hand. I felt a shudder ripple up my spine. I frantically reached behind me for the control panel for the lights. Once I found the button, the lights came on and I came face to face with a figure. The figure of my grandmother crouched next to my bed. No sound escaped me as I stared at her. She didn't look quite solid, 
and she was still wearing the gown I'd seen her in at the hospital. Grandma? I stuttered. She was staring at me, her eyes wide and almost terrified. I saw her glance briefly at the window before looking back at me. I frowned and leaned forward. Grandma, is that you? I asked, voice more confident this time. She moved back slightly and I heard her whisper to me, Don't let it in. Please keep it away. I'm scared. Where's Pete? I want Pete. Where's my Pete? Pete will protect me. Pete will keep it away. I frowned at her in confusion. What in the world was she talking about? Let what in? Pete was my granddad's name. What did she need him to protect her from, exactly? She looked again to the window. Clearly seeing something there that I could not, she screamed and bolted from the room into the bathroom. I'd never seen my grandma move so fast. She'd always had problems with her knees, so how she moved like that, I couldn't explain it. I got out of bed and walked to the bathroom door. I hesitated, still scared, before pushing the door open. My grandma wasn't there anymore. She was gone, vanished into the night as if she was never there. And then I almost jumped out of my skin at the sound of someone knocking at the room door. I unlocked it and opened it. There stood my dad outside. He had been crying. Apparently, Grandma had passed away that very night. Her injuries had proved too much for her fragile body to get over, and her heart suddenly gave out. I felt tears beginning to stream down my own face at the news. Dad held me close to him, and I began to break down. Then I told him about the apparition that I had just seen. When I mentioned the look of fear on her face... I could see concern in his brow. But then he quickly smoothed his expression and told me that she was at peace now, that nothing could hurt her anymore. I tried to believe his words, but I couldn't get her expression out of my mind. We left Edinburgh a few days later, just my dad staying behind to attend the funeral, as we all couldn't get time off work for it. After the funeral, Dad later told me that Grandad had heard his wife's voice as he looked at her for the last time. Just before they buried her, he said that her voice told him that she was in fact at peace. This did ease my conscience for a little while, but then I began to experience very horrible dreams. Dreams where I could see my grandma crying, begging to come back. Her face was twisted in fear at the threat of some unknown enemy. I could not sleep for two weeks straight, but I didn't tell anyone as I didn't want them to worry about me. Eventually, the dream stopped and I carried on with my life. It's been nearly a year now, but lately I can't help but wonder, was that really her voice that my granddad heard, or was it the thing that was after her soul? simply mimicking her voice. I can only pray that my grandma escaped whatever that thing was 
and death. It was only recently that my family and I moved into our first purchased home. Now, debt isn't the greatest thing, but having a mortgage kind of feels like it. We rented forever, never really feeling like we had control over what we lived in. But now we do, and I don't think we could have been happier until the sightings started. We live out in the rural part of a rural town. In front of the house, there's trees for miles, and behind it, more trees for more miles. Yet somehow we can get internet up here, which is a godsend. The one neighbor we have is extremely quiet, so it's really peaceful here. As soon as we moved in and got everything settled in, we wanted to start a garden, planting fresh fruits and vegetables, even bought a couple of rose bushes, which really accented the old fence that was already on the property when we arrived. Everything sounds good so far, I know, but one thing I didn't like about the place was the master bedroom. Sure, it was big enough, but the side of the bed that I slept on was close to a large window. A window that, honestly, kind of creeped me out. That may sound childish for an adult to say, but I'll be frank with you. I don't think I ever got over my childhood fear of the dark. Not entirely. There would be nights where our rotating fan would cause the curtain to kind of lift away from the window, then fall back down, every so often revealing the outside to me, and me to the outside from the glass. I would often lay awake at night sitting there, watching the curtain rise and fall, seeing through the glass, wondering what might appear there one day, wondering what was in the woods beyond the fence that could be looking back. I've always had a morbid mind about things. I am the kind of guy that, if you find me on a cliff's edge, I'm probably thinking, hmm, I wonder what it'd be like to just jump off. From that window, you could see the fence in the forest beyond, as well as some of our garden. In the morning, it was quite a delightful sight, something nice to wake up to. Every morning when I rose out of bed, I would first open that curtain and get a good look outside but I never dared to open that curtain myself at night. This brings me to my first experience with the thing that seemed to haunt our property. My wife was fast asleep. It was around 4 a.m. Something you should know about me is that I've always struggled with sleep problems. They often came at random. I could go weeks with sleeping just fine, and then there would come nights where I just couldn't sleep no matter how long I sat there with my eyes closed, no matter how comfy I was. It was one of those nights. I had laid there for literally around six hours as we went to bed at ten. My eyes had been closed the entire time. I wasn't stressed or anxious or anything. I'm not really sure why I couldn't sleep. God, do I hate nights like that. I wasn't facing the window at that moment, but at one point I decided to flip around to give that side a try. As I did so, I glanced at the window and saw that the curtain was rising, thanks to the fan stirring it up. I quickly, almost instinctively, shut my eyes, because I didn't really want to know what was outside the window. To aid in my feeling of security, I pulled the blankets up to my cheekbones, which caused the blanket to overlap my vision in a way that covered the window. 
I was snug then, and I tried to go back to sleep. The sound of the ceiling fan and the rotating fan, both whirring, while my wife snored lightly here and there. It was peaceful, but there soon came another sound. It was coming from in front of me, just beyond the wall where the outside was. It was a heavy but slow and deliberate thud, like the footstep of a careful but heavy man. After the third thud, it stopped for a while, and I was trying to come up with explanations as to what it was. Maybe it was a pine cone falling from an especially tall pine tree, which we had plenty of around the property. It could have been a bear, but I didn't think one could get over the fence, not without me hearing it. As it went quiet from that side again, I closed my eyes and focused once more on rest. One second, two second, twenty seconds went by, and the sounds came back. Another slow, steady couple of thuds. They were getting closer to my window. That night was a full moon night, and the way the moon sat in the sky, it beamed almost directly through my window, a pale gray-blue nightlight that would usually help me fall asleep, but not that night, as the thuds grew closer to the window. A figure overlapped the moonlight, causing me to see a very detailed silhouette behind that curtain. More than ever, I prayed that the curtain did not rise again. Without even knowing what I was doing, I had lowered the blanket from my cheekbones. I had a full view of the curtain, which now sat motionless against the window like it should have been. Yet I knew at any second the fan would come rotating back around and cause it to rise again. Thanks to the brightness of the moon, this silhouette was very, very clear, looking more like a sharp outline than a blurred shadow. What I saw had really disturbed me. It was tall. The sharp tips of its ears reached the top of the window, which was nearly to the ceiling. From the top of its head down to its shoulders, it was furry, with long, ragged hair. It looked like a disheveled lion's mane. I could also tell it was standing on two legs, but when I looked down at its legs, I saw a bend in them that was backwards and angular, as if you had someone standing straight up and you kicked their knees in as hard as you could. Seeing this made me swallow hard. I kept looking, though, going from its knees to its shoulders, which were broad. It was like some sort of demented incarnation of a burly, bearded mountain man. That's what I was hoping it was. A man. I think dealing with some sort of intruder or peeping Tom would have been much easier to handle in my mind. But then my dog, which we kept in a different room overnight, barked, causing the figure to turn its head at a ninety-degree angle. Whatever it was, it had a snout. It was no man. I pulled the blanket back up over my eyes, and I prayed that it would go away. I prayed that this was a nightmare. With a thud, a thud, and another few thuds, the figure disappeared, and I heard no more thudding sounds for the remainder of the night, which I did not sleep. 
Rather, the following day I slept a couple of hours on the couch. I did tell my wife about this experience, which creeped her out almost as much as I was scared. Having no further experiences for the next couple of months, it was at the back of our minds. Every now and then I would wonder what it was. But I think by then I'd convinced myself it was a misshapen and exaggerated shadow of some small animal. Nothing to be scared of, I thought. But I couldn't have been more wrong. Every night before bed, I'd take the dog outside, walk him around the property. We usually go along the fence together, because he enjoys taking in the smells between the fence posts. This night was not a full moon. I remember it being a crescent shape instead, so it was awful dark. I found myself speeding along the fence until I reached where the floodlights are at the corner of the house, which lit up a particular part of the fence, but only that part. The rest of it was quite dark and shadowed. My poor dog, who wasn't on a leash, by the way, always felt the need to follow me when we were outside, and since I was power-walking my way to the floodlight every lap of the fence, the poor guy felt as if he didn't have enough time to sniff his usual spots. By the fourth or fifth lap, I felt as if I was getting enough steps in. I figured another would do it. I would start one more lap, beginning at the floodlight. But I never got that extra lap. Because, as we made it to the lit corner of the fence, my dog stopped and started to growl. A very subtle and low growl, one that I almost didn't hear at first. It was like he was frightened. Too frightened to growl normally. What's wrong, boy? I said. He didn't look at me. He kept his eyes glued to one part of the fence. I looked at that part, didn't see anything weird, then looked back. Still, he wouldn't budge. He would only breathe, then continue that low, weird growl. What is with you? I thought. I decided to be a little bit more thorough, and walked closely to the fence, having a bit too much bravery thanks to the floodlight. I slapped two hands at the top of the fence, preparing to lean over it, until I looked straight ahead at the top of the fence between my hands. I didn't see it before. When I was looking back and forth from my dog's gaze to the fence, I had been tracing or following his eye level, as that's where he'd been looking. But when I placed my hands at the top of that fence, there was a third hand in between mine, one whose skin was a pale blue or gray, with patches of gray or silver hair all over almost randomly. And this hand, it was twice as large as mine, whose fingers ended in wretched and almost rotten-looking nails, sharp nails. I stood frozen, horrified. I couldn't believe I let myself get this close to something this bizarre. What even was it, though? Whatever the hand belonged to, it was using the fence to lower itself and prop itself against. I could hear it. It was sniffing the ground on the other side, getting the scent of something. Keep in mind that this is a privacy fence. It was six feet tall. Being a shorter man, about five foot ten, I would have to jump, pull myself up, or stand on my tiptoes to be able to look over. 
but I was not about to do that. If that thing on the other side, crouching down, was too preoccupied to have noticed me and my dog, we were going to keep it that way. I took my boy inside, and we shut the door as quietly as we could. Yet despite how quiet and calm we seemed, my heart was pounding, racing a mile a minute. I don't think it had ever beat so fast. I quickly went to my wife and told her. The two of us ran back to the door, which had a window on it, facing the backyard. I pointed out the hand, and she saw it too, plain as day. But within the next few seconds... That hand slowly sort of just slid down from its position, reminding me a lot of that scene from Jurassic Park when the T-Rex's hand sort of just flops off the wire. We never did see it stand up. Maybe it wasn't six feet tall, or maybe it crouched down there longer than we thought it did. And when it did get up to leave, we weren't there to see it. The thought of that really scares me. This brings me to the final sighting I had, so far, with this thing. At this point, my wife and I were quite aware that there was something creepy, something weird, lurking in our neck of the woods. After that night with the weird hand, we stopped letting the dog out on its own during the day. Day or night, we would be out there to walk with it within the fence. I don't know what I would do if that thing climbed the fence again if it was the same thing as before, and did something to my dog. But once again, the months go by, and time has this way of making things in the past seem less of a big deal. It can soften trauma, make light of the dramatic, and soon the sightings I had had with this creature became nothing more than coffee table talk with family and friends that we would invite over. It was a joke now. Oh, it was just a man in a werewolf garb trying to scare you. Nah, what you saw was Bigfoot. He just wants his privacy too. Those were the things that were said. I was foolish not to be scared. I started to want to get in shape again. I had put on a decent bit of weight over the recent winter, so I saved up for new running shoes and some running clothes, as well as a Fitbit and I started to jog the dirt road circle we lived on. It was about a mile-long loop. I would go down the driveway, go right, and eventually I'd come back on the left. One particular day, we were busy in town for way too long. So when I got home, figuring that I could still fit in my nightly mile, I threw on my running clothes and went out. It was about an hour and a half later than usual and I way overestimated how much more daylight was left. Because halfway through the mile, to my suspense, the sun was down, and it was dark. Imagine yourself alone in the dark on a mountainous road, with woods for miles to the left and right. The only way you can go is a half a mile through more bends on the road, before finally making it back home. That was the situation I put myself in. Part of me wanted to run as fast as I could the rest of the way, but when I tried, I stopped after a few seconds because my running was so loud, it made it impossible to hear clearly around me, and the thought of not being able to hear around me correctly made me feel more panicked. So instead, I walked lightly, 
That way I thought I'd be sure I would hear something if it was coming up on me. Luckily for me, it was a brighter, nearly full moon that night. I think it was called a waning gibbous? I can't be sure, though. But there was plenty of light to see up and down the road. The trees to my left and right were awfully big, sure, but they didn't really stretch out over the road. With the moon where it was above me, there was enough light to light my way. That's why when I looked back at one point, I saw it all too clearly. That same silhouette I'd seen in bed so long ago. Tall, pointed ears, ragged mane, backwards bent legs. I saw that dark figure standing, quite obviously taller than my privacy fence, about twenty yards away from me, way too close. It was just standing there. I couldn't tell if it was facing away from me or towards me. I tried to breathe, but choked. I didn't stop walking. I instead started walking backwards, watching this thing. The entire time I repeated the phrase, Oh no, in my head, at least a hundred times. As I began taking steps, careful steps, the figure began to walk too, its arms rising and falling at its sides the way a person would walk. So was it a person in a suit? Someone who decided to terrorize me in a very realistic-looking suit for months? Yeah, th that's all it was, I reminded myself. So, having convinced myself of that, I called out to the figure as I walked. That's not funny. You need to leave me alone. Keep it up. I'll dial the cops. I pulled out my smartphone and clicked the lock button, causing the screen to light up. Then I pointed the screen in his or its direction. They didn't flinch, but kept walking, its steps much larger than my own. It was steadily catching up to me. When twenty yards became about fifteen, I began to make out details. Patchy silver hair all over, skin that was a gray or gray-blue color, hands with long, sharp nails. This was almost certainly the same creature I saw with its hand on the fence that night. Suddenly, it broke into a full run. Mock me all you want, but I screamed, screamed like a child, as I turned forward again and started to run, but immediately slid on the dirt road, rocks rolling underneath one of my feet, causing me to fall and scrape my right hip. Now on the ground... I faced the thing running at me, and without full control over my panicking body, my palms raised up to my eyes, covering them, as I waited for sharp, nasty nails to dig into me, and teeth to bite down into my flesh. But that didn't happen. I listened to its rapid thud, thud, thud in the gravel. It was in front of me, beside me, then beyond me. The creature ran right past me full speed. I uncovered my eyes, almost unsure at first. Then I stood back up and faced ahead. The creature had stopped, now about thirty yards ahead up the road. It was facing me again, I think. Then, after we stared at each other for a couple of moments, it walked off to the left of me and disappeared in the woods. Screw stealthiness at that point. I took off at a full run myself. 
I didn't stop until I made it through the front door, panting. Once again, I relayed my story to my wife, who was now scared for me, and told me she did not want me to run my mile around the loop, and instead, if I had to keep running, I could do it inside the fence, at least. While that would make for a boring run, I agreed. The fence did make me feel safer, and I could bring the dog out there with me. But I'll tell you this, I wasn't about to go outside after dark for a long time. It's been about nine months now. I would say I'm overdue for another sighting, but I don't think it's coming back. Or maybe I just hope it's not coming back. It never did show any signs of aggression. If anything, it showed signs of curiosity. It was sniffing around my fence and staring me down. To me, it was like it was just checking us out, wondering if these new people in its territory were dangerous, the same way I was wondering if this thing was dangerous. But I'm not going to believe that 100%. I don't want my guard down if I ever see the creature again. I'm afraid if I assume this thing is not out to get me, if I don't take it seriously if I see it again, I could end up a nice, sloppy, wet meal. If I ever do see it again, I'll be sure to let you know. Help me identify this creature. From Dancing Pan It was fourteen years ago. My boyfriend and I went to a graveyard one night. He had told me a story about how he'd seen something weird there. He didn't really want to take me. He even tried to talk me out of it. But I insisted. He said that he had heard voices about the place, and if you go there and sit every night, you'd eventually see it. He said that he had finally seen the thing himself on the third or fourth consecutive night that he had visited. He described it as very tall, man-like, and gray. But he only caught a glimpse of it, and never went back after that, until I made him. I remember him saying he had car trouble when it appeared also, making his escape much more suspenseful. Well, hearing this, I could not resist. I had to see it. We went three nights in a row. On the third night was when I finally saw it. We were sitting in the dark with the moon being the only source of light. Man, were we dumb. We should have brought our own light at least. Suddenly, both of us got creeped out. It was actually the first time we felt that way since starting our visits. The air felt different somehow. We immediately changed our minds about the whole ordeal, deciding to leave and maybe not coming back after all. Lo and behold, my car, which was the one we took this time, didn't start. And my car had never had trouble before, not once. And even after this incident, it wouldn't have trouble starting for another several years. But when we tried to start it, it wasn't having it. I'd never been so terrified in my life. My boyfriend was driving that night and kept trying to start it, but nothing happened. Then the headlights flickered and came on full force. We saw it, standing right there in front of the car. 
It was seven feet tall, at least. It was pale gray. It looked like a moving statue to me. It was so tall it had to bend over to look at us through the windshield. We were freaking out. Finally, the car sort of shifted and started at last. The creature itself darted off so quickly to the left. I knew that if it came to the side windows after us, we'd both be dead within a minute. It was so unbelievably fast, yet huge. Instead, it stood at the side of the car, watching us. It continued to watch as we drove away. The cemetery was laid out where the gravel road went around the whole graveyard in a circle, and looped back around so that the entrance was also the exit. We were spinning tires and slinging gravel the whole way around, but when we passed the place where the thing was, it hadn't moved at all. It had been standing there, watching us go around the gravel circle. It just let us leave, but it was looking directly at me. I knew it. It was the passenger side of the car that was facing it, after all. I couldn't really make out any of its features. It was dark. And what had happened had happened so fast, we had panicked. Well, when I looked at this thing, and it looked back at me, I was overcome with a sense of severe sadness, of depression. It was a feeling I'd never felt in my life, but in that moment, these strange emotions became real. It was like everyone and everything I've ever cared for in my whole life was burned right before my very eyes. The pain and hurt was almost tangible. It took my breath away. That night, when I made it home and finally was able to get some sleep, I dreamt of that thing calling me from the graveyard, begging me to come back. But it seemed harmless, it seemed miserable, as if it was stuck in that old cemetery forever, and it was alone. So alone. When I woke up, I was determined to go back to find the creature. But before I could even tell my boyfriend, I got calls from him and two of my best friends. I could not believe what they told me. All three of them had had nightmares in which that creature had brutally torn them apart and mutilated me. The two girls who called me didn't know anything about the graveyard incident. It was so late, when I got back home, I hadn't had a chance to tell anyone about it. I just went straight to bed. My boyfriend dreamt that I had gone back to the place, because I felt bad for it, so he had driven out there after me. When he got there, he found it ripping me apart. He said it was as if the thing was searching for someone, because it wasn't eating just ripping and tossing pieces of my body away. For a long time, I had dreams about the thing, saying, I won't hurt you. Come back. Help me. I am suffering. And for a while, honestly, I had to fight the urge to go back, even after three people I cared about told me their nightmares where I would die. The pull to go back isn't strong at all anymore. I guess it faded with time, especially with kids and adulting, but I do think about it often. I do kind of get a little itch just to drive out there, and 
I don't know. It would be dumb, but there's always been a little nagging voice that whispers about the thing we saw that night. Whatever it was, it had a masculine physique, no genitalia, and its eyes were completely black. No iris, no pupil, nothing. Just black, inky nothingness. I've been searching for answers all these years, but the only things I've seen that look remotely like it are Wendigos, the pale, crawling humanoid ones, not the ones with fur and antlers. Thing is, Wendigo are vicious, bloodthirsty. A Wendigo wouldn't have let us leave that night, I wouldn't think. The best way I can describe it is it was a statue, one that moved. Does anyone know what it could have been? It's bugged me for nearly two decades now, and any answers, any suggestions, would be appreciated. Bigfoot Clown Car From Jasper H. Right after I graduated high school, sometime in the early 2010s, I had a close group of friends that I did everything with. It consisted of my girlfriend, Ella, and my two best friends, Sean and Christian. It was early summer, mid-June, I believe. We decided we wanted to take a road trip and hang out in the mountains. We didn't live that far from the most iconic mountain in our state, so we headed that way in Sean's beloved Pontiac. He had affectionately named it Banshee. We packed the works, snacks, drinks, and after some pestering on my part, I was a bit of a safety nut, so I brought along some warmer coats, flashlights, and water. We were going to make a night of it, even if it meant driving back home at one in the morning, which we were all very accustomed to do at that point in our young adult lives. We ended up driving up an old, infrequently used logging road and parking near what seemed to be a good spot to start our impromptu hike. We parked the Banshee on the side of the road, which was about a foot away from a ditch that was about five feet deep and at minimum ten feet across. On the other side of the ditch was a copse of small trees, young saplings, no more than three inches in diameter. It wasn't really safe to cross the ditch, unless you used the narrow trail that cut through the ditch into the woods. So we ended up using that, and headed into the woods to start our adventure. We spent the entire afternoon wandering and talking and basically just chewing the fat. Around early evening, we had settled down and started a small fire to keep warm. There was a clearing that we had discovered, and there was a fire pit from previous campers, so we used it to start a new fire. Since summer was only just beginning, the nights were still kind of chilly. This night wasn't any different, and being impulsive young adults, we were beginning to regret coming out without better gear, despite our coats and the fire. It was cold enough that our hands were too numb to open the snacks, so that began to damper our spirits. I was getting especially grumpy, since I hadn't had a lot of sleep the night before. I was getting especially irritable sometime around nine. We had only had junk food in our stomachs, and the smoke from the campfire was giving me a massive headache. At some point, I ended up bickering with Ella over some silly topic that I can't even remember now. I stormed off into the woods to cool off. 
Even though I knew the fight was silly, it had really upset me, and I was in tears for at least five or ten minutes. I wasn't quiet about it either. When I finally started to calm down, a sound came to my attention. It was a not-so-distant, rhythmic knocking, like someone hitting trees with a stick. I knew it wasn't any of the others, because I was close enough that I could still hear them talking, and I would have heard them approaching, since there was so much debris on the ground. My heart stopped, then started pounding as I listened to the other sounds that began accompanying the knocking. Breathing like a heavy, deep breathing, as if whatever was breathing was getting mad, and I mean angry. The knocking was getting more and more deliberate, intense. It sounded like if whatever was being hit was hit any harder, it would snap. Now I'm a big fan of myths and the supernatural, and my state is famous for its Bigfoot sightings. Heck, even some of my family have claimed to see Bigfoot. I didn't want to jump to any conclusions, but the first thing I thought of was that Bigfoot communicates by knocking on trees with sticks. My heart was skipping beats. Here I was in the middle of nowhere, and I hadn't had the good grace to grab a flashlight before I stormed off. The knocking, the breathing, it was all getting closer. So, I was out of there. I turned around heading back the way I came, luckily coming right back to the campsite. The fire had been put out, and my friends were gone. I could hear them calling for me, from the direction of the road. I quickly answered them, and said that I was coming. The knocking was further away now, but still aggressive and sharp in its retort. I finally made it back to the banshee, which was idling in the middle of the road. Ella, Sean, and Christian stood near the front of the car, looking just as freaked out as I was. Apparently, they'd heard the knocking too, and decided to call it quits then, thinking that I'd find my way back to the car eventually. Calling me hadn't been an option since there was zero reception out there. I assured them it was fine, but then we had the absolute crap scared out of us. It all happened so quickly... It felt like it was happening in slow motion. There was an eruption of snapping noises, as something huge just casually brushed those saplings aside in the same way a normal person would walk through tall grass. We could see trees snapping like toothpicks in the light from the headlights. The breathing was audible now, along with an angry grunting noise. The next thing we knew, a large humanoid figure, at least nine feet tall, appeared out of the tree line. It didn't even pause before it leapt over the ditch. It just casually stepped over it, like you would if you were stepping off a curb. It cleared the ditch completely and landed in a crouch in the center of the road, looking at us as it did. We'd been frozen in shock at the sound and the creature's appearance, but when it landed in the middle of the road after jumping the ditch like a kid playing hopscotch, we scrambled, comically so, piling over each other to get into the banshee. Then we sped away. I remember looking back and seeing it charging after us as we drove away, but it quickly gave up the chase and returned to its woods. 
We decided after that encounter that we'd just stick to normal, populated areas for hanging out. Areas far away from that thing. The Thing in West Virginia From Tim R. This story occurred in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Though I was born in Charleston, I moved to Parkersburg when I was three. I was raised in an isolated area in the mountains. West Virginia is known for its scary monsters and the well-known Mothman. I'm here to tell you about a new type of creature, one you may have never heard of before. I was outside playing with my German Shepherd. I vividly remember it being a nice fall day. All the leaves were golden, and the trees were beginning to lose their leaves. Every step, I could hear the leaves crunching below me. As I said, I live in an isolated area in the mountains, so my family would have to drive about half an hour to get to town if they wanted groceries or to take me to school. It was evening, so I was bored just running around throwing sticks as my dog attempted to go get them. I always loved the outdoors from a young age, but this event almost changed it for me. As I was messing around throwing sticks, I noticed a stream heading down the mountain. I went over to it, and my dog soon followed. I sat down on a nearby rock and looked up. I could tell it was going to be dark soon. I then heard a twig snap on the other side of the stream. I looked over to see a small squirrel just looking at me. My dog barked and foolishly ran across the stream, splashing me in the process. I ran after him, but soon lost sight of him. I looked around and found that I was indeed lost myself. I had an uneasy feeling, and I just wanted to be back home. I tried to retrace my steps, but I couldn't seem to find my way back. Every second that uneasy feeling would multiply. I looked around until I found what was giving me that feeling. Until this day, I still regret looking that way. What I saw appeared to be around eight feet tall. It was skinny, and had a weird face, like the face of a bear, but not exactly. The thing had patches of brown fur, but looked to have gotten in a fight with something. It had long, long arms, and that stench that came off of it was insane. I stumbled backwards, and I was just in shock. It seemed like that thing was just as scared of me, though, as it got awkwardly down onto four legs and scurried away. The thing reminded me of a stretched-out, hairless grizzly bear. But I'm not even sure if we have grizzlies in West Virginia. Only black bears, I think. And if it was, why did it act that way? Why did it look like that? The thing I encountered made no noise, though. It was silent, and I don't know why. I sat there wondering what I saw, and I finally got the nerve to get up. But my legs were all shaky. I was paranoid. Every minute I was looking behind myself. I tried to run at one point, but I had no sense of direction. I just wanted to run, so I kept going. Eventually, I reached a road. The same road that led me to my house, so I followed it, luckily enough. As I reached almost halfway up the road, my heart sank. I remembered I didn't know where my dog was. 
I tried to think of an excuse on what to tell my parents about the dog, but what would they think? I walked into my house and went directly to my bedroom. I didn't come out that evening at all. Eventually, I fell asleep and woke up in the middle of the night with that same terrified feeling. Thankfully, the next day, my dog found his way back somehow. I was so relieved, but I could tell he was not the same. After that day, I haven't been to those same woods ever again. I've been too scared to even know. I'm 38 now, but I'm still so paranoid. The Eyes From Brooke D. My sister and I were one day heading out to her friend's house. Apparently, her friend lived out in the country, and there was a supposedly haunted graveyard near their house. So we left about 8.30 or 9 p.m. We would pick him up and visit the graveyard. This happened in October of 2019, by the way. When we got there and were finally driving up his driveway, on both sides of the dirt road there were these long cornfields. I could reach out my window and touch them, they were so close to us. As we pulled into his driveway, we saw this black little animal that looked like a skunk, but it didn't have any white on it. We called it a skunk and left it at that. We picked up her friend and talked for a bit. Five minutes later, as we were driving back down the dirt road, I was sitting in the back passenger seat, looking out the front window. About ten feet from the car, I saw something sticking its long, stretched-out neck over the cornstalks in the field. These cornstalks are taller than me. I couldn't really see the shape of the head, but I could see its bright eyes, looking and blinking at the car. I didn't say anything. I don't know why. I may have been in shock or just curious, but when we got about five feet from it, I saw it slowly move its head back into the field. As we drove by where it was, I tried to search for it from the window, but I couldn't find it. We continued on to the graveyard and didn't see anything else, but even my sister said that she felt as if she was being watched the moment we picked our friend up. Roadwalk From Great Moves, Ethan Slugbug Reynold hit me in the shoulder as hard as he could, causing me to swerve the car on the dark road. But luckily, there was no one else driving that night, or so it appeared, for the last hundred miles. Crap, man, that's not funny. It's not even a bug on the road, dude. I got us back on the right side of the road and rubbed my shoulder. Then I gave him a quick but mean scowl. Yeah, I know, but I want to make sure you're not falling asleep. I saw you dozing off a minute ago. Scared the crap out of me. I don't want my brain implanted into some tree out here. Whatever, I said, not realizing that I probably did just doze off a second. We'd stayed up really late partying with our friend. It was his bachelor party. Things got a little too wild. But now we were halfway home on a five-hour journey. It was dark out, and we were both tired out of our minds. Basically, yeah, maybe I did deserve that punch in the shoulder. Reynolds starts messing with the bags of chips we have in the back, 
a bunch of leftover road trip junk food. He snacks on a bag of Lay's potato chips, and then he goes quiet for a while. When I glance over, maybe ten minutes later, he's out cold. I rub my face a little bit, give myself a slap, trying to make sure I'm wide awake. The road I was driving on was quite hypnotic. Not a whole lot of winding turns or bends, and the trees to our left and right, they were colossal and menacing. But I tried to focus on what was ahead of me, which really wasn't much. Just straight, badly maintained road, miles upon miles from towns in any direction. Truly the middle of nowhere. Having creeped myself out from the thought of having to walk down this road at night, if something happened to the car, I glanced down to the fuel gauge. We were three quarters full, nothing to worry about. I looked back up, having only looked away for a split second, and slammed on the brakes, but it was too late. I ran right over into a pile of something in the middle of the road. I didn't have time to swerve around it either, but I tried. There was a loud pop coming from the back of the car. My panicked turn of the steering wheel caused us to fly into the ditch before coming to a sudden halt. Crap, I said my heart feeling like it was going to beat out of my chest. Reynolds shot right up and looked at me, a bit of drool hanging out of his mouth. He noticed it and wiped it away quickly, at the same time asking me, What in the hell, dude? What's going on? You didn't fall asleep, did you? I rubbed my head, trying to console a worsening headache. Uh, believe it or not, no. I think there was something in the road. Ran it over. Think it punctured the tires in the back. I undid my seatbelt and began to climb out of the car. Reynolds did the same. The cold night air hit me hard, as if it were a spirit passing right through me. I crossed my arms and held them tight, then began to walk to the back end of the car. Reynolds checked his side, and I did the same, lowering myself down to the back left tire. The thing was torn to shreds. It was far beyond the hope of getting it patched. The whole dang tire needed replaced. I sighed. And then I heard Reynold cursing. What in the world did you hit, dude? The tire practically exploded over here. I walked around to his side and took a look. He was right. The tire on the back right had also been obliterated. I have no idea what I hit. It was dark and happened really fast. Turning on the flashlight on my phone, I walked up out of the ditch and Reynolds followed. I aimed the light toward the road and followed traces of burnt rubber and what appeared to be these yellow-white shards. They were bones. As I followed these yellow-white particles, they grew larger until it led me to what appeared to be a very old carcass on the road. Well then, I said. Reynolds spoke up. That's the first time I've seen or heard of people's tires being blown out by a ribcage. I'm almost impressed, Ethan. But now, we're stranded. I only have one spare tire, man. Here, let me call up Lane. We'll get someone out here to pick us up. It's gonna be several hours, though. What are we, like three and a half hours out from either direction? Perfect. He began to dial a number and I continued to scan the road around me, 
I found another carcass on the road, then another. In total, there were seven different animal carcasses on the road, and these were larger creatures, looked like deer. I felt more cold, more chilled than I did when I stepped out of the car. I motioned for Ethan to come back to the car with me. We had no other choice than to wait inside anyway. With the temperature being single digits, it was going to be a cold, long wait. While Ethan's car's heaters did work, they weren't the best. Back in the car, I put them on full blast, then turned off the headlights. The way we were angled, we might blind someone if they passed by. But if need be, we had plenty of time to signal them with the headlights. We'd be able to see them coming for a while. Reynold put the phone back in his pocket, and then let me know. Alright, Lane's sending his wife, Alyssa. He's already been called to work. This early in the freaking morning, can you believe it? So, it's gonna be a couple of hours. Gotcha, I said, and laid back in the seat, reclining it as far as it would go. By the way, did you see the... just how many carcasses were in the road? I asked him. Huh? What do you mean? There's like seven dead deer out there. I mean, do they have wolves up in these woods? Nah, not as far as I can remember, he answered. Nah, before I moved down with you, the worst we got were coyotes, and they're tiny little things compared to dogs. For the most part, they're mangy, skinny little opportunists. I don't think that's what killed those deer, but they're probably getting ready to come up here and chew on the remains. Gross, I said. Well, maybe it was a semi. Ran over a whole family of deer. I suggested. Yeah, only thing that makes sense. Reynold agreed. Then he reclined too, reaching for yet another bag of Lay's. Hey, grab me a bag of Cheetos while you're at it. Flaming hot? Do you even have to ask? I said. He tossed the bag to me. For the next hour or so, we laid there, just looking out the window. With the headlights off, we could see the sky pretty well, and the stars were bright out in these parts. Would have been a beautiful night had we not found ourselves in this predicament. And I have to admit, the thought of those carcasses on the road, they did spook me a bit. They didn't look like they'd been run over. They looked like they'd been torn open, eaten. I shook my head and got that off my mind. Focusing on that right now would only make the situation more unbearable. So I turned on the radio, then lowered the volume just enough to where the music was subtle. It's kind of like we're camping, huh? Reynold wondered aloud. Pretty much. Wish we had some s'mores instead of chips, though. And you ate all the Slim Jims on the way up here. Hey, I'm a carnivore. Can't help it. He smiled. But then his face went straight. Hey, uh... He scratched his temple, giving some thought into what he was about to say. Do you happen to remember going camping? Me, you, and Lane out in the woods? It was our freshman year. My stomach sank a bit. It was weird that he was asking me if I remembered it. How could I forget that? So, I simply nodded. I turned away to face the stars again. I think he was waiting for a reply. So, I eventually gave him one. That's something pretty difficult to forget. So, uh, do you still believe, Lane? He dug into the bag of chips he had in his hand, 
pulled out the biggest one he could find and chomped down hard on it, then set up to down a swig of water. His question made me wonder. We were kids, but I know Lane wasn't faking it. I know what I saw on his leg. I answered. He seemed satisfied. A little smirk grew on the side of his face. That's what I thought you'd say. And if you believe him, I believe him too. Man, some weird stuff goes on in the woods. He tossed his now empty bag of chips in the back seat. Our trash pile, basically. Then laid back again. I had been trying to keep myself from being more creeped out, but then he had to bring up that memory. Way back when we were freshmen in high school, we played sick on a Friday so that we could have a three-day weekend. We had made plans to go camping in these very woods. Just me, Lane, and Reynold. Lifelong best friends, and best friends still, even though we lived so far away from each other. Well, at least to us, it felt far. What happened out there? It was the first thing that happened to me that had me question reality. That night, we all slept in the same tent. But Reynold woke me up, and Lane was gone. The moment we stepped out of the tent, Lane, either unconscious or still sleeping somehow, was being dragged away. I screamed in time to cause whatever was dragging him to release him and run off. I was also out of the tent first before Reynold, so I was the only one that saw what had taken Lane. But it's something that I tried hard to convince myself I simply saw wrong. At first, I told myself it was some psycho in the woods that tried to kidnap our friend. But then I decided it was simply Lane sleepwalking. When Lane explained what happened to us, he could only recall the last few seconds before that thing let go and took off. Said that whatever it was, it didn't have the right amount of fingers and that its skin was slimy yet smooth. He even showed us a spot on his leg. It was swelling up and red, and covered in some sort of thin mucus. Now, Reynold had never been the type of guy to be able to take things calmly. He was known to panic first, then run away before asking any questions. So he threw a tantrum of denial right then, saying that Lane had did it to himself, that it wasn't cool that he wanted to leave now. While we all agreed that we wanted to leave, I looked at Reynold, and I told him, I believe him, that I believe Lane. Reynold didn't like this. The guy actually started to cry. He trusted me a lot, and having me say that, it was like I was confirming that he should be afraid. We left those woods as quickly as we could that night, and we never went back for another camping trip. So yeah... I believe what Lane said. I just didn't want to believe what I saw dragging him away. And I still hadn't told Reynold or Lane what I think I saw. A steady light rain began to fall outside. It landed and flowed down the windshield, even more mesmerizing than the road had been when I was driving before. I was dozing off again, until Reynolds shook me. Uh, what? I said. Dude, it's raining. He seemed a little freaked out. Yeah? So? He pointed toward the dashboard. Look at the temperature gauge. Look at the temperature on your phone. I did as he asked. 
The screen on the dash said 8 degrees, and my phone read 7. Huh. Reynolds went on. Shouldn't the rain be freezing? Freezing on the ground, at least? Shouldn't it be snow or sleet or something? I shook my head. Man, you're just freaking out because we're stuck out here. You're making something out of nothing. No, look! Look out the window, look at the ground! I rolled my eyes and looked out the window. The rain formed little puddles in the holes in the pavement, and little streams in the cracks. I must have sat there for a few minutes looking at the water, but he was right. It never froze. And then the temperature began to drop, rapidly. According to my phone, it dropped another 15 degrees. It was now well below zero. I kept glancing from my phone to the outside, and the rain didn't freeze. It refused to, but I refused to make anything more of it. I looked at Reynolds and said, We aren't scientists. I'm sure there's something going on, maybe with the road or with the weather, that's just keeping this water from freezing. Then Reynolds looked like he had an idea. He grabbed his bottle of water that was in the cup holder, opened his door, letting in quite the chill. Then he began to pour some of the water on the ground. What are you doing, Reynold? I said. We'll just see if my water freezes. Maybe we'll know something then. So you're wasting our drinking water for a science experiment. He looked at me with a finger over his mouth. Just shush, he said. I leaned over towards him, and I looked out the door. I wanted to see this in action. Of course it wasn't going to freeze. If the rain wasn't freezing, his water wasn't going to freeze. I watched the water hit the ground, mix a little bit in the grass with the rain. Before, over the next minute or so, clumps of ice formed where the water had been poured, but the rain around it remained liquid. What the hell? I said. Then Reynolds said what I think we were both thinking. I don't think that's rain, Ethan. He put the cap back on his water bottle, then closed the door. He made sure to lock it, too. So, it's just some dirty rainwater. Doesn't freeze because all the crap in it, I guess. Reynolds looked at me and said, Sure, let's go with that. I'm just going to try to get some sleep. I nodded, and he laid back, facing away from me. I sat back in my seat as well, and it didn't take long to finally fall asleep. I'm awakened when the sound of thunder crashes outside. Reynolds is still sleeping, so I don't wake him. I don't feel tired enough to go back to sleep, though, oddly enough. We'd only been sleeping for a couple of hours. I stayed awake, watching the rain and now the lightning outside. Lightning that had a weird green tint to it made everything seem more ominous than it really was. I glanced at the ground outside and, once again, the rainwater was still liquid. No ice on the ground. As I lay there, I began to hear a sound within the rain. A sound I thought was wind at first, howling through the trees. But as it got louder, closer, it stopped sounding like wind and sounded more like crying. Like the tormented cry of someone mourning someone close to them. It was coming from the left side of the road, 
from the woods, growing louder by the second. With a big green flash of lightning in the sky, the road in front of us and the edges of the woods to our sides are brightly lit for a couple of seconds. Within that brief window, I see a figure in the road. A very tall figure. A very familiar figure. Uh, who is that? Reynold had awakened. I looked over to him. He was rubbing his eyes and looking in the direction of the figure, too. But just like me, he became quiet and started to stare. The figure must have been nine feet tall, maybe more. It looked like we could stack two of this car on top of each other, and that thing would still be taller. It appeared to be looking up towards the sky. Lightning kept flashing in and out, revealing to us this thing for plenty of time. This tall thing with a skinny torso and thin, long limbs, but a head that was bulbous, like a baby's, except far larger than that. But I could not find its eyes, a face at all, really, and I was left wondering if it was facing away from us or towards us. Then, more figures like that one, but at different heights and different proportions of bulbous head, began to walk out of the left side of the woods, slowly, like slow motion slow, crossing over the road and onto our side. The moaning sound, the cry, it seemed to be coming from each and every one of them. I didn't know any better. I'd say they sounded sad. We stayed quiet and hunkered down in the car, getting as low as we could to still watch the things outside, but lowering our chances of being seen. I was glad then that I kept the headlights off. I looked at Reynold. He was shaking a bit. He started to turn around, wanting to look out the back window. When he did, his eyes grew wide, and his shaking intensified. He looked at me, then looked ahead, as if to say without a word that I need to see this. I followed his gaze and looked out the back window as well. Those things were all over the road, behind us and ahead of us, but the ones behind us, a couple of them had crouched toward the ground and were picking at the bones and meat of the dead deer. Each one that stopped at a deer carcass would only take a few bites before getting back up and walking in that physically impossible slow-mo walk. In silence, in fear, in terror, we must have watched a hundred of these things cross the road before it finally stopped. And only when the last centimeter of flesh of one of those things disappeared beyond the trees did the wind and rain and the lightning suddenly stop. The rain all over the road and ground, it didn't freeze or stay, but seemed to fade, evaporate. Before long, we were left in the exact same position we had been. A dry, dark road, quiet and alone. But it took longer for the crying moan to stop. We didn't even dare sit up in our seats until that sound faded. And when we did sit up, we simply looked at each other and tried to stutter out the first words. What? I... Reynold tried to speak, but he could not find the words. 
but I did have something to say. Reynold, those things, they, I've seen one of them before. You're not going to believe me, I know you're not, but one of those things tried to drag away Lane. His eyes narrowed. Did he disbelieve me? Or was he mad, angry that I hadn't told him this yet? Way back when we were camping, what we just talked about, I never told you guys, didn't know if I even should, but I saw what was dragging him away. He wasn't sleepwalking, he wasn't taken by a person. I was never sure of what I saw until now. But it was the exact same height, same shape as one of those things. I'm sure of it now. I collapsed into the car seat, and I just waited. Reynold remained quiet. Another hour of this silence, of this terror of wondering if they'd turn around and come back to cross the road again, before Alyssa's car finally pulled up. The two of us put on fake faces, told her we were happy to see her, and thanked her for picking us up. But when she asked if we were okay, beyond just the slight accident in the ditch, we feigned ignorance, not sure what she was talking about. Reynold eventually accepted my apology for holding my secret for so long. We made it back to society okay, and we keep this story to ourselves. I'm not sure if we should tell Lane this, but maybe he does have the right to know. That night was really a weird one, and still, I have no idea what those things were, or whether or not they meant us harm. I'm just glad that they didn't see us. Family Cabin from Mike B. My family has a cabin in northern Alberta, on a beautiful lake called Island Lake. It is pretty much the middle of nowhere. I was 18 years old. The family cabin had recently been reconstructed into a full-fledged house. The cabin was still under construction and was being painted at the time. My dad decided to take up hunting for the weekend. He invited both me and my best friend. Out at the cabin, my passion had always been building fires and chopping wood. One night on one of these weekends, I decided around midnight to go down the stairs descending to the beach and build a fire in the fire pit. My dad and my friend were both asleep at the time, so I decided to just go about doing my thing. Suddenly, I began to hear a crackling in the bushes on the neighbor's property. Our neighbors had a very dense forest connecting to a local campground on their property. I brushed it off as a raccoon or something and continued about making the fire. When I finally got it going, I stopped to look at the stars. But I was interrupted when I heard a growl coming from the bushes. I turned and I saw a pair of eyes staring right back at me. I could not make out what they belonged to, so slowly I went into the shed to grab a flashlight. As I did so, I suddenly heard a bang on the side of the shed. 
I looked up the window of the shed, hoping to catch a glimpse of what did that. But there I saw the eyes again. A feeling of dread welled up in me. I'd left the shed door open. I could hear what sounded like claws dragging along the side of the shed. This thing sounded plenty big, and I did not want it in the shed with me. After all, if I could see its eyes in the window, it had to have been at least seven feet tall. Just when I thought this thing was going to come inside and end me, my father stepped out onto the deck and turned on the bright floodlights facing down to the beach. Mike, he called out. You down there, boy? The scratching stopped, and I heard the creature run off into the bushes as if scared by the light. Quickly, without even putting out the fire, I ran upstairs to the cabin, and I rushed inside as fast as I could. I only once briefly stopped to look to the bush by the neighbor's cabin. I saw it in the nick of time, a figure fading away into the undergrowth. It was big. It was about seven feet tall. I went inside and locked everything down. But I never saw that thing again. Still, when I find myself sitting by the fire at night, I can't help but feel I'm being watched. Who knows when the creature will show up again, or if it ever left. Maybe it's always close by, watching someone from the bushes. Keep an eye out for any dogs you might have, and keep your small children close. Outdoor Story from Jacob L. I go to my grandpa's every year to fish. My grandpa is used to telling a specific story when we're out. The story of the so-called Owl Man, or the Cheney Creek Creature. He had always made these stories up. I was about 13 at the time, and I still had a wild imagination. I believed him for a while, but what happened that night changed everything. We had just got done with supper, and we went to start a fire. We grabbed the logs and began to douse the logs in lighter fluid. As I turned to grab the lighter, I heard a branch snap. I turn and look and can't see anything in the darkness, so I continue to light the fire, until I spotted a dark figure sort of crawling into the water. I don't say anything. I don't want to spook my younger brother, who was sitting in a chair behind me. My grandpa then went inside to grab some marshmallows, and everyone else follows. They leave me to watch the fire and tell me not to do anything stupid. I nod, laughing a little bit. While they're inside, I sit, now watching the creek. I hear water splashing in the direction of the creek. A chill runs up and down my spine. I feel as if I'm being watched. Looking around, I find a tall, dark figure standing far away by the creek, so I can't get a lot of detail. But then I watch it walk right back into the lake. As it did so, I heard a sound similar to chains rattling. As it crawls back into the water, it stares at me with bright yellow eyes and screeches. That screech was so awful, I covered my ears. I go to get my pellet gun, thinking it could protect me, but it acted more like a security blanket. 
I aimed it at the creek, kept my eye on the scope, and watched for every single movement I could. But the thing doesn't come back up. I'll never forget what happened that day, and I can still hear the rattling of chains in my head. It's so vivid. I don't ever want to hear it for real again. I'm not entirely sure how middle of nowhere the next two stories are, but I did my best to go off of some hunches, as I think they're pretty cool stories. The first takes place in West Virginia, which is quite rural, and the second takes place in Mexico, five hours from the airport. Just wanted to let you know I'm just guessing on these, but I think you'll enjoy the stories nonetheless. The Familiar Visits at Night from Bleak Mountain. This happened in our former home, an old house way out in West Virginia that housed many bad memories for my family and I. We live in another state now. We are the only ones who have ever lived in that house. It was built and never sold until my family and I bought it. I've always thought that spirits and entities were attracted to negative emotions and outbursts, which happened a lot in my old house. In addition, my father was going through hard times at the time, with his job, money, the usual. The old house is a one-story place with a basement. It has three bedrooms. One of the bedrooms was the master bedroom, and they gave that to my oldest sister. That's because my two teenage sisters needed their own rooms, as did I when I grew older. My parents used to sleep in the master bedroom for a while, but since they needed to give it to my sister, they separated a part of the basement off and made it into their bedroom. One night, my mother was lying beside my father in their bed, when she noticed a mist hovering over my father, who was fast asleep. My mother thought it was her mother, but our dog started barking, and she knew something wasn't right. However, she thought it'd be best not to wake up her husband and scare him. The next night, however, she was fast asleep, and my father was awakened. My sisters and I would sometimes come down to my parents' room at night to talk to them because we were scared. When my father awoke this night... He noticed what he thought was my youngest sister standing in the doorway. The figure was dressed in white and had blonde hair. My sisters had blonde hair too. You okay, sweetie? He said, tired and irritated to be woke up. The figure whom he thought was my sister until now turned its head in confusion, much like a dog would. My father's face turned quickly from tiredness to terror his eyes wide open, and the hairs on his arms sticking up. He realized the figure did not know he could see it. That is why it looked confused. He also realized it wasn't my youngest sister, for all the lights were off, and when she came down to the basement, she was too scared to not have them on, and would turn on as many lights as she could. Then its face began changing, from my youngest sister's face to my grandmother's, then to my aunt's. My father began yelling loudly to my mother, Turn on the light! He kept trying to wake her up. She finally did and turned on the light as he asked. She asked what was wrong. 
He wouldn't talk to her for about half an hour, though. When he finally told her, she was shocked and admitted what she saw the other night. My dad said that the figure he saw dispersed into a mist after my mom awakened. My parents thought it could possibly be my mother's mom's spirit, as my youngest sister did look like her. Today, however, I think my dad believes it was a familiar, though my mother is convinced it was malevolent. If you don't know, a familiar is an entity who disguises itself as a loved one or someone you know. I've heard of them asking to come into someone's house or luring someone towards them, disguised as someone they love. But I think this one was invited into our home by means of negative emotion and outburst. I believed it to have been a demon in the form of someone we know. We have since blessed the house in the name of the Lord, and there have not been too many odd occurrences afterwards. Just beware. If you live among negative energy and emotion, you might just invite something in. Something harmful, something you weren't expecting. The Crying Woman From Jessica D. I'm sure we've all heard the legend of La Llorona, the crying woman, and I can't say for sure if what I experienced here was indeed a La Llorona encounter, but it was still terrifying. This story takes place in 2017, when I was on vacation in Mexico, visiting my in-laws. It was the first time I'd be meeting them in person, as my husband and I were living in California with our three children. I should mention that I'm a white, bilingual female, and this visit was a total surprise to all but one of my in-laws. My older daughters, who are twins, chose not to travel with me, mostly because my husband is their stepfather, and they really don't have contact with his side of the family. They don't speak Spanish, and my in-laws do not speak English. It was just me and our then two-year-old daughter, who is his only blood-related child, traveling to visit her paternal grandparents, while my husband stayed in the States working, making sure the bills and rent were paid for the two months we'd be gone. It was a very exciting adventure. It would be both of our first time meeting my husband's parents, as well as our first time in Mexico. We were met at the airport by one of my sister-in-laws, the only one who knew we were coming, and her husband, who drove us from the airport to their home some five hours away, my husband and I have a house on the same property as his parents that we are still currently building onto, so at the time of my visit, the second story was still missing the roof, among other things. My daughter, who we'll call Ivy, and I stayed in the room downstairs that is already completed, but at night, I would frequently sneak upstairs when my daughter was asleep, just to stare at the beautiful night sky. Although the days were hot and humid, at night, the whole atmosphere changed, and it's fresh and cool and it often rained, even in the summer months. On nights when it doesn't rain, you can still see spectacular lightning storms in the distance, lighting up the night sky. One night, however, I saw something that will forever chill me to the bone. I'd only been staying there a few days when, late at night, I woke up to use the bathroom and get a drink of water. 
It was then that I heard a faint cry. Thinking it may have been my mother-in-law, I snuck through the doorway that separated our two houses as they connected. I stood outside of her room listening for crying, but when I heard it again, I realized it wasn't coming from her room. It wasn't coming from the house at all. Instead, the faint sound of a woman crying was coming from outside and seemed to be getting closer. I rushed, quietly but quickly, back to my house, creeping up the stairs to look through one of the still-uncovered windows of what will soon be my room. Like I said, the house was still under construction, so aside from not having a roof, the windows were basically just huge rectangular holes in the brick wall, without any kind of bars or glass to cover them. As I crept to the window closest to me, where I could get the best vantage point, I peered out to the street, where I saw something that caused me to freeze in place, and goosebumps popped up all over my body. Walking very slowly down the street was a woman dressed in a long black dress. I say she was walking, but the truth is she appeared to be in fact floating. I could not see her dress move at all as she made her way down the deserted main road. Now this caught me as extremely unusual. She was alone in the dark at 3.30 a.m. That is not safe, especially not in Mexico. As I continued to watch her gently glide down the street, I soon saw her stop in place right in front of the entrance to the property, and when she stopped, so did the crying. I watched in horror, as ever so slowly, she turned and seemed to be looking directly at me. It was almost as if she knew I was watching her, and even more terrifying, she seemed to know where I was. A chill ran down my spine, my skin covered with goosebumps. I quickly ducked below the window. My blood felt as if it had turned to ice, and I was too scared to stand up, afraid that I'd find her approaching our home. Thankfully, though, when I did get up, about thirty seconds after crouching down, she was gone. There was no trace of her at all on the street, and there was no way that she could have moved out of my line of sight that quickly. I had a bird's-eye view, almost, and would have seen her running down the street in either direction. And then I thought, what if she had snuck onto the property while I wasn't looking? What if she was looking for a way in? On the road, there were some lamps, but once on our property, she would have the complete cover of darkness, rendering her virtually invisible, and that thought chilled me. I rushed back downstairs to make sure that all the heavy metal doors were all securely locked in both houses. After assuring myself that the place was locked up tight, I started making my way back to my room. But before I could get there, my daughter began to cry and scream for me. I ran back to my room, no longer caring how much noise I made. But when I entered the room, it was empty, aside from my two-year-old sitting up in the middle of the bed. Even through the darkness of the room and the mesh of the mosquito net around her bed, I could see the terror on her face as she pointed to the window that looked out to the back door of our home. I rushed to the back door and illuminated the backyard with my cell phone, trying to see something, anything that might be lurking in the dark. The night was completely silent, 
except for the buzz of the mosquitoes and the chirping of the crickets. Before going back to bed, I again checked all the doors and windows on the ground floor, this time with Ivy in my arms. Again, everything was locked and secured, so I took Ivy back to bed. Within thirty minutes, we were both fast asleep. I awoke a few hours later to find the sun up, and something I found to be completely impossible. The back door to my house was wide open. The same door that Ivy had been pointing to in fear only a few hours ago. But I'd made sure it was closed, and locked it before lying down to sleep. And had anyone in the house opened it, I would have been awakened by the distinct screeching and grinding of the metal lock sliding open. So, did the crying woman find a way inside? Flesh Eater From Gesundheit Part 1 I grew up in the great outdoors of Colorado. My nearly middle-class family lived in what was nothing more than a cottage in the cold but plentiful wilderness of Colorado. Dad worked as a semi-truck driver. He was barely ever home. Mom took care of my older brother Derek and I, and maintained the house. We lived down a dirt road, down another dirt road. But there was always something to do, like picking tomatoes and onions in my mother's garden walking to my nearby friend's house to play some games on his PS2, or just going with my brother to go fishing. Though we didn't have the biggest house and not a lot of money, we did have quite a bit of land, albeit overgrown and mostly cheap land. There was a small pond on part of it, and near that pond was an old shed, or more of a shack, I guess which my dad revitalized and turned into a sort of fishing shack. It had two little cots in it and a working but small fireplace. When my dad had some time at home, we would often go out there with them and do some fishing. The pond was large and there was always plenty of fish to catch, so long as we kept an eye out for snapping turtles. They'll drain your pond of fish real quick, those greedy little suckers. One weekend, my brother and I were bored and my dad was not going to be home. We asked my mom if we could walk over to the shack and stay the night. It'd be a lot of fun to do some fishing. It may not be the tastiest meal, but there's something nostalgic about skinning some fish right quick after catching it, and throwing it over the fire. Plus, we could take a lot home and surprise dad. He loved fish. Getting the okay from my mom, we packed up our fishing poles and dad's tackle box, setting out to the pond. At the time, I was ten years old, and my older brother was fourteen. Derek, my brother, was pretty rowdy, the type of kid who, once he discovered cursing, cursed way too much every chance he got, thinking it made him an adult. I remember walking to the pond with him that night, and he asked me if I spit or swallow. Being ten years old, I had no idea what he was talking about, not realizing this was a self-defeating question. After a twenty-minute walk, we made it to the shack. There were still a couple of hours of sunlight left, so we burst out of the trail and raced toward the pond's edge. But we soon stopped. Something smelled wrong, 
and as we made our way to the edge of the water, we found it. Dozens, if not a hundred fish, pulled ashore, half-eaten, then tossed to the side. Immediately, we both frowned, and my brother angrily muttered, Snapping Turtle. We gathered up the dead fish, all that we could find anyway, then tossed them in a neat pile on the wood's edge, out of the way. It didn't really do much for the smell, though. If this was a snapper, we were going to have to tell my dad. He had a trap for him that we didn't know how to set up or use, and we were afraid we were going to lose it in the pond if we tried. We kept an eye out in the water for it, but never did see anything out of the ordinary. We did do our fishing, sitting there with our lines in the water for nearly two hours, and not a single bite. Thing is, I knew that there would still be fish in there, so maybe they were just cautious, scared, and they needed some more time to propagate. After two unlucky hours of no fish, we hunkered down in the cabin as the night grew cold. We got a fire going in the small fireplace. We sat around it, keeping warm and keeping each other company. My brother talked about school and discussed a lot of the girls he was interested in, which at that age I didn't understand. I'd never thought of my female classmates as pretty, though I did have a lot of female friends. When I explained this to him, he looked at me and laughed. Cart, just give it a couple years. Then all you'll think about is girls and girls. No, I won't, I replied, feeling offended for some reason that I didn't understand. He squeezed me on the neck and shoulder with a finger and a thumb. This tickled a lot, and I winced and tried to get him off of me. And then he said, Oh, I see. So you're boy crazy. I pushed him off of me, exclaiming, No, at least I'm not afraid of the dark. He rolled his eyes at me. What are you talking about? You're more afraid of the dark than I am. I was going to retort with something, but I remembered I had to sleep with my mom in her bed just a couple of nights before. I'd had a bad dream. We sat back, and we got quiet for a while. Then I looked over at him and asked him a curious question I had. Why are people afraid of the dark? Derek looked at me, then looked back at the fire. I don't know. Guess because you can't see what's in there. Isn't it just scary when you can't see anything? Try closing your eyes and walking out into the woods one day. Would be pretty scary, wouldn't it? I nodded. Nothing to be scared of out here, though, I said. I was an ignorant and confident little kid. Well, I wouldn't say that, Derek replied. You're just trying to scare me. There's no such thing as monsters, I explained to him, like a little know-it-all. Well, Cart, it doesn't have to be monsters. There are animals out there. Dad said he saw a cougar on one of the trail cams. Cougars eat people. Being ten years old and hearing this from my older brother really scared the crap out of me. I didn't like where the conversation was going, but I was morbidly curious. How big are they? I asked. About as big as Dad. Derek could not finish his sentence. Because suddenly, there came a loud sound from outside the cabin, 
It seemed distant, but still quite loud. It was a windy scream, like a violent wind flowing through a cavern. A scream of pain, though you could be mistaken for guessing it didn't come from an animal at all. You could probably guess I jumped right out of my skin. What's that? I demanded to know from Derek. Speak of the devil, Derek said. Cougars are known to scream like that. What do we do? Having turned to face the door of the shack, where the sound had been coming, he looked back at me and smiled. It's not going to bother us. Cougars are scared of people. I didn't believe that for a second. He had been about to say that they can get as big as Dad. Something as big as our Dad? Why would it be scared of two little kids? Didn't make sense to me, and we hadn't brought any real protection with us. I'd seen plenty of scary movies by then, and if a big cat was anything like my Hollywood monsters, it could burst right through the shack's walls and grab me by the hair, dragging me out to be eaten. I want to go home, I told Derek. He placed his hands on my shoulders and reassured me. Nothing's gonna happen, it doesn't even know we're here, and it's not going to bother us. Let's get some sleep. It's probably safer we don't walk through the woods right now. I know you're probably thinking I should take you back home. He lay in his cot, and I did the same. Though I'd been scared, it didn't take me long to fall asleep. An unknown amount of time later... I was awakened. There was a stirring in the shack. Remembering what we'd talked about before going to sleep, I sat straight up and looked over to the cot where Derek was supposed to be. But he was gone. Instinctively, I looked right at the door to make sure it was still shut. There was Derek. He was facing away from me. He was opening the door and about to step outside. Derek, where are you going? I said worried. But he ignored me. He didn't even react to my call. He stepped out of the shack, then closed the door behind him. Not three or four seconds later, that scream that I'd heard before came echoing from the woods outside. I pulled my thin blanket up to my face. Why did he leave me? Where was he going? What if that cougar got him? The scream would come again and again every few minutes, all the while I sat there, trying to force myself up. I had to go get my brother. I either had to bring him back or stay with him. I was too scared to stay alone. And what if he got hurt out there? Eventually, and ever so steadily, I pulled the blanket from myself, and I got up. The fire had turned into glowing orange embers, but was still plenty hot to keep the shack warm. I opened the door, met by a cold, almost freezing breeze. It was very dark outside. Where the full moon didn't touch with its light was complete pitch-black darkness. I stepped out and closed the door. Then, step by step, I made my way toward the trail calling out his name. Derek! Derek, where are you? He did not respond. 
I walked closer to the trail. It was the only part of the forest that wasn't completely black with darkness, as the canopy above the trail had several openings throughout, letting in much of the moonlight. But still, it was half as bright as the shores of the pond. I walked along the trail, having to remind myself that my brother was out there somewhere and needed me. Otherwise, I'd rather just stop moving or go back to the shack. It was cold, and I was shaking, but probably not from the cold. I was terrified, more so than I had ever been. The further I walked along the trail, the louder the screaming got. The more clear it was, the windy aspect of it began to fade out. It would sound more and more animalistic as I carried on. About halfway through the trail, only ten minutes from home, the scream came again, clearer than ever, and I knew then that it was coming from off the trail to my left. I then made the stupidest decision. I was going to go toward the screaming. Now you have to understand why I did this. I wondered if my brother, who I saw as braver than me, had come out here to see the screaming thing himself. If that was the case, then following the screaming would lead me to him. The other option was my brother had been attacked by the screaming thing. And once again, going toward the screams would lead me to my brother. And in that case, he would need my help. So, terrified, tired, and freezing, I stepped into the darkness of the woods. My eyes would begin to adjust but not by much. Derek! I called again, knowing that there would not be a response. I tripped several times as well. The terrain off the trail was quite uneven and precarious. If I wasn't careful, I could break one of my ankles. Now focusing more on my steps than my own surroundings, I soon found myself entering a clearing where the moon's light was shown bright and I became aware that I was hearing crying. Someone was crying in front of me, an awful sound of someone in pain and in torment. I looked up, and I saw a crouching human shape. They faced away from me. Their shoulders moved up and down, and I saw that their arms were moving around. I stepped closer. I could then see that they seemed to be scratching their wrists and arms, hard. Then the crying gave way to the sound of murmurs. I'm sorry, it hurts. I can't stop. Stop. I'm hungry. Thinking, or assuming, that it was my brother who was injured, I, I called out to it. Derek? The murmuring stopped all at once. The figure angled its head up and sideways, towards the sky and towards me at the same time. And then, it screamed. The same scream I'd been hearing the whole night. It was never a cougar, and it wasn't my brother. I run faster and more determined than ever before, I run back to the shack, for some reason not even considering going back home. I guess back then I didn't have a good sense of time or distance. 
I guess I assumed that home would be further away, even though I was halfway there. I ran and ran until I made it back to the shack, opened the door up, and found my brother sitting up in his cot, looking at me, confused. Where have you been? He looked at me, angrily. Had he just woke up? I, I thought I, I saw you leave the shack, I explained. What are you talking about? I've been asleep this whole time. You just scared the bejesus out of me. Don't go outside without me. You didn't go on the trail, did you? Alone? In the dark? His anger turned to concern. Yeah, but you weren't here. I had to go find you. I began to cry. Derek hugged me. Carter, I never left you. I was in here the whole time, I promise. I wouldn't scare you like that, and I wouldn't leave you alone. After he dried my tears with his shirt, he stayed up while I went to sleep, and in the morning, he stayed close to me as we both walked home together. Part 2 I never really knew what I saw that night in the woods. When we made it back home, I did tell my brother what I saw, but I said to him that it was just some crazy man. He didn't believe me. I did have one bout of sleepwalking way back in the day, several years before that, but it was nothing like this. Still, he didn't stop from attributing my experience to sleepwalking. After all, even I couldn't explain how I didn't see him in his cot if he had been there the whole time. A few years after this, school was back in session for the year, meaning we had to wake up super early to get ready for school and to catch the bus. We had to wake up at our house for school way earlier than other kids. We were the furthest out on our bus route. We'd wake up at 5.30 then be ready to catch the bus at the driveway at 6.30. Ugh, this was miserable. It seemed no matter how early we fell asleep, we'd always wake up feeling exhausted. Not to mention, whenever school started up, that time of year was always freezing cold outside around these parts. I hated it. But luckily, Mom started a new tradition. She'd drive us in her truck to the edge of the driveway and wait with us heaters full blast, and we'd snack on breakfast burritos that she'd made us, usually. They were quick and easy for her to make, and by God were they delicious. My poor mom, though, she didn't last long when she put the parking brake on. Every day when we waited for the bus, she'd start snoring after a few minutes, out like a light, catching the sleep that I wish I could catch more of. Well, the first day of school that year, we did just that, Mom brewed us all a cup of coffee. Derek was really into coffee by then. Mom was addicted to it. And I was 13 then, so I figured I was man enough to drink my coffee black. But after one sip and a noticeable cringe on my face, my mom laughed at me and poured my cup into hers. Having known this would happen, she pulled out a juice box, apple juice I think, and gave it to me. Mom was the best. After she finished her coffee and mine together in her cup, she still somehow managed to fall asleep. She was sawing logs, and so was my brother soon after that. But my brother, he had reason to. He had been staying up real late talking to some girl on the phone. When we asked him if he had a girlfriend, he would deny it. 
but I saw the way he smiled when he answered the phone. So, those two were in the truck, sleeping and basking in the warmth of the heater. It was still dark out, and would stay dark till around seven. There were bushes and thick foliage on either side of the truck, along the driveway. Having finished my breakfast, I pulled out my PSP, which I'd gotten for my last birthday. I turned it on, played a little bit of Monster Hunter Freedom, still to this day my very favorite game franchise. I usually played on the bus, but the bus was running a bit late, and those two were asleep, so I was getting bored. After several minutes, I was getting really frustrated. Gravios kept killing me in that mission, and after the third death, signaling a failure, I turned the PSP off and put it back in my backpack, and I just stared out the window. The driveway was misty, lots of fog all around us. It was warming up a bit, but it was being real slow about it. Before long, my nose began to crinkle up. I smelled something, and whatever it was, it was absolutely terrible. It smelled like dead and rotten fish. I figured it was Derek. So I turned around and elbowed him into the bicep. He barely felt it, though. Derek, that's gross, dude. We're all packed cramped in here, and it's too cold to roll down a window. All he did was stir, turned his head to the left away from me, and continued to sleep. I rolled my eyes at him, covering my nose with my shirt. The smell was so bad I was about to gag. Once again, I turned my face toward the window, looking at the foliage to our right. Despite the smell, I could have fallen asleep then, but I kept my eyes open. If I fell asleep, we'd miss the bus, and Mom would be way mad. Suddenly, something in front of me caught my attention. That morning was not windy, and that being said, the bushes were shuffling about. Just the ones in front of me. There was something out there. I was sure of it. And then, when I heard the scream that I'd heard a few years back, the very same one coming from those bushes outside, I freaked out. I felt chills all over me. I turned back to my brother and mom and shook them both, trying to get them to wake up. But they ignored me, or were that deeply asleep. All in all, it was pointless trying to wake them. Quickly, I turned back to the window to keep an eye on what I was hearing and seeing. A few seconds after that, a bald and pale head popped itself out from the bushes, its skin glistening as if it was moist. I watched its head slowly turn left and right. It was so slow, turning its head, that the only way I knew it was doing so was by the faint reflection of the moonlight on its eyes, which swiveled. I kept wondering, who is that? Was that the same guy as before? It had been years, and the visual in my head was getting blurry. But this encounter was bringing it all back to the top. Without warning... The thing in the bushes, on all fours, scurried and crawled over to the truck. I jumped when this happened. The way it moved was so grotesque and sickening, it wasn't right. It didn't walk on all fours like a man pretending to be an animal. Rather, it crawled along the ground like a spider in search of insects. It did so at the speed of a spider as well. Something unnatural, no, impossible for a person to do. People aren't built to move like that. 
even though this thing had all the appendages and shape of a man. I saw legs, I saw arms, a head. If it wasn't human, then what was it? At a blinding speed it had scurried from the forest's edge to so close to the truck that I could no longer see it unless I rolled down the window or opened the door, and I was not about to do that. For the next minute, I heard it crawling slowly around the truck, as if observing it, or maybe it was looking for a way inside. But I tried not to think about it. I tried to hope that it didn't know we were in there. It was scary enough knowing that there were animals out there that looked and acted like this, one that wasn't scared of a running truck. I could hear rocks shuffling about as it moved, from my right, then to the left, to the front, then to the back, where it stopped. I turned in my seat, and I stared out the back window, waiting to see something. And I soon did. Long, bony fingers rose above the tailgate, then wrapped themselves around it as that creature pulled itself up and crawled into the truck bed. I see it sniffing around in the truck bed. Was it looking for something to eat? It was so close, closer than ever. I tried my best to get a good look at its face, but it was difficult. It was so dark still. All I could really make out was that its face was more flat than a person's, as if its nose was gone. Then I heard something else. My mother, she was waking up. She yawned and stretched out her arms, correctly situating herself back in her seat. Then, on autopilot, she checked the rearview mirror. I watched her eyes go wide, and then a scream billed from her face, and then out of her mouth. I covered my ears. It was so loud. My brother sat straight up. He'd been scared half to death. This spooked the creature, too. But rather than running away, it flattened itself so close to the bed of the truck that it was impossible to see due to the shadows. Mom was horrified but confused. She'd only got a split-second look at it. She looked at me, seeing that I'd been watching it, then asked me if it was a dog or a cat or some person. Then she figured it was maybe one of my friends from up the road, coming to the truck to join us, which had happened before. She said if that was the case, it was not funny that he was trying to scare us. My now-awake brother turned in his seat, wanting to see what all the fuss was about. He pressed his face right up against the cold glass, trying to see what was back there. But it was just impossible to see it. A sudden squeal from behind us caused us all to turn around. At long last, the bus was pulling up in front of us, squealing to a halt as its brakes howled in agony. At that same moment, the entire truck shook as a great weight or pressure was exerted on it from the back. I turned just in time to see that creature escape through the bushes, leaving the three of us there dumbfounded. Me and Derek now forced to get out and enter the bus, which we did in a hurry. I asked the bus driver if he saw that, but he looked at me, as tired as we were, and shook his head. I asked my brother if he caught any glimpse of it, but he still didn't know what we were talking about. All he knew was that Mom screamed at something in the rearview mirror, 
With a sigh, I sat down, pulled out my PSP again, and tried to forget about it. Derek asked over and over what it was, but I didn't have an answer. When I tried to tell him that I think it was the same thing I saw years ago in the woods, he simply said, Right, and finally got quiet. Part 3 Jump ahead a few more years. I was 16, and Derek was 20, though he moved out of the house the moment he turned 18. He didn't visit much anymore, but I found myself missing him. It had been a long time since the two of us went fishing like we used to, let alone just sit down and talk about life. Luckily, at the same time that Derek was gone... Dad was able to come back home far more often. He and Mom had finally paid off our cheap house, meaning we did not need nearly as much money as he used to be making. Dad didn't want to cut his hours, but Mom convinced him to. She wanted him home, wanted him to relax and help her with her garden, said it would be therapeutic and even romantic for the two of them. He relented, and he was able to take half the hours he used to, he was basically home all the time now. I wasn't used to it, but I enjoyed it. Heck, I even found myself helping them garden too. And Dad was a great fisherman. We'd go to the pond, rest in the shack, and even travel upstate for more exotic fishing. But there were some other negative changes around then. You see, my sleepwalking, which had only happened once before, came back with a vengeance. At home, Mom and Dad would often find me in the living room, sitting on the couch, staring at the TV without blinking. They'd walk over to me. I would wake up and not realize where I was or how I got there. I would never even remember getting out of bed, which I guess is normal of sleepwalking. She was worried I was going to get myself hurt. She and my dad discussed getting a one-way lock for my room and even barring my windows to protect me but I told them that they were taking this sleepwalking thing too far. I'd be fine. Getting up and subconsciously sitting on the couch was nothing to worry about. But things would get much, much worse. One summer, just before bed, Dad had a heart attack, and Mom had to rush him to the hospital. When I tried to join them, go with them to the emergency room, she stopped me and said that I needed to look after the house and stay here. I was mad. My dad was nearly dead, could be dying, and she was making me stay home. Now that I look back on it, I have a feeling she was just protecting me. She didn't want me more worried than I already was. I was the type to worry myself to death. Over the years, I had grown into a more paranoid person. And yeah, I do think that those experiences I had before had something to do with it. You don't just witness things like that and shrug it off. That night, I stayed in my bed, awake, waiting for my mom to call. I couldn't do anything, eat, watch TV, play games, until I knew my dad was going to be okay. I was horrified at the idea that I'd never get to spend time with my dad. He worked his life away, just so we could afford this small house. And when he finally had time at home and we were starting to hang out, he had a heart attack. Life wasn't fair. And even if they called and let me know he was okay, 
It would mean Dad would have to slow down. Would we even be able to go fishing again? Maybe I was overthinking it. Sure enough, my mom did call within the hour. She let me know that Dad was going to be okay. They wouldn't have to do surgery, but they were sending him home with a prescription. He would need to change his diet and exercise drastically. I smiled. Just thankful that he was fine. After that, I was finally able to turn over in the bed and close my eyes for a time. They would be home in the morning. I woke up in the middle of the night. I rubbed my head, which was pounding, thinking about getting up to get some ibuprofen. I placed my hand down, but then I yanked it back up. It stung. I looked over, and a stick was jabbing into it. Then I looked around. I wasn't at my house anymore. I was in the middle of the woods. I was outside. My stomach sank. How did I get out here? Did I sleepwalk out here? This was the first time I'd ever gone this far. I picked myself up and looked in every direction, trying to recognize a landmark, anything at all. But I didn't. How do I get back to the house? Where was I? I was beginning to panic. I felt around in my pockets. I'd fallen asleep with my shorts on. You see, if I wear running shorts or sports shorts of some kind during the day, I would usually fall asleep in them. They were warm and comfy. Luckily, my phone was in my pocket still. Panicking, I called my brother. I wasn't sure why it was him I chose to call, instead of mom or dad. Maybe I didn't want to scare mom after she'd just been traumatized by dad's heart attack. Plus, I really missed Derek. My phone read 4 a.m. I dialed Derek's number, and I prayed that he would be awake. Hey, Cart, what's up? He answered, sounding tired and irritated. Derek... Derek, I, I woke up in the middle of the woods, man. I've been sleepwalking a lot, and I don't know how I got out here. I don't know where I am. He seemed to perk up after that, and sounded worried. All right, all right, calm down, okay? I'm coming to the house. I'm going to bring the brightest flashlight I can. I'm going to come looking for you, so just stay right there. Did you call Mom? No. She and Dad are at the hospital. Yeah, she's fine. Dad... Well, he had a heart attack, but he's fine too, okay? Just please, come find me. I'm on my way, Carter. Just be careful, and if you start to believe you're really far from home, call the Forest Service. Call someone who can find you. Someone with a GPS or something. I will. Love you, man. We hung up. I sat there on the forest floor. I tried to get GPS working on my phone. I had reception, but whenever Google Maps tried to load my location, it just wouldn't sync or update right. I'm not really sure what was going on. It would load my dot, but from the map, I couldn't tell where I was still. And when I walked around, I couldn't get my dot to move. I stayed in the same area, just to be sure. 
I tried my best to remember what I'd always been told if I was lost in the woods. Was I supposed to stay put? Or was I supposed to get up and move around, trying to find civilization or people? Do I call out, or do I stay silent? I ended up just sitting there, waiting. Over and over, I reminded myself, Derek was on the way. He would be here in a few minutes. When he got here, he would shout. He'd be waving around a bright torch. If I didn't hear him, I'd see him for sure. The woods were so quiet that night. It was unsettling. Every movement I made echoed, seemingly forever. It was dark and a bit warmer than usual, but there were no bugs chirping, and not once did I hear the sound of nighttime animals moving around in the undergrowth. Obviously, I couldn't help but think about my first encounter with that thing way back when, setting foot in the middle of the woods, seeing that shape clawing at itself, and then the murmuring. As if on cue, there it came again, a murmuring, like it was coming from all around me, the same voice I'd heard back then, but this time, it was saying different words. Rather than run away, I laid back down on the ground. As if that was enough to conceal myself, the murmuring drew closer and closer until I was too terrified to keep my eyes open. I closed my eyes. Call me stupid if you will. I should have run. I should have moved, done something different, but I didn't. I laid there, eyes closed. Just as I was beginning to think that I should cover myself with things on the ground, like leaves and twigs, to camouflage myself, I felt it. Something close to my skin, on my scalp. Something sniffing me. Something that had just gotten done murmuring. It smelled me from my scalp down to my neck. Tears welled up in my eyes. I wanted to cry and scream. But there was nothing I could do now, besides lay here and hope for the best, or lash out in defense, which might cause this thing to fight back. I felt air blowing past me as it sniffed more and more, and then there was a warm and wet sensation as whatever it was began to drool on me. It was salivating at my scent, then right on my neck. Only millimeters away, it began to cry, and the murmurings came again. I'm so sorry. I have to. So hungry. Forgive me. I continued to feel wet droplets landing on me, but these were different. These were smaller, colder. Tears. Whatever this was, whoever this was... I did truly believe that they were sorry. I was gritting my teeth now, biting down on nothing as hard as I could. And then, a sound more heavenly than any other, before and after it. Carter! My brother. He was here. He was looking for me. I need only follow his voice, find the beam of his light. 
At the same time as my brother's call, this creature choked up for a second and ran away, scurrying before screaming once more. When the sounds died down, I opened my eyes. I picked myself up and I screamed. Derek! He called back and I ran towards his voice, requesting him to keep calling my name so that I could be sure where he was. Soon, I burst forth from the tree line, finding myself in the side yard of our home. There was Derek, holding a torch, shining it at my feet, and running up to me to hug me. Oh my god, dude. I'm so glad you're okay. I was freaking out about you, he said, squeezing tighter. I couldn't bring myself to speak. Not properly. I was still crying. My stomach felt tight and weak, and when I did try to speak, nothing but pained ramblings came out. He helped me inside, and we went into the kitchen. He brewed some coffee and tried to make conversation. He told me that he had proposed to his girlfriend, said he wasn't ready to tell mom and dad yet, so we had to keep it between us. He talked about his time in college, how many friends he'd made, and how it was going and then tried to ask me how my life had been. But I couldn't speak. Still couldn't speak. For the remainder of that night, until I was able to sleep again, it seemed my sanity had left me. Only once I wake up, and Mom and Dad had come home, just before Derek left to go back to his place, I let him know that I was thankful. And just as he was getting into his car, I told him, I saw it again out there, the thing from the bus stop, the thing from the woods by the shack. I saw it again. He stared at me, then he swallowed hard and nodded, as if finally believing me. Derek drove away, and I went back inside with Mom and Dad. I smiled, and I hugged them both, thankful that they were okay that we were all okay. Wendigo in the Woods of Elbert, Colorado from Ryan T. Before I begin my story, I'd like to give some background on why I'm writing this in the first place. I do not believe in skinwalkers or any sort of cryptid. However, the subject fascinates the living hell out of me. The other day on the r slash skinwalkers subreddit, I saw and responded to a question that read, Why do you believe in skinwalkers? With my beliefs, and gave an extremely brief overview of what led me to learn about skinwalkers. This seemed to attract some attention or curiosity, so I figured that I might as well write about it, since I have nothing else to do being stuck at home now. It happened in a very small town called Elbert, Colorado. That's very far out in the middle of nowhere. My gay grocery trip took a 45-minute drive just to get to a store. I moved out there in the summer of 2013 when I was 11. My family lived on an 8-acre piece of property in a fairly thick pine forest, with a house just outside the very edge of it. The driveway to the house was a super crappy, super long dirt road that led out to the main street that had to be a little less than an eighth of a mile away from the house. 
To this day, I think that place was the most peaceful place I'd ever been to. The only sounds that could be heard were those of nature and our chickens, as we could not hear the rare car that would pass by. The nights there were the best part of the place, though. Because of the lack of city lights, I was able to see every detail of the night sky, down to the dimmest star. Because of the darkness, however, you weren't able to see a single thing below the horizon of the night sky. Along with that, there were several packs of coyotes that lived out there, and every night they'd all be howling at each other. With enough of them, the noise would almost sound like water. The only thing that really sucked about the property, however, was the walk that we had to make just to take the trash out. The garbage company would only accept the cans that were brought to the main road. We'd normally take the trash out before it got dark, but on occasion I'd forget and would have to do it at dark, which I normally didn't mind. The trip would be a super peaceful walkout, and we had headlamps at the ready, so that we could actually see where we were going in the dark. Well, the summer before I moved out, there was a night where I forgot to take out the trash during the day, and the batteries on the headlamps were dead. This meant I had to try to navigate my way down our driveway, almost completely blind. I went outside and stood next to the trash cans for a minute or two, staring into the darkness in order to hopefully adjust my eyes. Staring into the darkness, though, I felt as if there was something off. The normal coyote sounds were gone, and for some reason, my eyes just wouldn't adjust to the dark. I kept staring into that abyss, looking for any sign that my eyes might be adjusting, but to no luck. Then this terrible feeling tore its way into my chest. The best way I can describe it is as if this darkness, this abyss I was staring into, was staring back at, no, into me. I was frozen with fear. I knew I was alone out there, but something told me that if I were to walk into the dark, I would not return. I continued to stare, almost unable to look away from the darkness for a long time before my mom came out to check on me. Her opening the door seemed to break me out of the trance, and I ran to her and began crying. She looked at me confused, and noticed that I still had not taken out the trash. After telling her about how I felt, she laughed a little, and gave me some encouraging words telling me if there was anything out there, our dogs would have noticed it by now. She then told me to come back in ten minutes for ice cream. I turned back around and walked back to the trash cans, shaking. I had never been so scared in my life, and what of? Nothing? I chuckled to myself, realizing the absurdity of it. When I took my eyes back off the ground, the chuckle turned back into a cry. I realized that I wasn't scared of nothing. I was terrified that there was something out there that I could not see, waiting for me to leave the light of the house lamp to attack. Then the coyotes started back up, and my eyes began to adjust. Whatever might have been there was gone, along with all of my fear. The tears stopped along with most of the fear, and I was able to start dragging the trash cans down. The walk was somewhat scary, though I was able to let the sound of the coyotes distract me. By the time I got back to the house, I felt safe again, 
but I could not stop thinking about that abyss. While we lived in that house, that was probably my scariest encounter. There were other scary encounters while I was there, but the only one that could even slightly relate to the other takes place at my friend's house. For the sake of privacy, I'll refer to him as D. D had a property that was about ten minutes from mine, and we shared the same forest, with the only separation being a road in between us. We had been hanging out for a while that day, playing a bunch of video games, when I had an idea to go out in the dark and explore his property. He agreed, and so we waited until night fell. After a few more hours of video games and dinner, it finally seemed dark enough to go out. So, we did. We were wandering his seven-acre property, being pretty stupid, loud, and making half-assed attempts at trying to get each other a little scared. After some time of this, we eventually wandered into a clearing, and I guess the attempts at scaring each other settled in for both of us at the same time. Together, we looked around, concerned. There was something off, and it felt like we were being watched. Trying to keep a good mood, and maybe trying to keep my mind off of whatever was making us feel this way, I suggested we make a scary video to scare Dee's little brother. Dee laughed and agreed and pulled out his phone. We began to record. We were acting like we kept seeing things in the woods. I would throw a stick when the camera was facing away, making weird grunting sounds, in order to make the video creepy. We both were having a good time. However, deep down, I felt like something was very off, and I think that he did too. Then, out of nowhere, a twig snapped behind us. I automatically assumed that D had thrown something, but when I looked at him to confirm, he was looking at me to see if I had thrown it. Before this moment, I was trying very hard to make my voice sound as scared as possible for the video. However, as soon as I heard this, I didn't need to try anymore. We stared in the direction that the twig snap had come from, hoping to make out something, but to no avail. Once again, my eyes would not adjust to the dark, except this time, instead of physically standing in the light, I was inside the darkness. Partially for the video and partially for my sanity, I whispered, Run. D nodded slightly, his face illuminated by his phone. Then we started sprinting in the direction of his house. I don't think I had run so hard in my life beforehand, but there was a feeling in my gut still telling me that we weren't fast enough, that we needed to hide. D must have felt the same thing. He took the lead and led us to a nearby cat shed. A motion sensor light flicked on as we passed by and we got in the shed as quickly as we could. After getting the door shut, Dee turned on his light, revealing the inside of the shed. At the time, it seemed to me like the cats were hiding from something, too. However, looking back on it, they were probably just sleeping in their beds that were in a corner of the shed. This freaked me out even more. Dee started climbing the wall of the shed, leading us onto a shelf-like structure that had a window we could look out of. Dee sat on one side of the window and I sat on the other. We were facing each other, and we could see both angles from the window. 
Eventually, with the light on the outside and the added comfort of a roof over our heads, we started to calm down and focus on the video again. As we were talking about what might have been out there, the motion sensor light turned off, dropping the outside back into the dark. We went quiet as the uneasy feeling washed over us again. To me, it didn't feel like we were being watched anymore, more like we were being looked for. We stared intently out the window, looking for signs of anything when I thought I started hearing footsteps. Having a wall between us and the steps muffled them, so I couldn't be sure what I was hearing. I asked Dee about it, and he said that he heard them too. However, I'm pretty sure he was saying that for the video. We went quiet again, listening. Then I heard the footsteps get slightly louder. One of the cats started rubbing up against us, which distracted us and caused us to turn around and start petting him. Because who wouldn't pet a cat? As we were petting him, the outdoor motion sensor light flicked on. I felt goosebumps crawl up my arms to my face. As we slowly turned around, we looked out the window and saw nothing. Dee told me that we should get inside, and I agreed with him. We carried the cat back down to its bed and got ready to make a 50-yard sprint directly to his house. He opened the door, and I shut it, and then we were in the cold, dark woods, running as hard as we could from whatever turned on that light. After what felt like forever of sprinting, we finally got to Dee's front door and we rushed inside. We slammed his sliding glass door and didn't sleep until we saw the sun rising the next day. Though these encounters were terrifying at the time, a lot of it can be easily explained by me just freaking myself out. There was nothing out there during the trash can story, and at Dee's house we found raccoon prints the next morning outside of the cat shed. None of these things ever stopped me from loving the woods, and within a week I was certain that I was just making things up to myself. I continued loving the woods we lived in for the next year that we lived there, but eventually my family and I ended up moving out. My dad got a job offer in Minnesota that would improve our financial situation and not force my dad into a two-hour commute every day. Minnesota, however, proved to be the worst place that I've lived in, at least for the first year or two. After living in such a small town and adapting to my friends in Elbert, I found it very hard to make friends in Minnesota. I was constantly thinking about my friends and the girlfriend I'd left in Elbert, and I refused to work to make friends, and the people at my new school did not particularly seem to like me. I would still talk to my Elbert friends almost every night, playing video games and stuff with them, which seemed to be the only thing to make me sort of happy while I was there. With my mental health in the garbage and my lack of friends, my parents agreed to let me go to Elbert during the summer and visit them. After the first visit, my mental health was way better. I started opening up to other people at the new school. So my parents agreed to make the Albert trips annual, as long as I planned them. Yeah, I've got the coolest parents ever, of all time maybe. So every year since then I've been visiting my friends in Albert. But the most recent visit is the reason that I'm writing this. Every year I would hang out with my friends K, T, and D, the same D from the other story, 
Because of stupid teenage drama, they would almost never hang out together. One of my favorite things to do with them was ironically go squatching. Squatching is looking for Bigfoot, typically making their hypothetical calls and using other communication methods in hopes of finding one. This was simply an excuse to go yell in the woods at night for me. This most recent visit, I finally had managed to get K, T, and D to all hang out together. We had planned on making a short film that was based on these stupid videos that T and I used to make. We tried to film it, but we ended up with like one scene before we decided to just play video games instead. One day after dinner, the group came up with an idea to make a squatching video. T, K, and I filmed one last year, so we figured that we'd do another one this year and try to make it an annual thing. We took K's little brother out with us to film for us, and we started recording the video. The sun was still up, so we had no intention of being any sort of scary, just a funny, ironic video. We wandered around for an hour, making crappy Australian accents and shouting for Bigfoot, when Kay had the idea that we could split up and look for Sasquatch. So, we did. We each went off on our own into the woods, with the cameraman following me, each making the occasional Squatch call and tree knock. We had some walkie-talkies with us, so we were able to tell each other when we were making a call. After some time, D and T and I found each other and decided to group up and meet Kay in a clearing. We began walking, and Kay came in over the radio, saying that he was about to make another call. We waited, and from the forest came the most terrifying noise I've ever heard someone make. The best way I could describe it it was like a dying elephant that had a smoking problem. Then he came in over the radio. Was that you guys? He asked. We assumed that he was joking around for the video, so we joked back. No, nah, mate, we've pissed the Squatch off. We need to get out of here. Meet us back at your house. Then we ran out of the forest quickly. When we met up with Kay, he apparently had cut himself on some barbed wire. And that, plus the terrifying scream we heard seemed to put us off. We decided to stop for the time being. We went inside and played Halo for hours, messing with each other and doing other stupid things, not mentioning what had happened while squatching for the rest of the night. When night had more than passed, and it was around midnight, we decided to go back outside and do more squatching, this time without a camera and with a bunch of flashlights. We decided to go pretty deep into the forest before making any calls, so as to not wake Kay's family or the neighbors up. Eventually, we got to the point that we had split up from earlier and had to decide what to do from there. After talking about it some, we decided to see where Kay had run off to. Then I made the first Squatch call of the night. After the call, the woods went completely silent. In my previous story, I talked about the abyss watching me. This was almost the same, except it felt as if the forest were listening to us. We laughed about it and poked fun at each other, trying to creep one another out, and we began to walk. Kay led us pretty deep into his woods and eventually stopped in a small opening, showing us that this had been where he had radioed us from, before the call. The thing is, Kay didn't refer to the call as his, he referred to it as one of ours. This didn't register at the moment, but thinking back on it, 
it definitely gives me the creeps. After a bit more joking around, Kay decided to take us to the boundary of his property, where he had cut himself on barbed wire. We walked in a straight line toward the fence, and I think Kay figured we'd follow the fence to where he cut himself. As we walked deeper into the forest, though, our jokes started to die down. The silence, darkness, and this feeling started getting to us. We were starting to suspect that we were being watched. We arrived at the fence and began walking along, when Kay stopped confused. I looked at where his flashlight was pointing, and there was the fence. However, the fence was almost dented, if that makes sense. It looked like something had come through and simply stepped on the fence with enough weight that the fence could not bring itself to its natural position. I showed my flashlight into the other property and asked Kay about it. I can't remember exactly what he told me, but I think I remember him saying that it was a large piece of Native American land and had once been sacred or something like that. That was probably terribly wrong, so take that info with a grain of salt. Our group looked at each other. Let's go over it, I remember myself saying. Worst case scenario, we find whoever's property it is and we can tell him about the broken gate. This was obviously not the worst case scenario, especially out in the country like this, but we continued anyway. After going through some more pretty heavy woods, we found a clearing, and then we felt something awful. The hair on the back of all our necks stood up at once. We began hearing slight twig snaps in every direction. This was a massive change from the previously quiet forest that we had just been walking through. We quickly shined our lights every which way, looking for anything that could be causing our fear. Then Dee's light stopped on something. Guys, do you see that? We all shined our lights on the spot that he was looking at. I couldn't see anything at first, and was about to say no when I made out what looked to be the reflection of eyes. We each confirmed, one by one, each of us starting to make out the eyes. Then we did something stupid. We started walking toward it. Maybe this was because there were four of us, and one pair of eyes. Or maybe it was how alluring they looked. Every step we took, the more they faded out, until we could not see them anymore. Then we felt the hairs on the back of our necks stand up more, as if pointing in the direction of something that did not approve of us being there. We stood back to back, making a square, as we felt the presence circling us. Guys, let's get out of here, one of us said. We all nodded and waited. Then when the time felt right, we sprinted. We all ran as fast as we could, jumping over the fallen fence through the forest, until eventually I saw the house. I heard the others run by me, hidden by the forest, when I suddenly stopped. Ryan, help! My heart sank. I had just heard the other three run by me, yet this was the perfect voice of Kay calling for help. I shoved the thought that this could be Kay out of my head. After all, I had just heard all three of them run by. I began sprinting again, hoping to catch up with Kay. After sprinting for a minute or two, I caught up with them, beginning to slow down, almost at the house. I caught up with Kay and was about to try to talk to him, when we both flinched backward, almost falling. Just to the right of us, there was a crashing thud of something that had just hit the ground. 
We quickly recovered and sprinted toward the door, urging the others on. When we finally got back to Kay's house, we slammed the door behind us and had to just rest, panting. When we all seemed to calm down, Kay asked what the hell happened out there. We all went around sharing what we saw. Dee said he saw the reflection of eyes and more than what we saw in the clearing. Kay said he saw the reflection of eyes in the clearing and heard the two thuds that freaked us out. T said he might have seen the eyes in the clearing and some yellow-red ones as we were closing the door. I stated what I saw, but decided to leave out the voice, since I wasn't and still am not sure I heard what I heard. We sat down, and almost immediately began searching up cryptids and looking for other stories like ours. Within half an hour, our primary theories were of a goat man, a Jersey Devil, or a Wendigo. Almost in response to our theories, we heard two ever-so-quiet footsteps on the roof. Eventually, we went to sleep, but after that, we never spoke a word of it again. Maybe a year or so later, I was trying to creep myself out when I stumbled upon stories about Wendigos. These stories sounded familiar to my experience, but didn't seem to be quite right. That led into a rabbit hole, and eventually I learned about skinwalkers, too. Since then, I've loved hearing stories about them, and I'm very fascinated with what they are and how they hunt. I've stopped believing recently, however, after rethinking my tale for the hundredth time. I'm 90% sure that what we heard and saw was just a horse, and that we got onto the bad side of it. What really spooks me, though, however, is when I let the 10% wander and I think that it might have been something paranormal. Either way, I don't understand how Kay still lives on that property. I'll be visiting him again this summer, so I'll see them again. But hopefully, we will not encounter what we might have encountered last time.